Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack. And Sean Chapman. This week on the show we are talking about... No, wait. We are here... How does my intro go? Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff. This week on the show, we are doing another Weekly Suit Gundam extravaganza as we discuss the second and final season of Mobile Suit Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans. And uh, it's really good. Man, those orphans, they had a lot of iron in their blood. It's a good show. It's a really good show. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to get into it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm it, not going to say anything more. Yeah, yeah. For those who haven't seen it, yeah. I was going to make jokes that was like, I can't make any jokes without them feeling spoilery. So, yeah, it's just a good show. It's a good show. Watch it. Listen to our podcast. Um, Big big milestone moment for Weekly Suit Gundam. Very full circle, finishing Iron-Blooded Orphans. But that'll be our topic today. Before then, uh, you and I have both been playing the Halo Infinite campaign. I want to talk about that. Little bit of news out of the uh, big game advertising show that's called the Game Awards. Um, so we will talk about basically E3 in December. Um, we can talk about that a little bit. Um, but yeah, anything else going on, Sean? Any, that's, that's honestly my stuff is like playing a lot of Halo Infinite, finishing my semester, watching Gundam. So I don't have anything else other than all that stuff. The only other stuff is I'm, I'm probably maybe like two thirds of the way through Persona 5 Strikers. I probably would have finished it if the Halo Infinite's campaign hadn't come out, like, cause I've been kind of jumping between both of those games um i i I don't i won't talk about it in detail because i'm not done yet but i am still really really loving persona 5 strikers and there is a point at like the midpoint in that game where the story pivots from the kind of slightly more fun like road trip adventures with all of your buddies that has a very fun like good anime filler in a dragon ball or naruto kind of sense Um, kind of tone which is what the early parts of that game feel like and around the midpoint is where they start shifting more into a kind of more dramatic uh, story with some big plot twists and stuff like that Uh, and that part of the game is extremely good Uh, and yeah it's it's just been a fun game to jump into and play a couple of hours kind of every night uh, because it's just got a really good pace a really good story and one thing I I realized I had not talked about on the last show that needs to be stressed about this game is that the soundtrack kicks unbelievable amounts of yes ass. it does it is so so incredibly good and it's a partnership between um some of the atlas sound team and um a group of composers that work on uh mostly like dynasty warriors style games and it is a just perfect fusion of the kind of acid jazz stuff you get from persona 5 and the just like ripping fucking metal you get from a dynasty warriors game which like persona soundtracks already have really great like kind of heavy um rock guitar stuff because shoji meguro is a 
the main composer for the main Persona games is a very accomplished guitarist in his own right. Um, so this kind of takes some of that, like, you know, the ripping kind of boss music stuff you already get in Persona and just amps it up even more. And all of the battle themes are just incredible. And there's, I think, about like six different battle themes. Some like there's a redone version of Last Surprise, which is, I think, probably my favorite version of that song. But most of the battle themes are completely original for the game. Um, and they are all just incredibly good. Uh, so even if people don't have the time to check out Persona 5 Strikers, you should take the time to at least check out how good that fucking soundtrack is, because it is unbelievably good. I'm shocked. I am shocked that a Persona game has good music. That's just, I mean, my God, how, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, it's, 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 I think the thing that's fun about it, though, is that it's, it's not just a Persona soundtrack. What it reminds me of a lot is kind of the, like, Persona 4 Arena games, which are like you clearly they're persona but also those are like what if a persona soundtrack had like arc system work style rock like fighting right. game music right and and this is like that only instead of it being an arcsis fighting game it is a dynasty warriors like metal kind of uh thing that they're doing and it's yeah it's 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 fucking stupidly good yeah no i can i can back that up it's very good it's awesome i want to get back into that game at some point but yeah, uh, let's go ahead and talk about, I guess, some of the new stuff first, and we'll save Halo Infinite for the end here. Uh, well, the end before we get to Gundam. Um, and so there was the Game Awards event this week, which I... How how wigged out are you, Sean, by the fact that we call this the Game Awards and like we give it that air of like, blah, 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 and it's really just a three-hour advertising show? I Because here's the thing, I would like gaming to have a nice, serious awards show. I think that's a good idea, and I actually think the Game Awards don't do a bad job at nominations and, like, wins, and there were some good ones this year as well, but I didn't watch the show this year, but from what I found online, people were more frustrated than ever at, like, basically no time at all given to the awards, and all just a long advertising stream. I, I don't know. It wigs me out. Yeah, I think it's a thing of where the Game Awards started as this smaller thing, because it came out of, like, a Spike TV show um, that Jeff Keighley did. Um, a, not a Spike TV show, a Spike TV show, right? A show yeah. on Spike TV that they did every year. Um, and yeah, it definitely feels like this thing of where it's gained enough, like, cultural traction within the video game, like, kind of broader community that it feels like it needs to actually fully just transition into being a straight-up award show. Um, but also, like, that thing is, I imagine, basically entirely funded by advertisement that is we want our big announcements and world premiere and all that kind of shit um so yeah it, it, it what if I, they did I, it as two things what if they did one night that was like actual awards and one night that was like a showcase for the future like there's i feel like there's a way to split that baby it's just it's like i have plenty of problems with the oscars as y'all know but at the very fucking least, the Oscars are not, like, two and a half hours of movie trailers and half an hour of awards. Like, it is generally three hours of talking about the movies of the last year. Yeah, yeah. I didn't watch the Game Awards this year either because I had already done all my dailies in Genshin Impact. So I think the last year yeah. I actually watched a fair, <laughs> quote-unquote, watched a fair amount of the Game Awards just because I was grinding in Genshin Impact while it was on. I was like, yeah, I might yeah. as well throw this on in the background while I'm grinding Artifact. Um, but yeah, I didn't watch it at all this year, but I also saw the same kind of stuff that they always seem to do, which is a couple of the really big awards, they'll actually stop and have someone come on stage for. But for most of it, it's like, 
oh, while we were doing this trailer, we announced on our Twitter or something, here's best multiplayer game, best esports guy, best whatever, you know, like the all the different random awards they have that aren't the, like, marquee awards of the show. It's like, here, they just get listed, like, on the side of the screen for, like, two seconds, and, and, and Jeff Keighley will say, and go check out the winners of all these awards. Congratulations. Anyways, back to Mountain Dew. Yeah, I mean... And it sucks because I do think there would be some value to having, like, a focused awards show that a large number of people come and see, like, the developers and the actors and whoever else come and, like, give a speech accepting an award. Like, that's not a bad thing. And the Game Awards actually, in recent years, like, when I look at, like, their Game of the Year in most years, it's usually a good choice. It's a much better choice than what the equivalent, like, Oscars pick would be in most years, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, this year it was It Takes Two. I haven't played that game, but I saw that and I'm like... Oh, that's cool. I can't imagine, like, the Oscar equivalent of It Takes Two winning, right? Like, that's uh -huh. such a weird... And I know people love that game, and I would like to play it at some point. But, like, that's a cool pick. Like, my pick would have been something else, probably. But I can look at that and go, oh, that's neat. I'm glad those developers won that award. And they're, like, one of the few people who probably got to talk about it at that show. So, that's my problem. Yeah, but it was mostly, as, as it has it's always an been, show. an excuse yeah, to have a bunch of video game uh, trailers... Uh, of uh, which I saw a paltry number of. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about a couple of the ones that I just find interesting. I'm just scrolling through here. Um, how do you feel about Quantic Dream making a Star Wars game? I mean, we knew about this. This had been leaked forever ago. Um, okay. It's, you know, I wish that Quantic Dream wasn't allowed to make video games. I mean, yeah. I think it's one where because, like, all the Ubisoft stuff and the now all the Activision Blizzard stuff has happened... I, th I it feels like maybe some people are forgetting that like Quantic Dream also it was in 2018 had like just as bad just unbelievable awful workplace stuff come out um that I mean because there was a lawsuit against them in France uh, where they're based um and it's so... and directly tied to their chief creative guy David Cage like yes and they're a smaller group where like it's a little more focused in and like you can identify <laughs> who the problematic people are yeah, it's... Here's the thing. If you didn't tell me it was Quantic Dream, it's a pretty good trailer. I don't know if you saw the trailer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I did. It's called Star Wars Eclipse. It's a good cinematic trailer. But, like, I mean, one, Quantic Dream games are bad. They're very barely video games. They're just bad. And then they're also made by bad people. So, like, I, I don't... I don't know why. Like, I, I, I kind of wonder in... I, I like that Disney is extending the license beyond EA. That's great. Why would you go to them it's not like we didn't it, it, again this is not like new brand new news i don't know yeah it's i'm i i will not play that game you know no. because it's not going to be good and then also it would feel gross uh because yeah. again like go back if you don't know about it and look into some of that quantic dream stuff because it is like really truly horrendously awful yes um and all in the service of bad video games <sighs> all right uh Sonic, uh, Sega did reveal the new Sonic game. It's called Sonic Frontiers. This had been rumored for a while, but it is an open-world Sonic game. Basically, it is Sonic Breath of the Wild, um, Hedgehog of the Wild, Breath of the Sonic, however you want to call it. Um, I'm, I'm curious about it, I have to say. It looks nice visually. It doesn't really look like Sonic. And so when Sonic is running through just as a cartoon hedgehog, it's kind of funny. But here's the thing, especially after playing this year um, the Nintendo game Bowser's Fury that was packaged in with the Mario 3D World re-release, the idea of an open-world platformer, I think, 
if you haven't played Bowser's Fury, that might strike you as a little odd, but there's a real, I think, way you can make an open-world platformer that's great. Bowser's Fury pointed out how to do that with Mario, and I can see it being done with Sonic very easily. And I think having big spaces for Sonic to run around in could be a lot of fun. So I always hope the next Sonic game will be good. I know there's a 95% chance it will be bad because this is Sonic's batting average, but I live in hope. Yeah, I I, I kind of wish that they had shown more of what the game actually is uh, because cause there had been... And it might have actually been at the last Game Awards. There had been a, like, teaser trailer that was basically, like, a shot of Sonic running through the forest and then just a logo. Like, it was a true teaser teaser trailer. But this trailer, like, honestly isn't that much more than that. It's just you get more panning shots of the environment. Um, So I I would like to see... Because, like you, I'm, I'm always interested in seeing what Sonic is doing. And I think there's certainly a, like, cool path for a very cool open world, like, platforming Sonic game. Um, I would just like to see more of it, and I because this was one of the announcements that like Sega like basically said, oh, we're going to show more of this game at the Game Awards, and that was the thing that I was kind of looking forward to, and then it ended up being yeah. this very paltry little minute long kind of teasy trailer. Yeah, uh, this was more of just an announcement, not a trailer or anything. There was a brief visual, but Monolith Productions is making a Wonder Woman game. Monolith previously did the Shadow of Mordor games, and they have said that that Nemesis system will return in this Wonder Woman game. Um, does that sound interesting to you? I mean, you know, it, it could. I, it's like, <laughs> you know, Shadow of Mordor was like a decent game for when it came out. I never played Shadow of War. Uh, yeah. And Wonder Woman is a cool character. I mean, we talked about um, with Guardians of the Galaxy that like video games are a good medium for superhero stuff. Um, like the nemesis system in Wonder Woman as a combo doesn't immediately like jump out to me as a thing that makes sense. Like when you when it came out that the nemesis system was originally designed for a Arkham Batman spin-off game that Monolith was, was working on at WB and then they ended up shifting it into a Lord of the Rings game. As soon as you heard that, you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense because the nemesis system also was a weird fit for Lord of the Rings, um, but it makes perfect sense for Batman. Um, so it's a weird fit for Wonder Woman, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't be good. It's just like, it right. was funny for to be like, and Monolith is making a Wonder Woman game, and they're bringing over their Nemesis thing, and it's like, is Mon- Monolith doomed to wander from IP to IP with their really cool game thing that nobody else does, but the IPs are never actually particularly well suited for the really <laughs> cool game idea? Uh, yeah. It's very sad. I know, but um, I hope it's, you know, I root for that. I I would love to have a good Wonder Woman game, and clearly that's a talented group of people over there, Uh even if, like, Shadow of Mordor was not quite our cup of tea, because it, like, you know, it's not their fault that they were trying to make a Batman game, and then they were told you're making a Lord of the Rings game, but they didn't have time to make a new combat system, so it's a little odd, you know. That's, that's not their fault, but it is a little odd. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope it's interesting. I want a mechanic in that game where, like, you can run around, like, an open GTA-style city with Wonder Woman and just lasso people and have them tell you their darkest secrets. Kind of like in Watch Dogs where you could scan people and, like, see their criminal history. I want to do that with Wonder Woman and, like, you find out that, like, like every hundredth person is a serial killer or something. It'd be great. That that all of a sudden the lasso truth thing and the nemesis system makes some kind of sense because there was a very weird like very like ethically dubious mechanic in the Shadow of War or Shadow of Mordor games where you were like 
brainwashing basically the orc so that was like an option right where you had your magic elf ghost friend who was the guy who forged the one ring for sauron because that's what that game is um and so this magic ghost guy like you can possess their brains or whatever and force them to obey you um and if they just like lean into that i mean it would be an awful thing and it would make wonder woman like a terrifying person if she was using her lasso of truth to like subjugate <laughs> people to her fucking unbending will uh, but it, you know, you could you could twist that into that nemesis mechanic. I could see them doing it with like Wonder Woman Island, whatever it's called. Themyscira has yes. been like overtaken by. Wouldn't that be great if it was called Wonder Woman Island? Anyway, yes, um, yeah, no. Uh, Themyscira is like taken over by parademons, and that's how they're doing it. I, and in fact, that's probably what it's going to be. But yeah, uh, we got the official announcement of Alan Wake too. I know you're excited for that. Yes. Yes, this is this was another like it's basically like a tease, but it's just really cool that they're getting to work on it, yeah. and it gives me a good excuse to go play the the remaster of Alan Wake that just recently came out. Uh, because yeah, because Control was amazing, the Alan Wake expansion for Control was also very good. Um, so yeah, the the fact that they're just getting to go, uh, Remedy is able to go to their the sequel that they always wanted to make but couldn't, um, because they made Alan Wake, they made a DLC for Alan Wake called American Nightmare, and they. they Alan Wake 2 was a project that was, like, in development hell for a while over there. Uh, but because the game, original Alan Wake, had, like, was very well beloved, but was that kind of cult hit thing where people really liked it, but it didn't sell a lot. It's cool that they're finally getting the chance to go back to that character and in, in making a sequel to that game. Yeah. Uh, we got a couple of trailers for live-action things. So we got the first trailer for Sonic the Hedgehog 2, the movie that's coming out in April, um, where we got to see our first footage of Knuckles as voiced by Idris Elba. It was exactly as funny as I hoped it would be. Yes, it's a very, very serious take on Knuckles, which is what I was looking for. I mean, it's exactly how I hoped they would use him, which is it's like the Sonic 3 thing where he's wor working for Eggman, mm -hmm. but he I assume there will be in the third act he comes around and becomes Sonic's buddy, you know? Yes. Um, but him being Idris Elba makes that extra intense, you know? Um, yeah. What I really need is for that movie to have, like, a very sick version of the Sonic the Hedgehog 3 Knuckles theme. The bum bum ba dum bum bum ba dum that comes on, like, that sick drum beat in that game. That needs to be a thing that is in that movie every time that character appears on screen. Because it is yes. one of my favorite things from that game. We also, um, we saw this in the trailer and then it was confirmed a couple days ahead of time that Colleen O'Shaughnessy, who's the current voice of Tails in the games, will be voicing Tails in the movie. That's great. I loved seeing that. More voice actors in movies, please. Like, I, I'm totally cool with the Knuckles being Idris Elba because that's wild, crazy uh -huh. casting and I love it. But I do like that. And I have to imagine it was just, they realized there's no celebrity they could cast who could do a little boy voice like Tails. So they're like, I guess we'll use a trained voice actor. What a concept. But, yeah, it does It does make sense that they're like, well, if we hired a celebrity voice actor, we would be asking them to do a character voice, not just like, hey, this is, hi, I'm Idris Elba, or whatever. I mean, obviously he's doing an accent or I, whatever. But, yeah. I yeah. am slightly surprised that he's not voiced by Tom Holland. There's just a part of me uh -huh. that, like, they were going to get Tom Holland for Tales, and then maybe he's been in too many things. But that's, how, that's who you would cast, I have to imagine. But this isn't a, of, this isn't a Sony movie though, so that's true. That's like, true. Sony yeah. just like owns Tom Holland or something, and they're going to just put him yeah. in all their movies. I think they're cloning him, um, but yeah. And we also saw uh, Dr. Robotnik with his stash and everything. I do like Jim Carrey looking like actual Dr. Robotnik is fun in this. So I'm, uh, you know, the first one was pretty good, and this looks fun. I like that we've got actual like Sonic characters in it now. Yes, yeah. This this was like I legitimately I enjoyed the trailer. Um, I don't yeah. think I'll probably never actually watch the movie, but <laughs> yeah. I, I I'm happy that like 
these movies exist because they seem pretty good. What did you think of the Halo trailer? I th- I thought there was a very nice looking shot of High Charity. That was cool. Yeah. And then it you know, had more Halo in it than I thought it would. In terms yeah. of like visual design. Here's the thing. I can imagine now that we've seen the Mandalorian, a version of the Halo show that works where it's chief in the armor and he doesn't come out of it and you do some like very kind of like Samurai Jack-esque visual storytelling with it. And in my version, you would have a stuntman playing Chief in the Armor, and you would still have Steve Danes do the voice. And, like, I can imagine a version of that that would be kind of decent, but I think they are going for the, like, basically like a sci-fi show, like this channel sci-fi that's, uh-huh. like, but very expensive, like, because it's, it's a show. Well, this was a Showtime show for most of its development. Now it's going to be on Paramount Plus because of streaming stuff. Um... And they've got, uh, oh, who are they having to play the Chief? It's someone famous. Um, I have to look up the name. But it's someone where, like, obviously, he's, it's Pablo Schreiber. So he's going to be out of the armor plenty, because otherwise he wouldn't get Pablo Schreiber. So I don't know. I, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, it's just a thing of where, like, cause I, just don't, I just don't know what the story is going to be. The fact that, like, High Charity is there is cool, because High Charity is a very cool, like, alien ship slash city design. Um, but, like, I just, you know, while I, and we'll talk about this with, like, Halo Infinite, it's like, I am enjoying the Halo Infinite campaign, but, like, Halo as a broader media property, I think, has just been done so dirty that it's hard for me to get, like, excited about the idea of a Halo TV show because I just can't imagine it being done well. I mean, I can imagine it in a perfect universe being done well. I think you absolutely could do a Halo TV show set in the Halo universe that is executed really well, but I can't imagine it actually being done well um, by anybody uh, because I think it is hard and I think it is... And, like, I don't think you should use the Master Chief. Like, I just... Like, I don't think 343 Industries should be using the Master Chief. I think they should have let that character go at the end of Halo 3. Um, but it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. It's it's hard. I, I mean, the thing I can I will always point to is I think the Fall of Reach book is a pretty perfect, like, outline if you wanted to do a movie or a TV season. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know. People, you know, people don't listen to me. Um, all right. But the big thing that we're interested in here is the uh, Unreal Engine 5 tech demo f- called The Matrix Awakens that was debuted here and then is a free download on PS5 or the Xbox Series consoles. Uh, and you and I have both played a little of that. Do you want to talk about that, Sean? Yes. So this was a very cool surprise uh, drop of um, for people who haven't seen it or checked it out. It is, it is a tech demo, right? So it's, it's a thing where it is not a video game. Like, you shouldn't go into it expecting it. This is like a 30-minute long Matrix video game or something. Um, it is very much a like the thing that they showed to debut the Unreal Engine 5 stuff, which was that, like, sort of uh, that woman going through this kind of, like, abandoned desert sort of fantasy city and all that kind of stuff where they showed off their nanite technology which is what they're doing to render a huge number of pixels on screen and have it be very performant and to remove basically the traditional concept of level of details and like pop in and that kind of stuff and then also lumen which is their sort of ray tracing global illumination lighting system Um, along with a bunch of the other like sort of fancy new tech that's basically like next gen video games in unreal engine 5 so this is 
a tech demo kind of like that, but it is also a marketing deal with uh, the new Matrix movie. And there is a very fun, some very good dialogue with Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss where they sort of like lampshade it um, and talk about the marketing department and all that kind of stuff. I I enjoy all their dialogue. I don't know if they confirmed this. That totally sounds like Lana Wachowski wrote that. Like, Uh because it is so similar to a lot of the dialogue in the Matrix video games, particularly the Path of Neo crazy ending. Yes. Like, I have to imagine Lana Wachowski gave them that dialogue because it is so them, you know? <laughs> yeah. So so what it is, is overall, is it's this tech demo that is made of three parts. You have this, like, opening kind of, like, movie, which the majority of the movie is rendered in real time. There's a couple of, if people want all the details, there's a very good hour-long breakdown that Digital Foundry did uh, that is based on an interview they also did with um, the team at Epic that worked on this. Um, so they have like some of the inside scoop on there are little couple of like pre-rendered video sequences in there to just to like help kind of like screen cut transitions and to prevent any kind of like loading breaks or anything like that. And then there are a couple of bits of live action Keanu Reeves in there as well. Um, as he's sort of trying to sort of like fuck with your mind in putting, you know, this a rendered in real time, which is very important to emphasize that this is not a pre-rendered CG character. This is a real time rendered CG character that if you're playing the demo on your PS5 or Xbox series, whatever, is being rendered by that console in real time at 24 frames per second. Um, like, they're putting those in juxtaposing real, in real-time rendered Keanu Reeves with actual real-world Keanu Reeves. And so it's this fun little kind of opening movie segment, and it's, you know, Keanu talking about, oh, like, what is real? What is fake? Can you tell the difference? Then he's in the Matrix with, with Carrion and Moss, and they look like... Neo and Trinity from The Matrix uh, Reloaded, which is funny because we just rewatched those movies, and you can see how much like these in real time rendered versions of these characters look a thousand times better than the digital doubles that were actually in The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions. Um, I mean, even more impressive to me is that it's like the digital de-aging thing, uh-huh. and it's better than in most movies I've seen it done in, and it's in real time on your PS5. Like, yes. un- I, I was about to make an unreal pun. They make an unreal pun in the video, and it's very funny. Carrie Ann Moss gets gets the line, and she fucking kills it. But, like, it is. It's unreal. It's, I can't. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. Yeah, so it's a really incredible kind of, you know... Uh, uh, video movie sequence at the beginning then that transitions into a big like scripted naughty dog-esque only like even less sort of interactive big action spectacle scene clearly influenced by the the highway chase scene in the matrix reloaded where you're in the back of this car being driven by trinity and these agents are chasing after you and all these other cars and you're just shooting them and it's again it's not really mechanics it's like oh pick these five points on the screen and hammer on the right trigger to shoot the cars um, but it does show off, like, their huge kind of, like, destruction simulation because it is um, all actually, like, simulated physics stuff. This is something that Digital Foundry discovered is that if you replay those sequences, it's not canned animations. Even if you're doing the exact same things and shooting the same cars at the same time, it is interacting with, like, the world around it and it's, like, real interactive destruction physics. Um, and so it is all, like, this big, crazy, beautiful um, action scene um, kind of spectacle showpiece, which is awesome. Then after that ends, you think that the the thing is going to be over, which is what I did. It's like, oh, that was really cool and looked amazing, but it is what it is. And then they drop you into the city, um, and it is a full, big, huge, like, open-world Matrix-esque sort of, like, generic American metropolis, sort of vaguely New York City-ish um, American city uh, that has a hugely dense 
uh, kind of like population to buildings and random citizens and cars and traffic simulations and real-time lighting through Lumen. Um, and so it's like ray tracing and ray traced reflections on the cars and the windows and all that kind of stuff. And it looks gorgeous. And you don't really have any mechanics. You can just run around. You can drive cars. And the driving is like very, very basic video game driving. And then for me, what it is, is you then go into your third person camera view and you can just fly around and play basically what felt to me like the Digital Foundry home game of let me just zoom around <laughs> and look at, oh, look at the resolution of these reflections. Oh, look, if I like zoom way out, I can see the points that were like shadows for humans disappear to keep performance up and then if you zoom even further out like you can see some of the shadows on cars disappear and stuff like that like you can just sort of like play around and mess around and you can take pictures um there's a very basic kind of photo mode that allows you to play with depth of field and the aperture and stuff like that um and it is hugely impressive like it is really hard to even explain especially like being able to actually just play it on a thing that you own that is under your tv um feels very different than watching like clips of it on youtube and like knowing that is something that's being rendered live and being able to like directly interact with it and move a character around um and play with stuff and you can fiddle with some settings like crowd density you can turn on and off their matrix filter which kind of changes the film grain and the kind of like greenish um kind of filter that you know is pulling that kind of matrix uh, aesthetic and you can turn that off to make it look more naturalistic um and it's just fucking amazing it feels like you're getting this brief glimpse into what video games are going to look like on these consoles in like three to four years. Like, I don't think we're gonna, it's going to be a while before we get there for a full-sized video game. Um, but it is incredibly cool. It's incredibly cool. I And honestly, the thing that blew me away maybe the most was how much they nailed the look of the Matrix movies. Uh-huh. Because we just rewatched those in 4K and... It, you're running around in the world and it looks like the first Matrix movie does. Like, they, there's something about how they figured out, like, the color timing and the grain field and everything that is just, like, an incredible, like, dead ringer for what the Matrix looks like. Even in that opening kind of, like, it's not a movie because I know it's real time, but the sort of movie segment they're cutting between footage from the first Matrix movie and, like, real-time graphic stuff... And even then, it's totally seamless, and that really blew me away. But yeah, it's all that stuff. I mean, it is incredibly dense, and the reflections are amazing, and just like... When I I was flying around, and I'm like, I saw a building way off in the distance, and I'm like, oh, that's a cool skybox. And I'm like, wait, can I go to that thing? And I went to that thing, and I'm like, this is really big. Like, honestly, like, that city might be bigger than, like, the open world in Halo Infinite. It's really big. Like, Yeah, it probably is. Like, I think it's it's probably even a little bit bigger than the open world in the Manhattan and Spider-Man. Um, like yeah, it is. It is a big, proper open world city environment. Yeah, and and the whole point of it is is that, um, that Unreal Engine Five can make big environments without as much like hands on. You know, yeah, um, it was, was a made 50, by a pretty small team. Yeah, it was like a fifty to seventy person team over the course of a couple of months making it. Yeah. Um, which is uh, fucking crazy. Right. So there. I mean, it's all showing off. It's a tech demo, right? Um, but yeah, the, the one game I know that is using Unreal Engine Five in its development right now is the next Gears of War. Mm-hmm. Um, they've they've confirmed that. That makes me want to upgrade to an Xbox Series X <laughs> because if you haven't played Gears Five, Gears Five was like one of the best looking games of the last generation, and um, the idea of them moving on to Unreal Engine Five makes me very excited because there's some cool stuff they could do with that. But I mean, anyone who's going to be using it, obviously, Unreal Engine Four is one of the main ways we all play games now, and um, so five in a couple of years will be the same kind of thing, you know? 
Yeah, because because also it should be stressed that like UE five isn't even like fully commercially available yet. Like some developers like the Coalition are have access to an in development version of UE five, and there are other developers that are making UE five games right now. But in terms of its broad availability, like it is still in development. It's like not a one engine yet. Um, it, that's another thing that is really impressive about this thing. Um, one one thing that I did realize in playing it is like this is how sixty frames per second dies on these consoles is like <laughs> this is not because because the, it has in in performances whatever on this because again it's not like a commercial game so they're not going to go through like intense optimization so it's like I'm sure that they could do things to make the performance better. Um, but it's just a tech demo, but it is definitely, I mean, it's targeting 30 frames per second and a lot of the stuff, like, I mean, in the big shootout spectacle sequence, it's actually very impressively maintaining 30 frames per second. There is a thing where, uh, in the open world, if you move very quickly and especially if you crash cars, um, it will cause the frame rate to tank. There's like a specific reason that the digital foundry guys go into. That's very interesting about why, like they kind of hack together a solution to allow the cars physics to interact in this way that like the engine tools are still in development for so they kind of fake it a little bit but that causes a huge performance hit um so there it's definitely not um a 60 frames per second thing but it could also be more optimized um if they spent more time on it and, and had the tools fully finished uh but it is definitely that thing of where you look at this and like okay yeah this is this is like a proper next generation leap. This is not a cross-gen game. Like even compared to stuff like Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart or Forza Horizon 5 that look incredibly impressive. Like this is on a different level completely. This is just like a different, this, this feels like if you could in like 2013, right? A little bit after the PS4 and Xbox One came out or like in mid 2014, if you could see like Red Dead Redemption 2 and play it for like five minutes, your mind would be completely blown because it's like, this is that kind of like, oh, you're seeing an actual next generation game that is taking advantage of this hardware and using next generation tools to render and build video game worlds in a way that is just not possible really on an Xbox One or PS4. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's very cool. So, I mean, definitely if you're interested in this at all and you have a PS5 or an Xbox, like download it. It's a fun, just glimpse into the future. Yes, and, and 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 you just it's very fun to just fly around to the camera and just go oh my god look yeah i can count all these dumb pebbles on this like rooftop and shit like that um yeah it's, you just do like beautiful slow panning e3 demo style shots it's very fun to play like yes. fake e3 demo man <laughs> yes i like that all right do you want to talk about halo infinite a little bit yeah let's talk about the halo infinite so we, we've talked about multiplayer a little bit, which has been in in kind of that open beta. Now the, the whole game is fully released, technically. So the campaign is out. The multiplayer has been updated a tiny bit, but most of the big updates to multiplayer are actually coming next week. They've announced we're getting playlists and some shifts in that kind of way. Um, but yeah, I've poured a lot of time into campaign. I have not been able to tear myself away from it. Um, so I am probably about two-thirds of the way through the game from what I know about it. Um, I'm curious how much time you've spent with it. I think I'm probably about halfway. The last thing the last thing I did was I think the the stuff that was in their original presentation where you like disable a bunch of anti air towers. Um, okay, I'm a little past that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, you're actually not that far from where I am then. Yeah, and I I gotta say I was y'all know I was skeptical about the Halo Infinite campaign because I was not that hot on the multiplayer from what we'd seen so far, um, and just this game has had a troubled development history as we know. But I have been 
blown off my fucking feet by this campaign. I think it's phenomenal. It's the most fun I've had with Halo since freshman year of college playing Halo Reach in my dorm. I, I adore it. I think it's phenomenal. Yeah, I'm a little bit mixed on it. Like, I think it is easily the best campaign that 343 has made. Like, it's not even really close. Um, but, like, I'm a little bit mixed on, like, specifically the open world stuff and, like, how that sort of changes the flow of, like, encounters and the kind of loss of more, like, designed elements in the more designed missions, at least so far, have not particularly been super impressive to me. Um, but the core, like, fundamentals of the game are incredibly fun, and, like, that part of it is really, really good. The rest of it feels a bit kind of, like, hacked together to me in a way to kind of get the game out the door. Um, and, and, and in that way, it kind of reminds me of the multiplayer. Like, the fundamental core is incredibly strong and is holding up, like, a framework that is very kind of limp. Yeah, I don't agree with that. I, I I can probably see where you're coming from when you talk about it more, but I I think it's great, and I think it is the foundation is just that good. It this game plays like an absolute fucking dream. Like the just basic gameplay loop of it is is as good as Halo's ever been, if not the best Halo's ever been. Um, I think the way the the weapons feel, the way movement feels, the campaign gives you this grapple hook, and I thought it was dumb in multiplayer, and I still think I don't know why you would put that in multiplayer, it has like no purpose, but in the campaign, it is this incredible multi-use tool that I'm just finding, still finding new ways to like integrate into my play style. Um, my, my brother said this the other night when we were talking about it, and I think he's right. There's, there's these videos people make online of, um, making fun basically of Halo 4 and 5, where they call it lore accurate Master Chief. And it's uh -huh. like, it's like the fight with the, the dude in the other playable character in Halo 5, whatever his name was. Spartan Um, Locke. yeah, Locke, Spartan Locke. And it's like, lore accurate fight. And it's basically referring to like Master Chief in the books is even more powerful than he is in like the games and stuff. And in the lore accurate fight, there wouldn't be a fight between Locke and Master Chief. Master Chief would just kill him in one hit. Yeah. And it kind of feels like that in this game. You have so many tools. The move specifically where you grapple into someone and then punch them in the face is like lore accurate Master Chief stuff. It's fucking hilarious. And I think they give you so many tools and so many creative ways to kind of use the sandbox and I just think this game understands something about Halo that 4 and 5 mostly missed, which is that kind of sandbox-style encounter where you come into a group of enemies and there's a lot, there's like an openness to it and a number of ways to approach it and a real kind of like chaos and fluidity that comes out of it. Like a little bit of like a chemistry set feel of like what's going to happen when I set things off in this way, in this encounter. And, but you have like more tools to approach a lot of that than ever before in terms of like the specific way they drop you into the world. And I've just had so much fun with it. And I found the difficulty like incredibly well balanced for that, where I am constantly being, I'm playing this on heroic. I'm feeling very, very challenged, but I'm feeling challenged in a way where I'm always rewarded by like dying and then trying it again in a new way. Um, I'm just having a ton of fun with it. And I really like the open world aspect of. Like, I, I think there's, there is a feeling that I feel like the open world could be more populated with some things to do, but the stuff that is there is so good and I think is so well-tuned to what I want out of a Halo campaign and what I think the, like, the combat of Halo is so good for, which is that kind of sandbox openness. Um, I'm, I'm really blown away with it. I, 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 it's, it's one of my favorite games of the year. Yeah, I think where I'm more mixed on it is... Like, I've, I feel like the grappling hook is the kind of game mechanic that is incredibly fun to use and is also very hard to build 
encounters and enemy designs that make it a thing that like is challenging if that makes sense like i'm because i'm actually finding the game very easy guys i'm playing it on heroic and i feel like the grappling hook is so ridiculously powerful it kind of reminds me of breath of the wild where there are a couple of mechanics in breath of the wild that like when you get your head around them trivialize huge sections of the game because it's so and they're it's like it's fun to do and it's like the dodge and stuff like that in breath of the wild but it then makes it that like once you get good at doing it and the grappling hook is one it is able to get you out of danger so quickly and two um especially if you fully upgrade it the like grapple punch is very fun and it decimates anything basically as long as there's not like a, a bunch of jackal snipers around you can basically win whole fights just by grapple punching dudes um and it's so there's something about like the open world stuff where i'm having fun with it because the core combat is really good but like the combat feels somewhat trivialized in a certain way because you can approach problems from so many different directions because it's just open and your tools are so effective like the battle rifle is so powerful over such a huge range as well that i'm finding like the game doesn't have a lot of tools to put pressure pressure or create friction for the player beyond spawning enemies around you suddenly with drop pods or bringing in a drop ship is like the only time i feel like i really get killed or if like a couple of the boss fights like the boss fight where you have to fight a gravity hammer dude who can kill you in one hit those are the only times i felt like pressured by the game or where the game's like created systems in designed areas to create friction on the player to force me to adapt like i found that element of the game very lacking for me Interesting. I, I have not felt that at all. I've, and I should say, we're kind of... I, I know a lot of people have been... And like I've seen this in some of the game journalism around the game talking about that the difficulty in this feels different than other ones. And like 343 has talked about how like they feel like they made this for normal, not for heroic, like in other Halo games. And so heroic, they feel like it's all notched up. And it is, I do think, the base difficulty of what's in the world is notched up from other Halo games. It has to be because of the number of like tools you have at your disposal, right? Um... But I, I don't know. I know I've found it like very invigorating and like I feel like I'm constantly sort of like there's a lot of like definitely trivial encounters in the world, but there's also a lot where I feel very on my toes. I stumbled into one today where I was going to find a Spartan core and there was this just one encounter with it was two normal brutes and then a like super heavy brute with like crazy armor. And that took me like 10 tries. And when I finally like pieced it together, I felt so cool because it was a mix of like using my drop shield and my um and and my um the the grapple hook to like get onto one of the vehicles the brute was using and then there was a rocket launcher in the world and i figured that there, there was just a lot that like i kind of put together there and i've had a lot of encounters like that where i just have a lot of fun going out into the world and, and figuring out what's available and what to do with it and um i know i found the difficulty very well tuned i like it a lot I feel like I have to force myself not to use the grappling hook in the battle rifle because I have yet to have encountered a thing that that does not solve. Uh, other than the gravity hammer brute was like the one thing yeah. where you would have to use a heavy weapon, obviously. But Right. Interesting. I mean, I do definitely, I use the battle rifle more than anything else in the game. To be fair, if you gave me the choice, that's what I would do in every other Halo game also. But yeah, yeah. and that's I think that's part of the thing is like in other Halo games, you don't have the choice because you have whatever weapons the level gives you, right? So it's like you're it's the it's the trade-off with an open world is like the, the other Halo campaigns are able to create designed experiences where they know what weapons are potentially available to the player and like how do the design encounters around that and for this you can use because of like the way they give you these like ammo boxes you can have a battle rifle for the entire game like it's it's 
you never are going to run out of ammo with that thing as long as you're like aware of like making sure you're constantly going to the kinetic ammo boxes and picking up more ammo um and so it is like the game never and that's where it like feels like the game doesn't give itself many tools to put like specific friction on players and it feels like i have to like force myself to say i need to use something other than the battle rifle or like i'm just going to get really burnt out on the combat in the game yeah, I haven't felt that. I, I I, mean, definitely you're right that you can string that together if you want, but I've definitely gone through stretches where, um, and I actually think the part with the, the, the anti-air guns is really good for this because it's open but also a little more designed because you're dropped into this part and you can't go out of it until you finish all of it, where I feel like I've been pushed up again because there's just been a lot of cases where I feel like I've gone with the weapons I start with, but then eventually I'll run out, but I'm like, I can't make it to that box in time, so I'm going to another weapon, and then kind of like stringing together with the tools at my disposal, and I've had a lot of fun with all of the aspects of that. So maybe we're just playing it a little differently, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, I've been very impressed with, I think, the way it, it it uses all of these tools at its disposal, and overall just, I, I have, I've been, every time, I, all the time I've spent not playing Halo Infinite, I've really kind of wanted to go back and play more of it. I've, I've really loved the campaign so far. Yeah, I think for me, again, it's a thing of where I think, like, the core fundamentals are incredibly fun, but I do kind of myself find myself wishing that it was a more traditional Halo campaign underneath the the rest of it. Especially because yeah. when you... Because there is, like, I think an issue where the game... Again, I'm only halfway through, and I know that, like, the world that I see is, like, the whole open world. But so far, like, also, all of the design campaign missions have only been inside Forerunner structures that all look the same. And, like, that element of the game has also been, like, a little... I wish that there was more variety to the game. And it wasn't just, here's, like, your Pacific Northwest Halo, outdoor Halo environment, and now here's your Forerunner interior. And that's kind of outside of, like, the first level of the game, which is really cool. That's kind of, like, all the game has. Um, like, visually and kind of stylistically. And I was really... I've really, like, jonesing for... Give me, like something else give me a covenant ship give me like right. a snowy tundra give me you know your like broader variety of halo style environments that's fair and i see that and and i guess for me it's just i i enjoy the combat and all of that element of it enough and the the i love the whole just the way you go around the world and like you know i i've just had a lot of those fun experiences that to me are like so core to how i remember like halo back in the day where like something unexpected will happen and i think the open world does a good job of encouraging that like my first night playing the game, I'm on my way to clear out one of the um, like big enemy strongholds or something. And on my way to that, I find a group of Marines and I save the Marines and they have one of those warthogs that has like the four openings in the back for them. It's like a transport mm -hmm. warthog. And I, we all get in the warthog together and then we drive to the mission and we're all fighting it together. And there's just things like that that I think is very cool in the open world and stumbling upon that. Um and, I mean, there are campaign missions that, that don't happen in interiors. There's ones that also send you to, like, parts of the map specifically. There's the whole stuff with the AA guns. Um, there's the part of the tower, yeah, that sort of thing. But, like, again, I'm saying that, like, there's only two environments in the game, right? Yeah. There's forerunner structures, and then there's the open world. <laughs> the Halo. Halo, yeah. Halo, the second level of a Halo 1 environment. Yeah. I mean, the basic pitch of this game is that it is level 2 of Halo Combat Evolved, but as a full game. Yes, yeah, so it's like and, a 30-hour thing. Yeah, and I'm fine with it. I, I like that. I think it's really cool. I really love this the whole idea of it and how the, it's executed. Um, it, it works for me not 100%. There are definitely things I would add or change, but it, it works for me very well. Um, and there's just a lot of like little things where... And maybe it's because I have set the bar very low for 343 at this point, but just how much I think it captures a lot of the feeling and atmosphere of Halo for me. Like 
one of the number one things they got right this time is the music. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah. music sounds like Halo. And I don't know how else to describe it than it sounds like Halo. It's not that they're constantly reusing compositions from Marty O'Donnell. Um, there's definitely like uses of that. It actually uses the Halo theme, which was not in Halo 4 or 5 for some fucking reason. Um, but they use it here. The, and I mean by the Halo theme, like the Mjolnir mix. What do you call it? The Like the main big... Yeah I, yeah, I think yeah, the Mjolnir theme, yeah, yeah, um, that thing. There's always they've always used the Halo menu music, which is the like choral thing, but they've never used like four or five. Do not use the actual like Master Chief, you know, Mjolnir theme. Um, but just the like the way the instrumentation is and that the music is very atmospheric and all of that um, works for me very very well. Yeah, all that stuff in the game is very good. Like I have some issues with like the the sort of execution of the art style. Um, that we've talked about because I think that stuff is present in the the multiplayer as well. But like the yeah. approach to the art style is right, and like yes. the approach to the music is right, and the execution on the music is incredibly good. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that like it is. It's like retroactively incredibly frustrating that like you didn't do this for Halo Four and Five, right? Yes. That like Halo Four incredibly unnecessarily made changes to things that 343 never needed to change like like 343 should and needs to put its own stamp on what halo is and i like respect that and understand that and like that's a good thing um and i think the the idea of doing an open world halo is a good idea even if i have some issues with the execution here um and those kinds of changes i think are smart but like halo 4 deciding let's like completely redesign the way that spartan armor looks to make it look like generic early 2010s like action sci-fi transformers whatever like the new power rangers like that kind of aesthetic was always bad ditching the music even though i again as a soundtrack i like the soundtrack to halo 4 i don't like how it's implemented in the game and it doesn't really register as halo it's like stylistically not halo um and so that like those kinds of things of where you're taking away the like aesthetic elements of the franchise that are symbolic were so i think like uh, toxic to those games and made it where it's like it's was hard to enjoy them as halo games in a way that like this one is one i can enjoy as a halo game like when i look at the master chief in this game i see the fucking master chief i don't see a big weird like football man which is what he looks like in halo 4 and 5 um and it's like even though the one i don't like the shoulders they made the shoulder pieces on the Mjolnir mark 6 armor very bulky that's the only thing i have an issue with with his modern design other than <laughs> that his like their execution of master chief's look is excellent right their execution of the like way the covenant look is really good the covenant look like an updated version of what they look like in the bungee games rather than they got these like very gnarly redesigns um in four and five that felt like they're trying to go for the halo reach thing but halo reach had like a motivated narrative reason for why they made the covenant more gnarly because that was like your kind of oh we don't really know how to fight these things it's like making them scary they speak alien language in reach and so it works for that game in a way that four and five it doesn't make any sense they would go with that approach um, and yeah. so all those kinds of things and the design of the weapons right they got rid of the ugly ass redesigned battle rifle from four and five and went back with like a very halo 2 faithful um battle rifle design uh they went inexplicably with a halo reach version of the assault rifle also that that choice i don't fully understand but at least it is you know it looks like the assault rifle like they the new weapons fit real well with the halo aesthetic all that stuff is really on point and it is a thing that then makes me look at Halo 4 and Halo 5 even more angrily and be like, why would you have done this? And it's like, we spent fucking 10 years 
fucking around with this awful looking, awful sounding version of Halo just to eventually 10 years later go back to the shit that works. Like, why did we have to take this incredibly weird convoluted path just to get back to Halo again? I think it's it's this weird thing where I feel like, you know, I don't need or want it to just be clones of the Bungie games. And I think Halo Infinite isn't just a clone of the Bungie yeah. games. I think 343 had this weird idea that the way to do their version of Halo was to like change all the signifiers of what Halo looked and sounded like. And that's wrong. It's the kind of stuff that Halo Infinite does, which is like some of their mechanical design. This game, like most of the weapons are new and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like that's leaving your stamp on Halo. The way like, and I think this game does a much, much, much better version of like the you always have aim down sights than Halo 5 did. Um, stuff like that. Or again, the whole open world structure. Like that's cool ways to leave your stamp on it. Um, I do think there's the, I think the enemy set in this game is phenomenal. And it's honestly, it's the most full version of like the covenant enemies we've had outside of Halo Reach, I guess, because yeah. one doesn't have the brutes, three doesn't have the elites, and then Reach has all of them, I guess. But this one has properly all of the covenant enemies in it again, yeah. which is great. And you do realize, like, on the one level, it is a complete and total, like, um, testament to how bad 343 fucked the pooch on the storytelling that we're just now back to. We're fighting the yes. Covenant. But Halo campaign was designed to fight the Covenant. Like, I have also said this about Gears of War. When you play Gears of War 4, it's a little boring that the the whole thing is that, we, we didn't actually destroy the Locust. We're fighting the Locust again. But also then you play and you're like... Right, but all the Gears of War weapons are about fighting these big fucking meat sack things. Like, you kind of need the locust enemies because that's what this whole thing was designed around. And I kind of feel that here too of like, yeah, if you're going to keep doing Halo, I actually, I would, I so prefer this to them trying to make their stupid robot enemies the the fucking sucked in Halo 4 and 5 and were no fun to fight. I consistently enjoy fighting the Covenant in this because that's what Halo is, damn it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think you can do new enemy types, like, because new enemy types have been introduced over the course of Halo and been very good, right. and there are some new enemy types that I've run into in Halo Infinite um, that are good. So, I mean, I've only seen them in one campaign level, but, like, that encounter was good and, like, it worked, um, and they were better designed, certainly, than the Prometheans were. Um, so it's like, you can do and should do new enemy types, like... New enemy types, again, I mean, every Halo game introduced new kinds of enemies uh, back in the Bungie day. They didn't just sit on the exact same right. three enemies the entire time, um, or four enemies with the Hunters. Um, and so, yeah, so, like, the problem with 4 and 5 was that the Prometheans were awful. And 5 does the best it can, having finished, you know, replaying through 5's campaign, of making them better, because they are better overall in 5 than they were in 4. But even then, like, they're... I mean, they're aesthetically very ugly. They're aesthetically hard to read, um, which was a big problem. And then they're like, you know, enemies that teleport suck, uh, especially if you can't do anything to stop them from teleporting. That was like, that is one of the worst parts about those enemies is they're very bullet spongy. Yeah. They can just teleport wherever the fuck they want. Um, it's yeah. very hard to tell when, like, you're getting to them, right? Yes. Like, with, with, with this, you know, and this game actually does a really good job with the visual design of, like, shooting off a brute's helmet, and then you've got mm -hmm. its head, or the elite, when their shield comes down. Like, I've found Halo Infinite is, there's some things about the game I don't love visually. It is extremely readable in combat in a way 343 has never achieved. Um, yeah. And they're not reinventing the wheel, but they're just doing it very well on that level. So, 
Yeah. And, you know, at least, and I will say on a narrative level, at least in this game, I understand who these Covenant are and why they're there. Like, this is a splinter kind of. group. They're the bad, okay, it's good enough yeah. for me in this game. It's, uh-huh. it's, they, and they, they even talk about, like, we were under the, the, you hear them in their transmissions talking about how much they hate the Covenant and they're this splinter group and stuff. Whereas, if you asked me to tell you who the Covenant are in 4 and 5 that we're fighting, I could, you put a gun to my head, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I don't know who they are. Yeah, I mean, there is an element of this game that is like, we have to dangle these shiny keys over here so you forget about half of the shit that happened in 4 and 5, where the Prometheans, what's happened to the Warden Eternal, like, at least, like, the Cortana thing is, like, a part of the plot of this game. What happened to all the other AIs? Because the whole end of Halo 5, if you've forgotten, as I had before I finished replaying that game about a week ago is that Cortana goes evil in what is, especially in a uh, post-TV Game of Thrones world, a very ugly version of that trope that is a bad trope of, like, the the girlfriend who goes psychotic or whatever and wants to take over the universe. It's it's bad. Um, And it makes me sad that they made Jen Taylor do such awful dialogue in that game. Um, But she goes evil because she's an AI and she's a lady. Um, And so the lady goes evil eventually because she's too emotional. Um, And then she she takes over the mantle of responsibility which is something that the forerunner had but the forerunner's race actually took it from the precursors but the librarian of the forerunners thought that the humanity will eventually take over the mantle of responsibility for the galaxy and the one thing that is a, a beautiful thing about halo infinite is that nobody says the word mantle ever because i'd never really understood yes. what the fuck it was and it was some bad <laughs> vague just like undefinable stupid concept um, but basically, Cortana goes crazy and she wants to take over the galaxy to, like, bring law and order. Um, and to do that, she is going to lead the Created, which is the forerunner name for artificial intelligences. And it basically just turns into Mass Effect, but in a very confusing, very sudden kind of way of where it's about artificial life versus organic life, which has never particularly been a theme in Halo ever. No. And it's and, and it's not to say that you couldn't introduce that theme, but you have to introduce that theme. You can't just plop that theme in the middle of your the fifth game of the franchise which is actually the sixth or seventh game of the franchise um and so the the cliffhanger was that she had assembled a fleet of giant warships called guardians um that are like giant evil robot faces um and she's basically taken most of the ais as we understood it that the unsc had that are now all obeying her and she's got the prometheans and she's going to wipe out humanity then halo wars 2 happens and something happens in that game i don't know what it is but that's where the banister from a bunch of books happened, and now Cortana is dead. There is a Zeta Halo. Uh, Prometheans yeah, so are somewhere. The AI are somewhere. Um, let's talk and about Master this. Chief's stuck here fighting some brute dude. That's yeah. not the brute dude at the beginning of the game. For yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about this, Sean. Because so here's the thing. I I find the macro level storytelling of Halo Infinite as baffling as you would describe it just there, right? Uh-huh. But on a micro level, minute to minute, I think it's got very good writing. And I like the characters, and I like all of that a lot. And we'll talk about that in a second. I do think it's funny what it's doing on a macro level, because it is basically a soft reboot of Halo, where you have a new sort of version of the Covenant, you have a new Halo. It's kind of like Halo 1, where you're coming in in the middle of a war we are losing, uh, and the Chief has to sort of rally everyone. So it is a soft reboot in that approach, but it is a semi-sequel to Halo 5, it's really a sequel to the Halo 6 that was never made because uh-huh. like all of the stuff from Halo 5 was resolved off screen in other games. It very much feels like there's a Halo 6 we didn't play, which I'm fine with because if Halo 6 is a sequel to Halo 5, I don't want to play it. 
Um, so we have jumped ahead, and this is like Halo 7 or 8 or something, and we are in the middle of a new thing. And, you know, on some level, like, this all does make sense because... Honestly, the Halo Infinite story is probably going to be even more compelling to people who have not played 4 and 5, like, because Uh this game is trying to bring back in a bigger audience and, like, probably a new audience to Halo as well. And I do think the story is overall welcoming to newcomers. It is... I've seen people talk about, like, some of the baffling things in it, and I'm like... It's really only baffling if you haven't, if, if like you've played all of Halo and are wondering how they're connecting the dots. Because otherwise, it's a sort of like in medias res opening where there has been this, and it's fairly clear, there was a conflict around Zeta Halo, Cortana, evil Cortana, and the Banished did something. There's been a war, it's been going on for six months, the chief wakes up, the pilot wakes him up, and they go down and they're fighting. Like, and that's fine, but it is if you're trying to connect the dots to Halo 5, it's it's hard and it's kind of funny in that way. And I don't even care that much because Halo 5 is bad and I'm glad they abandoned most of that. Um, the thing it reminds me of is the Star Wars sequels of like... Yeah. Because I, I think my issue with this is that I think in the moment to moment a lot of the writing of the game is like fairly effective. But I just can't bring myself to care about it because I just feel like... I have no idea what is going on, actually. Like, it, it, that's the feeling of, like, you're dangling keys somewhere over here. And it's that se- sequel thing of, like, I just don't... Like, the First Order in the Resistance concept for the sequel trilogy just had, has never made any sense. And it is just a way to try to replicate the conflict that existed in the thing that you liked. Even if, like, that conflict was resolved. Like, we Master Chief defeated the Covenant. Like, we won that war... And there's like this sense of like we like of why is any why is this story being told at all like just like I can't care about it because I especially like having just replayed those games and finding like as simple as it is the story of like the Bungie trilogy like very effective and the climax effectively to Master Chief's story there so good that it's just like I just I just cannot bring myself to care about the story they're trying to tell. No, and, and again, I would compare it to, and I would encourage people to play if they're interested, Gears of War 4 and 5, which sort of have to do the same thing of realizing that you can't just sort of abandon, like, the whole enemy set of Gears of War and keep making those games. So it's not that they just use the Locusts from 1, 2, 3. They invent a lot of new stuff as well. But they realize that you kind of have to do something related to Gears of War to keep moving it forward. But the stories, particularly 4 is pretty simple, but then particularly 5 very much leans into the idea of there having been a conflict that one generation thought they ended and then it didn't end and it's on another generation and like that is a thing that those games like deal with very Mm -hmm. much in the text and of course this new halo series by 343 has been so scattershot there's they they couldn't make that part of the text if they wanted to at this point right like i mean you can't with the master chief as the main character like i just no, that's true yeah you have like they I think to get me to care, you honestly, you have to stop using the Master Chief because it's just like he's a character that doesn't make any sense to me anymore in the like the broader context of Halo. Yeah. And it's like I really wish they had just left let him I've, left to be on ice at the end of Halo 3. I've definitely thought about this a little bit. Like there's a version of let's say 4 and 5 never existed and 343 was rebooting the series after 10 years away. Halo 3, Halo Reach was the end for a while, right? Mm-hmm. What if Halo Infinite was did the Halo Reach thing where you had one Spartan that you like custom created yes. and that was your character in both campaign and multiplayer and in this open world and like all the cosmetics you get in both just carried over and how much that would encourage you to play across both of them and all of that? That would seem like the way you would want to do this, right? 
Yes, that is what I would what I would do. Like it, it is the, the, the continuing on the tradition from Reach, where you collapse the like character customization and all of that across every mode available in the game. Especially for like a big free to play game like this, it would have made yeah. a lot of sense. I mean, obviously they're stuck, right? And and it is um, when I was making this the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Another point of comparison with this game to me is the Last Jedi. Of like, there's only so much it can do. You know, there's only so much the Last Jedi could do with the broader world building right. it was given. And the biggest flaws of that movie, it's in like a narrative sense, all has to do with things that are not that movie's fault. And that's kind of how I feel about Halo Infinite. Like, yeah. It's like, because, it's not your fault. Like, you were dealt a shit hand, but, like, yeah, it, it was a really shit fucking hand for this one. No, but but that's what I mean by the macro versus the micro, because I say all of that, but in the moment-to-moment playing the game, I love how the Chief is written here. He is so much better written than in mm-hmm. Halo 4 or 5. Like, they get... I think they nail the Chief's voice. Not just, like, the tacitern, like, he speaks in three to four word sentences, which they do very well. But also, like, I think Steve Daines gets a lot of room within those short sentences to emote. I think there is a moment with the pilot around the midpoint of the game that is very special. And I think this game understands that the the chief is taciturn, but he is a very empathetic person. He, like, does care about other people. He does not look down on other soldiers. He has a very, like, he wants to, like, be around helping people. There's something about that that I think they understand that's very good. And I think the most special thing about the game is the not Cortana that is in your head that I guess they're calling the weapon, but I'm going to call her not Cortana. And I think the writing on that character, who is, like, a like new, chipper, baby version of Cortana, and I particularly think Jen Taylor's performance is so fucking ludicrously good. Um, that has carried... Like, that stuff is is just fantastic. And I really love particularly the work Jen Taylor is doing in this is... I mean, Jen Taylor is a great actress, not surprising, but this feels like the first game 343 has made. Well, she's good in 4, I just it, stuff in there annoys me. Yeah. In 5, she has to read the worst dialogue in the world. In this, I feel like she's getting a chance to really act, and I love that. Yeah, it's definitely better. It's like not blowing my mind or anything, but it's a lot better than 4 and 5, and it's, it, is, it is like nice. Like it is, it is Halo-ish in how it is written, um, yeah. and I enjoy that. Yeah. So anyway, we should probably wrap this up because we've got a lot of Gundam to talk about. But any other thoughts on on Halo Infinite for now? There's two other th- things I want to point out. Is one, I I'm sure there will be a point in the story where this will make some kind of sense. But right now, the choice of having the prologue of the game end with a brute chieftain dropping Master Chief out into space saying this is the last face you'll ever see after he's kicked the shit out of the, the master chief and then having the primary antagonist so far in the story be a brute chieftain that is not that brute chieftain is the most inexplicable like narrative choice i have seen in a story in a long long fucking time it is confusing me I, i'm not sure what point in development that got messed up but it is very weird yes that's very weird and then also i i can't tell if i love this or hate this but there is the most random, weird-ass open-world objective that is just ripped straight out of Far Cry into a game that is in a setting that is nothing like Far Cry. And it's the propaganda towers that... that have oh, I the, fucking love it! They're hilarious! It makes no sense! Why are there propaganda towers? Like, what are they doing? Why are they setting up propaganda towers on this fucking super weapon? Are like the, the little text box that pops up that's like, oh, and they're, like, psychologically oppressing the Marines or something? And it's like, you gotta go destroy the propaganda towers. Like, it's a Far Cry game. It, like, the open world objectives in this game are the most, like, generic. We just looked at, 
we looked over at our left at Far Cry, picked five objectives at random. One of them happened to be a propaganda thing, and we just threw it into Halo Infinite without really thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, in general, I wish the open world had a, a few more objective types. I think you could get more creative with it. I'm very curious what they do with this game with, like, DLC and stuff, because I think there's a lot of potential. Um, the propaganda towers, though, what I like about them, and this is something I wanted to mention, is I think the, like, chatter writing among mm -hmm. the grunts and the elites and all of that stuff, and your marines is really good. Yes. Like, it is, it is like, Bungie-esque. I love to just sit and listen to the crazy enemy and, and your Marines, too. And 343, I don't think, has even fucking attempted that in their games. So Halo I'm really glad to see Halo 4 has the Covenant have speak alien languages like they did in Reach, which, right. was, yeah. which made no sense at all. Yeah, 5, they, they so. have, like, character parks, but they're not interesting. Yes, like, that. they definitely get that sense of goofiness. I think the propaganda machines are... And there's a little bit more of this in this game that, like, there's a, maybe a little bit too wink-wink, nudge-nudge at the camera to me, almost, that, like, <laughs> it just... The, the writing itself is funny, and Joseph Staten, you know, they brought him back to do... to, like, finish up this game, so I wonder if he was just like, look, if I'm gonna bring this game home, you got... I gotta have my, like, 50, like, I am John Galt speeches, but I'm a fucking grunt. Like, you gotta give me that, or I'm not coming back to finish this game. <laughs> If that was, like, the terms, then it makes some kind of sense. In any other yeah. scenario, I cannot imagine how they came up with the idea that the Banished would have put up propaganda radio towers on Zeta Halo is a completely insane idea. I, but, you know, I love that the Covenant are just kind of fucking insane, and it's fun. But, yeah, anyway, I'm enjoying it. I like this game a lot. Uh, and I will say, I have given multiplayer more of a chance since this, and, again... You should never play a game's multiplayer before you play the campaign. That's just fucking rule of first-person uh -huh. shooters, right? Um, but the game put the multiplayer out first, so it's its fault. I do enjoy the multiplayer more having gotten to know the guns and stuff in campaign because the guns are very different than in other Halo games other than, like, your main trio of, like, the assault rifle, the battle rifle, and the pistol. And getting to know those and then going back into multiplayer, I've had more fun in multiplayer. There's still stuff I don't like. I don't love the maps in multiplayer. I don't... Um, I still don't love the free-to-play stuff, but... They are introducing playlists next week for Slayer yes. and SWAT and all Fine. of that. And I feel like I am excited to dig into that because I feel like it'll... I, I will be able to gauge if the multiplayer works for me much better once mm -hmm. it has playlists. The playlists are the thing that is missing most in multiplayer right now. I think it's fair to say. Yes. No, I haven't touched the Halo to the multiplayer in like two weeks. I think I played one match after the last podcast we recorded and got immediately put into a one-flag CTF match that half the people in it quit immediately and that's like the fifth time i think that has happened to me um and it's like i like i when the game is good like i enjoy it i wish it was more like more classic multi halo multiplayer in terms of the weapon sandboxes like usage i like the weapons themselves it's just like i don't i think the balance is a little bit misguided in in the way they're put they design maps doesn't use weapons in the way that it is it was done in the classic halo games but like like with the campaign the core foundation is so good that i would normally have played a lot more of this campaign or the of the multiplayer like when i booted up halo 5 i was shocked to see i was level 17 in that multiplayer which isn't super high but i played a decent amount of that multiplayer over the course of like the one or two weeks i played it um and i would have certainly played more of this than halo 5 because i think the multiplayer is quite a bit better than what halo 5's was at launch um, but with the one huge glaring exception that you can't play the game types that you're interested in playing. Um, you just have to give get whatever you've been yeah. given, and that is awful, and it felt like pulling teeth. It's extremely frustrating. So, yes, getting 
a full playlist, the fact that we're getting Slayer and my beloved Free For All, because that was kind of has always been yes. my main playlist. Um, going back, I'm to excited to do days. that. Yeah, I'm yeah. very excited. And, and my beloved SWAT, SWAT's my favorite. So, no, I'm looking forward to trying all of that. And I will say, from what I've played the last week, Sean, the multiplayer feels like it's been much like better populated and everything to me. Like I've had some, I've had really competitive matches where like it's not a blowout on either side. I've had a lot of those. Um, the one thing I will just say right now is that the PC version of Halo Infinite is an absolute broken nightmare mess, mm -hmm. and that's not getting a lot of coverage. But it is like my brother basically can't play the game. Um, it's such a broken nightmare mess. We cannot play it together because his um, game crashes in the middle of multiplayer matches every single time. It's it's not it's not working, and I would like them to uh, fix that. And I do think there's a larger discussion to be had about Xboxes. We're going to launch on 25 platforms every single game. Not always going to work, Xbox. Um, maybe maybe delay the PC versions if if they're not ready for prime time. Yeah, yeah. But for now, you want to talk some Gundam? For now, Jonathan, let's talk about some Gundam. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wacky, the wonderful, this time the very delightful world of Gundam. <laughs> what will certainly be the happiest uh, episode of Weekly Suit Gundam yet, uh, because we are finishing up our discussion of Mobile Suit Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans by diving into the second season, episodes 26, to the final episode, episode 50. And, you know, I thought it was real touch and go there at the end, but luckily, Jonathan, you know, it's just it's just happy everybody lives, we all go home, and it's just like everyone becomes friends, and, and I was crying at the end of it, but they're all just tears of joy. Okay, so spoiler warning for this episode, obviously, if you haven't watched it yet, um, we're going to spoil the fact that, three, two, one, everyone fucking dies. Um, just this show looking Tomino square in the eye and going, oh, kill, kill them all, Tomino? Yeah? Yeah? Well, we're good. Yeah, we'll show you, Tomino. Here's the thing, Sean. If I can dive into my quick shot reaction to this season really quick. Yeah, go ahead. On paper... This is by far the darkest Gundam show because it has the highest body count. It's the only show where the main characters die. All of that stuff, right? Yeah, and where the main characters die and like definitively lose the large-scale conflict yes. of the show and the antagonist survives through to the end of the show. All that being said, I actually... One of the things that impressed me most, and I loved this season, I think this is top-shelf Gundam, I think yep. this is one of this franchise's finest hours, all of that. I don't think this is the darkest Gundam show. I don't think that I do think something like Victory is still a mm -hmm. darker show in its worldview and where it leaves you than and I was saying this on Twitter yesterday trying to voice this thought before we got on the podcast, but that because Iron Blooded Orphans looks so unblinkingly at the darkness of the world it is examining and that that world resembles our world very closely in a lot of I think it's political and like economic situations. Um, when it does go for moments of real like hope and, and forward looking, I think it is more hopeful and meaningful in what it does than a lot of other shows, including a lot of other Gundam shows in the end. Um, I do think this is a show that ends on a note of relative optimism for mm -hmm. what can be accomplished in a fallen world. And I think if you told me on paper this is going to end with everyone dying and them like definitively losing the conflict, I would have said, well, that's going to be dark and depressing. 
And it is dark and depressing in some ways, but it is also uplifting in a lot of other ways because it is very, very affirmational about the meaning of the lives these characters lived and the impact of the sacrifices they have. Whereas if I look at something like Victory Gundam, the leads of Victory Gundam survive to the end of Victory Gundam. Like the top three people on the call sheet, like Uso, Shakti, and Miss Marbit, like live the show, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone else dies, but they live. Um, but, like, that show ends on a note of, like, a lot of these deaths mean nothing, this conflict solved nothing, and the world is kind of fucked up and broken. Like, that is as close as Yoshiyuki Tomino gets to fucking nihilism in his work, is Victory Gundam. And I would say it's easy to make the comparison between this and Victory Gundam because they're the most death-heavy Gundams. But I would say this show's outlook is kind of diametrically opposed to something like that. And I think it's one of the things that makes this such an impressive and thematically and emotionally rich work yeah and i 100 percent agree with that that broad analysis of where it's one of the things that very much comes from the tradition of the creative team the super peace busters um that it is you know it has this very expertly done melodramatic quality of like a truly expertly done melodrama isn't a thing that is just sad it is a thing that is a mix of such powerful and complicated and often like conflicting and contradictory emotions that you know gets you in the gut and rips you to pieces um and like makes you it like grabs its, its fist into your stomach and makes you feel all these things you need to feel but does it in order to explore really interesting narrative and thematic ideas which is what this show does and what i would say shows like anohana um that they got famous for do as well um, and that it is it, it is the thing that makes this show like easily the one that makes me tear up the most of like of almost any other TV show I've, I've honestly seen outside of Gundam or anything like this. This emotionally hits me in a way that honestly, I think the only other stuff that is kind of like this to me is a show like Anohana and Anohana has like personal stuff in it that hits really close to home to me that, you know, I've never been a child soldier. So that that part doesn't really hit me in, right. this, uh, in the way that if I was, maybe it would. Um, but like the core emotional ideas and the journey you go on with the characters it is filled with this sense of like loss and sadness but also hope and happiness and the show does end ultimately on a relatively hopeful note right obviously there you you wish that you could have had you know orga and mika live and and be victorious and all that stuff and and you're wanting that is what makes taking that away from you a very powerful narrative move but the note that the show ends on and chooses to end on is one that like embraces like humanity in its complexities and in with a hopeful outlook towards like the future for if not you know the people that Tekadon lost along the way the people that Tekadon that survived through and the legacy they leave behind um survives and and like their history whether it is remembered by the broader you know solar system or whatever in earth and all that whether or not their history is forgotten by those people there are like their lives and the lives they lived live on through the people who survived them and the the planet that they lived on on mars and the scars of that planet like that notion is powerful and hopeful to yes. me in a way that as you say hits so hard because it feels like it comes from an honest place not a place of like cheap sentiment but of like real earned like this is what it is and this is what we can have um and that is powerful because it is real that's the kind of hope that can exist in our world right yeah. you know like if you are hoping for the 
there's the one big bad we have to go kill and then everything will be okay. That's a false fight. And the arc of season two of Iron Blood Orphans to me is Tekadon thinking they are going on in one fight and ultimately realizing that was the wrong, stupid, unwinnable fight. But the thing is, they do very definitively win the fight that matters, which is the mm -hmm. fight to survive and have lives, right? Not all of them do. Mika dies for that. Orga dies for that. But Tekadon wins that fight. And that is, like, I, I think the, the hopefulness that, that does exist in this show and is stunningly beautiful. But, I, you know, before we dive into all of it, Sean, I do just have to say, I said this on Twitter the other day, I am once again in absolute fucking awe of your ability to have these conversations with me and not even vaguely hint at what's mm -hmm. to come. I don't know how I would have done a sh podcast on Iron Blood Orphan season one, knowing what season two is, and not dropping it, like, and not even just gesturing. I don't know if we, I would be doing it on accident, but like, how do you do it, Sean? Because you've also, you did multiple episodes at the start of the show where you didn't tip your hand that new types were a thing. Uh -huh. You've done, you did two episodes of Double O without saying that Setsuna is going to become a metal boy. I'm very impressed at your ability to do this, Sean. I just want to say that. Honestly, this one was not as hard as the new type one. That was the hardest yeah. of like, because imagine this now, Jonathan, with everything you've done. Imagine talking to someone about Gundam. And they and they've never heard the term new type, but they're watching the TV show. Like it's like yes. it's so hard not to bring it up because it's like for classic Gundam, like it's just an omnipresent idea. Uh, but you know, it obviously wasn't introduced until near the end of that original show. So we went through like I think three full episodes of what we'll see of Weekly Zoo Gundam without the word new type ever being able to be brought up, and that was insane. Um, yeah, no, this one was, I, I think if you go back and listen to the last podcast we do that we did, I think there are a couple of moments where I have to stop and very carefully choose my words. I don't know if you'd be able to tell or not, but I definitely remember a couple of moments with talking about McGillis and a couple of moments talking about Mika of like having to stop myself to, be like, to make sure I don't say anything that like, I think with Mika of like making sure don't talk about the fact that like his entire body gets destroyed in the second season. He spends most of the second season being unable to physically walk. Um, it's like an right. important thing not to give away. Uh, and I almost said it, I think at the end when we were talking about him kill like destroying his fucking left arm and eye in the Barbados scene at the end of season one. Uh, I almost, I almost fucked up that one, but I, I pulled it out. No, very impressive. Uh, and I'm happy about that. One other thing I wanted to say is that I had a realization last night as I was I was heading into a movie actually, and I was thinking about Iron Blooded Orphans because it was just that that ending is so powerful it's on my uh -huh. mind, and I realized, Sean, we have now I have now seen all of the Gundam that was out when we mm -hmm. started Weekly Suit Gundam, because what we have left that I have not seen is Divers and Rerise, and Divers One was airing while we started this show. Yeah. So I have now seen all of the Gundam that was out when we did Weekly Suit Gundam Episode 1. And that thought fucking, like, it, it hits me in the feels, I gotta say. Yeah, I mean, you've, you have seen all the Gundam that, that I had seen other than the first two episodes of Gundam Build Divers, which I had, did an aborted attempt to watch that show. And then it was like, I can't do that and do watch other Gundams for Weekly Suit Gundam right. at the same time. So you've, yeah, you are now where I was when we recorded the first episode of Weekly Suit Gundam. Yeah, there's a couple that we have not gotten to on the show that I have seen, like the Origin and Thunderbolt, but I have seen those. So, fucking crazy, isn't it? Um, this show, 42 episodes, uh, just about two and a half years, because this is December of our of our third, so we're at the two and a half year mark. Um, we got here, Sean. We did it. We got to the place we were we were always trying to get to. 
Yeah, but but we can't ever stop, Jonathan. We have to keep no. going because, you know, as long as we keep going forward, the road will continue forever. And I'll be waiting for you at the end. I feel like we need now to I'm, stop the podcast now. <laughs> yeah, now I'm, Sean, now I'm imagining you dead on the ground with blood going out from your finger pointing towards, like, watch divers, Jonathan, my last order. Oh, my God. Tomarin Janezo. <laughs> anyway, Sean, this show is really fucking good. The, yeah, Iron Blood Orphans is incredible, um, and uh, this is the third time I've watched this show, um, and it is one of my favorite Gundams for sure. And it just every time I've watched it, it's hit even harder. This time, hit me like a fucking sack of bricks right in the, the emotional yeah. heart because it is I, so I, powerful. And I think particularly like the last time I watched Iron Blooded Orphans was a little bit before I had um, actually like taught classes and so like i have done several years now of like working closely with a lot of children obviously that are not in nearly from a background as um tragic um as this but from like impoverished and like unstable or abusive family situations and like that like makes this show the last eight episodes in particular were very hard to watch um in a good way but in a like oh my god Right, I have to take a, like a ten-minute cat internet video break or something between each episode of Iron Blood Orphans just to sort of like you know reset the palette a little bit to yeah. before I dive into another one. It is, it's interesting. You know, this show is the most different of all the AU Gundams. Like, it is by mm -hmm. far the one that is like, if I were to just recommend one AU Gundam to someone who doesn't, and like, what you need, like, what would you, what one could you watch without having seen any other Gundam? I think Iron Blood Orphans is probably the best pick for that because. I would also point you to something like Double O, but Double O also, I think, benefits a lot from knowing, like, hey, that's the voice of Amuro, you know? Uh -huh. Like, that's a lot of fun to it. But at the same time, Iron-Blooded Orphans, what it is doing is taking a lot of core ideas from Gundam and the mech, the version of the real robot mech genre that Gundam spawned, and taking those ideas more seriously than ever before, you know? Yeah. I, I said this on Twitter, it's not quite that Iron-Blooded Orphans is the Watchmen of the mecha genre, because honestly, original Gundam is the Watchmen of the mecha uh -huh. genre, but I do think Mikazuki might be the Dr. Manhattan of the mecha genre, in that, like, he is to the Amuro archetype what I think Dr. Manhattan is to the Superman archetype, which is, like, the nth degree version of this thing, and is very off-putting in interesting ways because of that. And I do think it is consistently exploring really foundational ideas to Gundam pushed to extremis, you know, of yeah. like, this is not just a kid who gets in a Gundam. This is a world where kids are made to get into Gundams, you know, like this is a world of child soldiers. This is not just like, you know, you have your Frau Bo archetype and she kind of has a crush on him. This is Atra is a girl who came out of sexual servitude, has found this family, and is also actively thinking about things like, baby making you know and uh -huh. stuff like that like you know mcgillis is char but also like a char who has to confront his own fucking stupidity at a certain point you know mm -hmm. um there's just a lot of that kind of thing that i think you know this is disconnected from gundam in some ways and that it is it, it certainly there is an auteur voice to this thing as we've talked about with the super peace busters that comes in very strong but it is also very clearly i think they've looked at the past and history of gundam and thought a lot about like what what do we make in 2015 for Gundam? And I think it resonates a lot now in 2021 also, you know? Yeah, there's definitely this sense of, like, really going to that core Tomino-style Gundam and the themes and ideas that they were interested in and, like, 
trying to get at what that like core element is and re-express it um mm-hmm. in, in in a modern way which then makes it different um but it is it is the most as you say it's kind of like in many ways ignoring stuff like g gundam that in build fighters that are like totally crazy um it is the most different au gundam while also feeling like in many ways it is much more true to the heart of gundam than other au gundams that are superficially like an after gundam x um much more similar to classic tomino gundam and i like after gundam x a lot but does not have the same kind of thematic depth to it um and like the the like precision of its analytic eye on those themes as something like iron-blooded orphans does there's definitely a feeling that i think iron-blooded orphans is doing some of the kind of reevaluation of the genre that original gundam was doing of its genre in its moment Mm -hmm. in time you know i don't think to quite that same extent because obviously original gundam did such a reworking that its archetypes are still in use today um and you couldn't quite say that of iron-blooded orphans but i do think it's doing the same kind of like looking at the the way mecha anime has evolved and taking it to a new level for a new period in time yeah and and really grounding it and finding in like I mean, focusing so much on the human element, which is that thing that, like, is one of those, when you look back on it now, I think, like, it's harder to tell because stylistically, like, human drama is a thing that, like, in modern storytelling has been heightened so much over the past several decades. Um, But when you go back to original Gundam, like, that is one of the things that distinguishes it from its predecessors in the mecha genre is this look at human drama and human level characters in, like, their lives. Um, and you know that is still a show that has a big goofy fight every episode and has you know every two episodes has to introduce a new mobile suit because they're selling the toys and all of that so it is it's it is buried in some ways under some of those elements but mobile suit gundam brings in this really striking human drama and iron-blooded orphans is now like more human drama than it is big mech fights and it's the first time that's ever been the case in this um franchise certainly and like generally speaking in mecha as a broader genre in my experience is incredibly rare yeah, no, I mean, you definitely go multiple episodes without, you know, the Barbados coming out, um, mm-hmm. as we talked about last time, and that's still true in season two. Um, you know, getting into talking about season two in particular, I think what's interesting is I do think this is a messier season than season uh-huh. one in some ways. It Obviously, season one just has a propulsiveness that season two couldn't really have because season one is episode one, Kudelia's like, hey, you want to take me to Earth? And episode 25, they get her to Earth. You know, like that is the arc of season one and season two doesn't have anything like that. I do think that season two has this sort of arc approach to like Mm -hmm. very clear like stories that take place over four or five episodes. And, you know, inevitably some of those are stronger than others, even though I do think they're all valuable of a piece. There is just some stuff that's messy. There's some stuff like, there's certain characters that don't 100% click for me. We'll talk about like... I'm very satisfied with Eok Kujan's ultimate fate in the show. Uh-huh. Being Akihiro smashing him into pieces and having a great final moment is great. They do have to have that character survive a number of encounters that he like that literally no one else on this show would survive to get him there. And I rolled my eyes at that over and over. There's stuff like that that I think is messy in this season. But its overall sense of its own thematic clarity is just so fucking immense. And I think once you get to those last, like, ten episodes or so, it is propulsive and it is cumulative. And, like, when you get to that point in, I think it's episode 45, where, you know, uh, I think it's Shino is going to take the shot Mm -hmm. and it misses. And you realize we're not in this kind of Gundam show anymore. And all the characters have to go, oh, we're not in that show. 
Um, and then those last five episodes are something Gundam's really never done. Um, man, it's it's phenomenal. Yeah, I think the thing, like on a broad structural sense, that's interesting about season two is that it is definitely like it is messier and it is more sort of like meandering broadly in a narrative sense. Um, but it is something that feels to me so thematically appropriate because it is like part of what season two is is that season, at the end of season one, Tekadon won an impossible victory against impossible odds. Right. And that and through that victory, they are like catapulted to a level of power and influence that is completely outsized for the kind of organization they are and what they are prepared to be. And so now, like Orga and Tekadon are stuck with this, like, we have all this power. What the fuck do we even do? Right. And so so much of this season is Tekadon has been put into a position where they have to be a reactive element of the story rather than they're very proactive characters in season one that are driven by a very clear mission. In season two, they don't have a mission. Like, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where right. they're going. Orga's just sort of, like, blindly stumbling down this path. Eventually, I think it's like, you, it's not even until, like, episode, I think, like, eight or nine that you even get the, like, become the king of Mars broad objective that is obviously then, like, undercut um, about ten episodes after that point. Um, but even I mean, then, it's like, undercut in the moment. I don't think you're ever well, at yes. any point in this season supposed to think that they are going to become the king of Mars. That yeah. is, you you point at the screen and go, "Orga, you idiot, stop!" Like that is, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Obviously, for the audience, you know that that is not going to be right. how the show ends. Is it's not Orga sitting on a fucking throne of mobile suits with a big crazy crown <laughs> or whatever um, on Mars? It'd be utterly insane. But like, I'm imagining like the Iron Throne in Game of Thrones, but it's not made of swords; it's made of mobile suit parts. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just a big fucking beam rifle as the big spine that he's leans yes. back against from the mobile armor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like you don't have this sort of like clear goal, and I and I do think that that very much is a really intentional choice on the part of the story that you are meant to be in the same boat as Orga, of you are just being thrown which way every which way by like whatever is going on in the world and because orga the nature of like who he is and his background is like he is not you know fucking a member of Gallarhorn. he's not a leader of the seven stars and he's also not the head of like a massive yaksa family like mcmurdo barrister he's not a like massive multi-billionaire like that no least dude um like he is not one of those major players he's not the dude at the fucking chessboard he is one of the pawns um and so you are in that seat with orga broadly speaking i mean there are large stretches of the show where orga is not as much of the main character as he was in season one but like generally speaking you're in the same seat as orga and tekadon as a whole like not really knowing what forces you're messing with and who are the hands that are moving your piece um, and that is a part of the season that I do find, especially on a rewatch, is very effective. That I think on a first watch through, and I know that there is this, like, a, you know, it's not the, certainly not the dominant opinion on this season, but it's not an uncommon opinion that people think that season two is either straight up bad or is significantly weaker than season one. And I don't agree with that. I actually like season two more than season one personally. Um, but both in the Japanese community and the English community, it's not hard to find people talking about that and like having that perspective on the season um, in a way that I understand where that comes from, because I think it is a less clean and less kind of like comfortable story to be in from both a structural perspective and a content perspective when it starts getting more brutal in terms of what it is depicting. Um, but it is, to me, very narratively compelling 
particularly as a contrast, a very intentional contrast to season one. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. But the thing is, I very much had a journey with it, kind of like season one, where season two, I think about halfway through season two, probably in the midst of the mobile armor arc, which I think is great, but is also one of the points where you're a little aimless intentionally uh -huh. in like what is the overall arc of this thing. I would have told you, I still think the show is very good, but I think season one was better, was where I, my mind was at, was like, okay, I kind of wish this had the propulsiveness of season one, was sort of where my, my mind was at. But you wait, and like you see the way all the chess pieces lay out on the board for those final, I think in particular, like 10 episodes, basically like once McGillis's big rebellion starts, like the coup mm -hmm. d'etat. Um, and I think things snap into place in such a way where I understand the shape of it and I would like to watch both of these seasons again and make that comparison because I think I would I think right now I would say season two is the I would honestly compare it to like Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back yeah um where yeah. I think on on paper A New Hope is the cleaner more perfect movie of the two it has more propulsion it has more of an obvious like teachable three-act structure all of that stuff but Empire Strikes Back is the richer, more emotional, more challenging movie, right? That, like, takes a lot of your assumptions from that first movie and challenges you with them and then leaves you feeling a lot of feelings. And I think this does the same kind of thing um, mm -hmm. and does it very well. And again, in the, in the way that I, I think people often use the Empire Strikes Back comparison just to connote the darker sequel. And that's stupid. That's not why the Empire Strikes Back is good. It's the more challenging sequel. It is the more thoughtful and it is the more, like, how do we take the structure from that first movie and turn it on its head kind of sequel? And that's very much what this this season does as well. And like, man, between this and Double O, please keep doing the season thing, Gundam. You're uh -huh. very good at it. When you break into seasons, that is just, that fits this franchise like a glove, I think. The ability to do these 25 episodes, and maybe someday they can do it in cores, like 13 or something, um, of like doing these focused sort of like, season structures and then having another season that gets to like play on that earlier structure so it's both this and double o do it phenomenally well yeah it is it is like one of the most effective uses of the like season or core structure i've seen um in an anime partially because most anime that does that as does most anime is based on a source material because most original anime only gets a single 12 to 13 episode core um but obviously the the power of the Gundam franchise gives these people a big, huge canvas. I mean, the, right. neither uh, the director nor the writer uh, for this show have ever worked on anything else that is anywhere near the bulk of this show, like a full 50-episode show over the course of two years. Like, that's fucking... That's a... That, that is a that's luxurious the big time. thing. That's, yeah. that's getting called up to the major leagues, right? Yes, like, yeah, very, it's, it's, very few athletes get there. <laughs> yeah, it's a, amongst the most high-profile things you can do in the animation business, and it's, it is cool between this and Double O to see it executed so well um but one thing I'll, I'll say also about the narrative structure thing and i sort of almost stumbled into this because i didn't remember that this is how the show is structured but um i ended up watching it at like in the perfect intervals entirely just because it mathematically worked out that like um i watched it in four episode chunks and with the exception of because it's 25 episodes so it's not perfectly divisible by four so there's one arc which is the mobile armor arc that is five episodes in length Every other arc on the show is basically four episodes. You know, you could you can maybe argue with me depending on like where you feel like, oh, maybe this is kind of half one arc, half the other or something. Um, but when I was watching the show, I was like, oh, I'm going to watch four episodes a night to like fit this like, you know, the time I have left. So I make sure I'm not binging because I started watching season two probably later than I really should have. 
Um, and then when I got to the mole armor one, I'm like, I'll sneak in one more episode here because this is ended on a cliffhanger. And that was like the perfect way to watch it. And that is one of those things that made me respect the season even more is that while it feels like when you're in the midst of it, it's a bit aimless and meandering. It's actually very disciplined in the structure of the story it's telling. Like it is very focused on these are four episode story arcs um, that then like accumulate and build on each other to get to what are still four episode chunks of story when you get into that last stretch, but are more tightly connected um, in between the story arcs when you get to the last two or three. Right, because after the mobile armor, you have 12 episodes left. That's when the theme song shifts, and you have the four episode, basically like the broad Tewa's arc with like Naze's death and all of mm -hmm. that stuff. Then you have the four of like the coup, and then you have the final four on Mars um, where they're fleeing for their lives. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. And that's how I broke the last 12 up, was basically in four episode chunks. So, um, and yeah, I, I realized that in I think the second arc of this season, which is the one on Earth with uh, Takaki. Um, as sort of your main character for those four episodes, which is a really interesting, very different arc for the show. Yeah, but it is, you know, the season two is fucking awesome. So it is. there's no, like, I don't have anything to add in terms of like a, there's no additional other background information or whatever. It's just the same staff. It's, you know, that was their plan to do the two seasons and all that kind of stuff. Although I do want to say, I have no confirmation of this. It very much feels like they got a solid budget boost for season two. All of the animation, like not just the fights are very clearly like they had more money on these, but also the um, just there's a lot of just like character movement stuff where I can tell there's more frames of animation than there was in season one. There's a general, not that season one is at any point poorly animated, that's not my point, just that there is a clear like boost to I feel like the, the amount of money going into this thing. Um, which makes sense because some of what they do here just is very big, like the stuff with the mobile armor and a lot of the stuff near the, the end of the show. And I could just tell there was a, a little more oomph to a lot of the animation. So that, I, again, I don't have any confirmation of that, but it sure feels that way to me. Yeah, I, d I definitely agree that it does feel overall... Like I, and it wouldn't surprise me if like Sunrise put more people on season two of Iron-Blooded Orphans, partially because it is a more demanding season to animate because there's more going on overall, particularly in that last core. Um, and then and season that, one season, was successful. So yeah, season one was super successful. So it would make sense that you'd say, let's put even more people on this thing that is doing super well um, to make yeah. it even better. Because yeah, because there are particularly, there are more episodes that are the big standout. Like when you start watching the episode, you're like, oh shit, this is going to be a hell of an episode because immediately <laughs> the animation looks better. The one that stands out the most to me, obviously like the last couple of episodes of any show is going to be that unless the show is like crashing and burning. Um, you're always going to have the last couple of episodes are the ones that have like the best animation. But the fucking, um, the one at the end of the mobile armor arc where Mika fights the mobile armor is that like as soon as you start watching it, they reanimate a scene from the end of the previous episode. Um, it's like a different camera angle and everything, but it's like the, basically the same moment with Orga, but they reanimate it and you're like, okay, yes, no, right. This is the episode where they just like blow half their fucking animation budget and like half the animators were on this episode for most of the production or some shit because... Yeah, you get you get some really good stuff in the second season in that regard. For I sure. mean that fight—that's an Evangelion fight. I mean that uh -huh. is full on like, not just—I don't even mean Evangelion the show. That's like an Evangelion movie fight. <laughs> it's yeah. so good. Yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, where do you want to start diving into uh, the the emotional <laughs> battlefield of season two of Iron Blooded Orphans? Um, I, do you want to do it? Run down by characters? Or do you want to run down by story arcs? 
So I think last well, time you we know, mostly went by characters. We've talked most about of about most of the characters, and they will come up again. There's there are some season two unique characters, but I think they will come up as we go along. Let's just break it down because I think we can do the story arc thing pretty easily here. Um, so I think we might as well kind of break down by the like four or five arcs that are clearly in this this season. Yeah, so the first arc, which would be the first four episodes, is basically, it is our reintroduction to Tekadon, right? It, it's been, I think, two years um, between the two seasons, so everyone gets a nice updated character model. Uh, Orga is looking fucking fly in this season of the show. Orga has the best costume any Gundam character has had since Shara's novel. I, I am 100% yes. confident about that. His red suit with the green Tekadon jacket over it is as good as a character has looked in all of Gundam. Fucking perfect. Yeah, Orga, like, and he's, you know, and, like, all the characters have, like, bulked out. They're a little bit taller. It's a little bit hard to tell that Mika's taller, but he is because everyone else got taller, so Mika still looks very short. Um, he and Also, I think, he doesn't stand much this season. Yeah, he doesn't stand much. And Well, the one detail I do love is that Atra is now a little bit taller than Mika is, which is yes. adorable and perfect and great. Um, but yes, Orga in, is kind of bulked out. He's bigger um, and he's got his full Yakuza garb. So much so that I really just want that character just in a fucking Yakuza game. Uh, because yes. <laughs> it's, it is so much... I mean, it's basically like there's a character in Yakuza 4, 5, and 6 named uh, Akiyama that has a very similar kind of like black shirt, red, um, dark red suit with like the white tie. Um, and it's just a very good look that very much makes him look like a member of organized crime. Uh, and it's fucking amazing. Um, but yeah, so the first four episodes, we get our, our aged up version of the characters, although they're all still obviously basically teenagers. Um and then the main sort of thrust of these first four episodes is kind of introducing us, reintroduce, reintroducing the audience to the world of Tekadon through some of the new recruits that we get, like most notably Hush, um, who at this point is not yet like sort of a mobile suit pilot. Um, and then also they have a brief conflict with this group of pirates um, that all comes through this relationship with Kudelia of one of Kudelia's funders from season one. Now is kind of like turning on her or it's like trying to get like money and stuff from her and she's not going to do it. So he's hired these pirates and then it ultimately uh, that dude ends up really fucking up because he gets his shit rocked. Um, and it is, it is he a gets good... a visit from Mikazuki out of a mobile suit, which is maybe the worst way to meet Mikazuki August. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You don't, you don't want fucking Orga in his uh, pimped out red suit, kicking down your door and coming in with this little man with a pistol. Uh, that is the last fucking thing you will ever see. Uh, if, if you have, if that happens to you, you're fucked. Um, I mean, these first four episodes are basically like if the Yakuza game people made a Gundam show. It is yes. a, it is Yakuza Gundam, basically. Yeah, um, and it is a really wonderful, I think, like reintroduction into this world. Um, and, and one of the things I like is I love all the um, the new kind of recruit characters that are not like main main characters. As I like Hush is the one that is certainly the most prominent. Um, but they don't do a thing of where it's it's you know certainly not a Camille type thing in Zeta Gundam or anything. Um, our main primary characters are, with the exception of the Earth arc, still Orga and Mika. Um, but you do get this interesting 
perspective on Tekadon by having this injection of new blood so that Tekadon is this bigger organization that is not just made up of that core group of child soldiers at CGS that overthrew that company. Now there are people that are members of this group that are not part of that original core. Um, and that's the thing that I think is an interesting theme throughout this season that is very much pulled from the kind of Yakuza and mob fiction that they use in season two, that there's light elements of it in season one, but season two has a lot of mafia and mobs like movie and story influence elements. And part of that is this, we were a small crew um, that was like tight knit and we're a family. And now you get more powerful and you have to start inviting new people into that organization. And some of them gel well, and some of them do not gel well. And there's a whole kind of like intergroup politic element that is in the background of the show that's introduced here as was prominently explored in the next arc on earth um but i really love that like mafia kind of flavor that the season has it's almost shocking that like season one doesn't end with like one of them going to jail like eugene is in jail uh -huh. for two years and then he comes out and comes back to the organization and it's way bigger you know because yes. it's like that's the yakuza games but that's also like battles without honor and humanity it's like all the japanese yakuza yeah, movies that's, do this this fucking sopranos does that with like three or four different characters yes <laughs> yes absolutely it feels like they're going to do that but no they and we'll talk about this later when we get to all the stuff with like naze and the turbines and uh, tewas they do a lot of very good like yakuza fiction in this season mm -hmm. um yeah i like all of that i like hush as a character even though he does look like gintoki from gintama and it is a little distracting to me because he looks like he was designed by someone different than every other character on the show. His like eyes and everything just look very different, mm -hmm. um, but it does make me laugh, and I like Hush, um, and I do enjoy, especially that first episode does some good POV stuff with like Tekadon having new people and it being like this organization with a little bit of a legend behind it by the time we meet them again. Um, there's also the very dark bit of world building at the beginning of this season where you learn that there are more child soldiers being used yes. than ever before because Tekadon proved how successful they were. Um, which like, who boy, talk about this show have being clear eyed about like the world it's in. That is, that is a dark piece of world building. Yeah. That, that it, it, it's something you see throughout like some of the stuff in this first half of where like there are more enemies that deploy human debris soldiers i mean it happens in this arc with the pirates as well mm -hmm. um that yes there is this like kind of background thing of like the success of tekadon for the audience and for tekadon is really cool because you like all these characters and you want to see them succeed but also the consequences of a paramilitary organization that is composed almost entirely of child soldiers like performing the feat that they perform at the end of season one, like that's going to have broader political, like material ramifications across the world um, that obviously Tekadon would not ever even consider or think of. Um, but it is part of like the whole thing of season two is I think in many ways, the worst thing that happened in season one is that they won that fight, right? Like the fact that Biscuit gets killed and Tekadon achieves this incredible victory is what sets them ultimately on this path towards um, like Orga and Mika dying and like the, just the organization being disassembled and almost everybody getting killed, but like they miraculously, a bunch of the Tekadon members do survive through the end of the show. But it is this thing of where if they had suffered a loss and had failed to achieve what they were trying to see, achieve at the end of season one, probably Tekadon would have scaled down. They would have been a more regional organization and it would have been, you know, you have to scrape by a bit more and they wouldn't have the affluence they have in season two. They wouldn't have a fucking earth branch or any of that shit. But the fact that they succeeded against all odds is in many ways like the thing that sets up the tragedy that is season two of this show. 
Well, exactly. It is a it is a very classic rise and fall story. You mm-hmm. know, if you were making the movie version of this, you would call it the rise and fall of Tekadon, and it would be two movies, and it would be the rise movie and the fall movie, right? Uh-huh. Because it is very much and and the seeds of their fall are in their miraculous rise because all of the things that make this group able to do the things they do in season one are also the things that doom them to fail in season two like orga always placing uh, always going all in with all of his chips right he's Uh always making these giant bets doing crazy risks and eventually you spin the roulette wheel enough you will lose you know and he's i mean basically they're playing russian roulette and they they use five bullets and then there's one left in the chamber and they shoot themselves and that's the end of the season you know but like and season two, I think, is very open about that with the audience from the very beginning of I think it is just it's it's slightly short of one of the characters turning to the screen and going, we're fucked, aren't we? You know, because uh-huh. there's a lot of like, I think from the moment Orga says the thing about like, I am going to take the shortest route to get there to like my final goal of everyone being happy and peaceful, whatever I have to do to get there, I'm going to take the, the shortcut and I'm going to do it that way. And you're like... Oh, that's that's a bad idea, Orga. Don't do that, Orga. Don't. No, that didn't. Uh-huh. Just because it worked last time does not mean it will work this time. Because that's very much what they did in season one. Was like, what's the biggest high-profile fuck you to Gallerhorn in this world we can do? And they tried it, and it worked then. Um, but it doesn't work now. Yeah, like you know, ultimately, a lot of what Tekadon does across both of these seasons does make a better world. We see at the end of season two, but for their own like personal happiness, yes, you are correct. That if they had somehow lost that fight, and I guess in that world, Cudelia is taken and killed, um, which would be very sad, and and the world would be worse off in that way. Um, they would be personally better off. Yeah, they like Tekadon would have survived rather than like Tekadon symbolically surviving season two, um, but yes. being like factually demolished. Um, yeah. So no, I that yeah first arc very good. The second arc is the one where we go to Earth and and spend some time with their Earth branch. And this is one of the most different things Iron-Blooded Orphans mm-hmm. does, because it's basically four episodes where Takaki is our main character. He's even narrating. We don't have a lot of Orga and Mikazuki until near the end of that arc, and it is largely about Takaki and this this other... What's the name of the kid he's uh, with? It's Aston. Aston Altland. Um, and it's just a really good little arc, almost in the vein of like a war in the pocket or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's this really cool little bottle story. Um that is one of those things where I think this is where the show kind of like puts its foot down and like is showing you deliberately like we are intentionally making this like disorienting from mm-hmm. a narrative perspective that we are intentionally removing your like guiding star in a narrative sense that you like that season one of Iron Blood Orphans gives you but like the vast majority of stories give you like a very clear motivation that characters are working towards um, and here it is okay, we have our, like, orienting story at the beginning where we, we are reintroduced to all of our major characters. We see where Tekadon is at. We see all their redesigns. We get, like, a big cool action scene with Mika, and he takes down the pirate dude, which is, like, a great kind of um, first big action sequence um, at the end of episode four. We see Orga get to be badass and have his whole Yakuza hit with the guy who sort of instigates everything in that first story arc. So you get sort of oriented and refamiliarized with Tekadon and the changes for season two, and then you immediately have all that ripped away from you, and you have a full four-episode story arc that is on Earth, where the whole point of the story arc is that Orga is not there, right? That Orga is on Mars, and he doesn't know what's going on because um, the, I forget the name of the character, but like the there's a adult the bearded is, man, <laughs> yes, the bearded man, but there's like an adult who is managing Tekadon's Earth branch, who is then. Working oh, with right. the the mercenary, the bearded man, 
um, who we know is part of like a scheme by Restel, who is ultimately the main villain of the show, although he's very much in the background so far um, in, in season two. And this is kind of the thing that starts pushing him more towards the foreground with Julieta. Um, but you have that whole dynamic of where there's this internal friction between these two different branches of Tekadon that then removes us and the audience from Orga, and we are primarily stranded on Earth. There are a couple little scenes that you get. Mostly, I imagine those are like there to be like, yes, Orga and Mika are still parts of this show. Like, we are going to show you Orga, and he doesn't know what's going on, and he's like been cut off. I mean, you see him start to plan like getting Mika and everyone to Earth to sort of like intervene. But this structure, I think, is fascinating, and it's the kind of thing that, like, I very rarely ever seen a story do this, where you, it removes you from your two main characters. It is a show that has a dual protagonist structure, so it wouldn't be surprising to have a story arc that focuses almost entirely on either Orga or Mika. But to have a story arc, a full four-episode story arc, um, focusing on neither of our dual protagonist characters and it, on a character who was Takaki, like a, a you know, memorable, but fairly minor member of the overall supporting cast in the first season. And then Aston, who is an even more minor character, who's most memorable, I think, because his character design is very striking. So you remember who he was, but he was one of the human debris that was taken um, from the, the group that had Akihito's younger brother that died in that arc in season one. So it's like two pretty minor characters. Um, and, and honestly, the most major character from the supporting cast that is in these four episodes is Chad, but he's taken out of the equation in the first episode of the Earth arc um, when he protects Makanai Sensei. So it is this like really interesting, like you are stranded on Earth with the supporting crew as they have no idea what's going on. They're just being controlled um, and manipulated to have this sort of like mock war in a very Cold War sense. Um, it's this kind of proxy war that's going on um, and they're just being completely jerked around and it shows you how Orga's leadership structure does not compute with an expansive Tekadon, right? Like the fact that Tekadon relies entirely on Orga and Orga alone, one, is destroying Orga slowly but surely, and two, is destroying Tekadon even faster than it's destroying Orga in many ways because it can't manage, right? Takaki can't make decisions on his own. He can't see the bigger picture of what's going on. He doesn't feel empowered to because the only thing that the members of Tekadon have ever done is do what Mikazuki does and just do whatever Orga tells them to. Yeah, which is... And I like how they explore that whole theme this season, which is that it is both... At certain points, you're thinking it's sort of a bad thing on Orga's part, and you also realize it is a such a, bur a, a burden of abuse to Orga too, right? Uh -huh. That like there is this sort of uh, inequitable um, distribution of power in the organization. But yeah, the two characters, by the way, whose names we forgot are Gallen, the bearded man, and Radice, the um, yes. the traitor who uh, Takaki shoots in the head in a very good moment uh, where he goes full Mikazuki for a second. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I like this arc and I like Takaki and Aston's you know, friendship more than anything is obviously very touching. Um, Aston, the way he dies and his just absolutely brutal final words of I wish I had never met you because then mm -hmm. I, you know, wouldn't have things to care about. Um, but it's very good. And I do like that this also ends with Takaki getting out. You know, yes. he leaves the organization. He stays on Earth. We learn later that he starts working for Makanai and becomes... Fairly powerful, it seems like, over the course of his lifetime. He's going, he's to, going be... to basically be a fucking, like, senator. Uh, right. Is sort yeah. of what he's being set up as. Um, he's going yes. to enter the political world. 
Yeah. So there's a lot of good stuff like that. You also have Takaki's little sister in this arc who mm-hmm. is like waiting at home for them. Um, it's it's good. And it is like, it has that war in the pocket component because it's like kids in a thing they don't understand. It also has this 8th MS team component because they're like fighting out in the, not quite the jungle, but like the woods. And it's like this guerrilla war that no one really understands. Um, but it's very well done. Yeah, it, it, it just think it really... It's this thing of where um, it, it is this like very surprising turn that you're not seeing this kind of story coming. Um, you wouldn't ever expect it to be told, um, but it is one that like sort of sets up the broader ideas that the whole season is going to be exploring about like what are the issues with Tekadon as like an organization and our main characters, even though they're removed from us, because they're removed from us, we see what the issue is with the Orga and Mika dynamic within the organization, how this is going to lead to Tekadon falling apart. But then it is also, I think, is very much a story told to be like, this is to conclude with Takaki leaving, right? Like that is fundamentally the point is that that is a thing that is, so needed and necessary in the feeling of like profound relief i think on the audience's part when takaki says he's going to leave um and it's upsetting to everybody else in tekadon but for i think the audience is like thank god yes please go get some shitty job in an office go raise your cute little sister fuka um like get the fuck out like do the thing that biscuit couldn't because that's also very much what this is right like takaki is like biscuit he has a family he has stuff to care for that most of the members of tekadon don't biscuit was going to leave and never got the opportunity to um and so this is like it's this like one of the few pieces of like salvation in season two uh is like this feeling of like yes takaki please get the fuck out of here oh my god and it's something you can hold dear to your chest throughout the rest of the season which gets really bad it's like well at least takaki's fine you know he's yes, still exactly. on this little sister um yeah. like takaki's going to be okay and he's like a good little boy who does like fucking shoot an unarmed man at point blank and executes him which is brutal but other than that takaki like, he had it fucking kid. coming i yes. mean like, you know, sometimes that's not a bad thing. <laughs> yes, no, that dude, that dude absolutely was asking for it. But there's that really, it's a really well executed scene where it's introduced with um, the two uh, uh, Turbines girls laughter um, in Ozzy. And they say, it's like, oh, is it going to be fine? Like, is Takagi not going to just let him get away? I mean, he's such a nice little boy. And, and Mika's like, no, he said that he's going to take care of it. There's a lot use of the word kejime. Um, which is a very Yakuza word, which basically means, like, he's going to, like, you know, sort of do what needs to be done kind of thing of, like, you've got to, if you fucked up, you've got to fucking pay for it kind of thing. It's a very Yakuza concept. Um, and and Takaki takes the gun and says that he's going to do what needs to be done, and he fucking does it. He fucking does it. I think this set of episodes is also interesting because it does not have a direct narrative bearing on the rest of the season. Like, mm-hmm. Galen is dead. He's out of the picture. Radice is dead. There's no, like, revenge component going on there other than that Juliet, we know, like, was mentored by the bearded man, but that's all off screen, right? Mm-hmm. This arc is completely there for thematic and character purposes, right? It is yeah. to introduce the ideas you were talking about of, like, there's a there's a rot in the, like, organizational structure of Tekadon, not because of any intentional corruption, but because they're this little family that is now very big. And then also it is about, you know, um, Takaki and his choices as a character. And setting up also, I think, the idea that there's a life beyond this that 
all of the members who survive are going to find at the end of the show, right? Yeah. Um, so it's very, you could cut it for narrative purposes. I don't think it would make it into the movie edit of Iron-Blooded Orphans uh-huh. Season 2, but it is very necessary on, I think, that character and thematic level. You also introduce some stuff with McGillis here, um, who I think this is also where you get maybe your first hint that McGillis is not the master of the universe he thinks he is, uh-huh. because he is almost defeated by Gallen. And it's only yes. because Mikazuki comes in and saves his ass. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's so brutal also is that Aston is killed by McGillis, right? Like, yes. right before um, Mika is able to get there and stop everything, like, McGillis, you know, in self-defense, uh, but he does. He like, tries not to, to be fair to McGillis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. McGillis understands that, like, because this is after there's this sort of, like, pact and handshake between uh, Orga and McGillis, that, like, there's this sort of, some sort of truce that, you know, they want to work together. Um, to bring change about in the world. Uh, and McGillis doesn't want to have to kill Tekken a member, but he straight up does. Um, and that's one of those things of where, again, it's 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 a one of those very super Peace Busters-esque moments of like, fucking shit, it just is what it is, man. Like, there's like you see all the elements about why this situation happened. It's tragic. It fucking sucks. But there's nothing that can be done about it. Um, it's it's uh, just, it's one of those like little extra knife twists that's like, oh, his death was completely pointless and needless, but it just couldn't be stopped. Yes. We didn't talk about that scene, by the way, where uh, Orca accepts McGillis's invitation to formally team up. And I had to do... I, I did not tweet much about Iron-Blooded Orphan Season 2 while I was watching it out of uh, an intentional move on my part to be a little more disciplined with my thoughts uh-huh. and just save those for the podcast. I did have to take screenshots of that moment and tweet it out going, oh my god, they're all fucked. Because that was the most... It's it's literally... He's like, I believe you'll benefit from joining forces with us. And Orga's like, okay, Tekadon will become your ally. Let's make our way up together. And they interlink hands and then you cut to Mikazuki looking like, uh-oh. And I'm just like, oh, they're all going to die. I didn't, re- and like, I didn't, like, I just had this, in, like, this, like, moment of, like, deep realization of they are all entirely fucked. And, like, there's some foreshadowing of that earlier in the season two. But I think it is that moment where they formalize this, like, yes, McGillis, I'll join forces with you. Where I went, oh, this season's not going to have a happy ending. There's mm-hmm. no version of this where they win. There's, like, I, I didn't, I hadn't looked up spoilers. I just knew, like oh, this is going to end very, very badly. At the time, my prediction was that McGillis was actually going to, like, win his whole thing and become the leader of Gallarhorn and then kill all of Tekadon. That's very much how I thought the season was going to go until I think you get a little deeper in and you realize that McGillis is not the master of all he thinks he is. Um, And he is honestly, like, has a lot of the same character failings as Orga does. Um, But, like, in that moment, I was very much like, oh, he's going to kill all of them. That was, like, very much where I thought this was going to head. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, the, like with McGillis, it very much you because you do start to see it in the second story arc of where it's like he is very he's smart, he's very capable, he's obviously a very talented mobile suit pilot. Um, but like the main reason he was so successful in season one is because he had a a couple of people that like trusted him, his adoptive father, um, Carta and Gaelio, that he could betray, right? And yes. like that is the thing that's like after that he's played all of his best cards. Like he, he was, he had people in positions of power and authority that he could betray and manipulate. And now that he's played those cards, like he doesn't have like, he doesn't have an ace up his sleeve anymore. Like he just has to do it based on the, what we now kind of understand is like a more meager influence than you thought, because we now meet Rustle Elian and see it's like, Oh, there's other members of Gallarhorn that have tremendous military power and influence as well. Like, you know, you're not, like, the hottest shit in this organization. 
um yeah. and you get the sense of like yeah that, that as soon as that handshake happens like that is the the pact with the devil or whatever that is the you know you understand why we'll probably get into it deeper in the season about like the parallels between mcgillis and orga and like where why these characters would feel this sort of kinship with each other but it is also something that absolutely is the moment that the show tips its hat to you and says yo this is this is fucked uh there's a concept in like otaku style media um of like setting up flags like they use, you use the word japanese flag um that is like your i think it comes from stating sim games and stuff like that but it's like this idea of like there's this an action or a piece of foreshadowing a line of dialogue that is the kind of thing that sets up that you know this is going to happen and mostly people talk about death flags so it is the kind of thing of like oh i'm three days from retirement and you know that character is going to die it's right. that kind of thing and the thing i like about iron-blooded orphans and this is very true of season one we talked about it with biscuit um, is that like this show is not interested in like shocking you that much like it is very like we're going to go overboard with setting every fucking death flag possible i mean that's one of the brutal things about the earth arc is taki takiki and Aston. it's like every single line of dialogue they have is you're gonna fucking die everything they say is <laughs> like i can't wait to get home to my little sister it's like we're going to be friends forever i'm going to protect you no matter what like i'm going to hold this position and you move on like every single thing they say is a fucking death flag for this kind of character but you just don't know which one is going to die or are they both going to die um and and the, that handshake is like the biggest fucking death flag in the history of anime in some ways but it's the deaths yeah. in iron blood orphans are so fucking audacious and particularly when we talk about orgas is like the biggest one that like even though there are death flags lined up going back fucking miles you still kind of can't believe it when it happens somehow well, that's what I said about Biscuit in the first season. And I got some pushback in our YouTube comments about that. Like, you're an idiot thinking Biscuit wasn't going to die. My point wasn't that Biscuit could never die. It was that, like, that's the kind of character who either is the survivor who, like, looks back fondly on all the dead members. Or he's one who, like, dies. But not two-thirds of the way through the story or whatever. Like, less uh -huh. than that. Less than yeah, halfway like episode, through the story. like 18 or 19 of season one, yeah. Right. Like, that's what was surprising. And, like, that felt audacious because, like... It's Biscuit. He's a major character. He's voiced by Hanai Natsuki. Like, there's a lot of things that would, like, work against that, you know? And I think this season does that as well. But, yeah, the death flag of the handshake with McGillis. I made this joke. I think it's very true. It's one step away from Orga going up to Mika and saying, Hey, I'm having the old man install wax wings on the Barbados, and we're going to fly <laughs> right into the sun, kid. You and me. We're never going to die. Like, Orga is, like, so close to that level of, like, audaciousness. Um, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. It's, but there's it's, there's so much talk about with Mikazu or uh, with with McGillis because we'll get into a larger discussion of it. But I just wanted to flag right now, like my expectations on McGillis coming out of season one, and then early in season two as well, before like the show starts challenging them, was that I 100% thought McGillis was going to be the big bad, like the uh -huh. final boss. You know, I just totally thought that because I've seen other Gundam shows and the Super Peace Busters have as well and they know what they are subverting with that character. You know, he's a Char. Like yeah. the Char he is, is a the Char. bad guy. Right, Char is the bad guy. Char is the rival ace pilot. Char is the one who you do a sword fight with at the end. You know, all of that stuff. I just naturally assumed that like where this was going and, and when they make that pact early in season two, my assumption was that they would help McGillis get to the top 
and then he would not reform Gallarhorn. He would just make it his own, and then he would kill Tekadon with it, and they would wind up backstabbed. Um, that's not exactly the shape of the season, and really what it is is at no point is McGillis their foe. That just never happens uh-huh. in the show. And he is instead not the enemy waiting in the wings. He is a parallel character who is... Not a protagonist, not quite an antagonist, but one of the main characters who is basically just a very clear like parallel to Orga in particular, but Tekadon as an organization at large, um, and shares their exact same fate, you know? And I think that is one of the most audacious and interesting things. Like, And I mean, I'm curious, was that your experience the first time you watched this too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely remember feeling like, just assuming that McGillis is the rival. He's the enemy, yeah. like... Um, and, and there is one very, very brief encounter early in season one, and I pointed it out in that conversation almost entirely because I hadn't realized that there ever was a fight scene where McGillis and Mika fought each other, because in my memory, it just it ended up never even happening. There's, like, one very brief encounter early in season one where they very briefly cross swords um, and then disengage. Um, but yes, like, the, the, it is a thing where they are very much subverting that trope, and specifically, like, one of the ways they're doing it is that McGillis is no longer a Char because we have a new Char because we have Gaelio is now a Char, right? We have yes. a new masked man who comes in um, who, you know, is like less of a Char in the sense of like McGillis is actually like Char in his sort of like personality and his character type in a way that no Char clone has ever been other than like Full Frontal, who is literally a Char clone in the story. Um, and so introducing your like, this is the more standard AU Gundam Char, which is it's not a character that's actually like Char, but it is a man who's on our antagonist side, who's wearing a mask. He doesn't really fight Mika much, or they, they they fight a little bit, but he is there as like McGillis's rival. Um, and I think that whole like sort of entangling of one of the most classic of all Gundam tropes, the masked man who is a rival pilot. Um, in Iron Blood Orphans is one of the most interesting things I think they do with Gundam like symbolism and, and archetypes because it totally defies your expectations um, and it is I'll say overall the most fun thing about rewatching this show is rewatching it for McGillis um, I said yes. that in season one and it's for slightly different reasons in season one because that is where he gets to be more calculating because he has like I said these people to betray that gives him this like very distinct advantage that he loses in season two but even in season two there's still so much kind of like narrative subterfuge going on with that character because you are so just like in your DNA as a Gundam fan expecting like pretty blonde boy who wore a mask at least in season one who's like a traitor to be the end ultimate antagonist of the show that when that never happens and instead he gets I think one of the most touching sympathetic deaths of any character in the entire show um, it is the thing that is surprising and I think is hugely compelling is one of my favorite parts of this season yeah hugely compelling and I and I totally echo what you're saying that I think the Gaileo side of that equation equation is is just as effective right uh-huh. like um, him as a shark clone and him as like one of the more noble characters in the show like Gaileo has a really good reason for wanting uh-huh. to kill McGillis he is purely motivated you know and like 
And he lives. He's one of the few he is one of the few named characters in Iron Blooded Orphans who survives the show, right? Yeah, and um, the whole show. He's introduced in episode one of season one of Iron Blooded Orphans, and he's fucking he's in a wheelchair now, but he's in episode fifty. You know, and he's he's, ha he's living his best life. Yep. He's good. He's you know flirting with Julietta. I don't think he regrets the loss of his legs much at all. I think he is totally fine. He got his revenge, and he's good. Um, you know, it is, it's a, it's a fascinating character story. And, and I do think, yeah, there's so much cool stuff they do with those characters. Yes. But let's move on to the next story arc. Cause this is, uh, one of my favorites. This is like a very kind of, I think iconic one, partially because of the fucking crazy fight scene. But this is where we get the largest story arc, the five episode arc in the middle of the show, which is the, uh, as the first episode of the arc says, awakening calamity. Um, and this is where we get a thing I love whenever it happens in Gundam, where Gundam just turns into a fucking kaiju movie for a while, and it's yes. just the best shit. Um, there's there because there is this whole theme, and I think it's predominantly introduced in this arc of history in season two. Um, of like, there's an interesting dynamic of the our main characters, Tekadon, are so sort of like wayward in the world because they don't know anything about history right um you have you even have hush um in this arc there's a moment where where one of the characters is explaining what the mobile armor is and it says like oh i think it's yuki nojo-san is like oh it's a relic from the calamity war and hush is like what's the calamity war and the buddy who has the fucking uh pompadour who's actually like the guy who's like shockingly smart it's like wait you don't even know that you idiot um but Tekadon doesn't know anything about history, but their entire lives and the world they live in are obviously shaped by um, this, like, horrifying history of the Calamity War that is the sort of tragedy from which Gjallarhorn, as our, like, corrupt, like, international or interplanetary, like, space police that sort of maintain this very corrupt, um, disgusting status quo that keeps down marginalized people and abuses them and uses them as tools, that is, like, the, the system by which... Um, Tekadon were victimized for their entire lives, like is a product fundamentally of this Calamity War. And so this middle arc, which is like the most stylistically extreme arc of Iron-Blooded Orphans, like both in terms of a genre sense, it becomes almost like a different show for a few episodes. Um, and then just also in like the visual presentation and the tone and the feel of it, of like history awakening in this like symbolic sense and wreaking havoc because, you know, they have dug too deep um, they have like, or like Tekadon and Orga are spreading out and growing up and learning about the world and touching different parts of the world that they had been utterly ignorant of for their entire lives. And now those pieces are coming alive and trying to kill them. Um, and I think that this whole arc is one of the most interesting kind of like symbolic pieces of storytelling in the show. It's fantastic and, uh, you know, once again, supports my thesis that all 2000s era Gundam is some combination of Gundam Wing and Turn A Gundam. Uh -huh. um, and, like, you definitely get that here with, like, the Gundam Wing of this show is, I think, the Mikazuki-Kudelia dynamic of it all. Who Kudelia, not in season two that much, which we'll talk about her at a certain point. But then there's the Turn A side of it, which is this, like, dark buried history, which I think this show leverages very well um and uh -huh. again it's at this point it was so fresh in turn a now it's like it's like a very much a gundam stereotype that i would appreciate if like the witch from mercury doesn't do anything like that because we've uh -huh. seen it so many times but i do think this show uses it very very well um in part because they never lean on it that hard like this is the most the calamity war stuff comes out um and then there's the don's Leif's 
in the in the last half of the season. But you know, this is the only more mobile armor they fight. The show does not end with like Mikazuki having to kill a second mobile armor. You know. Yeah, you um, could definitely envision a different version of Iron Blooded Orphans where the last fight is like here's a dozen mobile armors and that's how Mika dies. Um, and that right. would be bad and cheesy. Yes, exactly. So this is the one, and I do like how they deal with the Calamity War and this idea that you know humanity built weapons of such a horrifying degree we had to build other horrifying weapons to put them down i like that it reverses the causality of og gundam where Mm -hmm. in in original like tomino universal century the mobile armors are the last things we build right but in this it's the mobile armors were the first thing and they're just they're the genocide machines basically you know yeah Um, it's like an even more monstrous version of the bugs from gundam f91 exactly and then we built the gundams the gundam frames in order to stop these things and the gundam frames are literally machines that feed on a person's humanity their human body has to be modified and broken to use so that we can stop these inhumane objects of destruction and it's it's so provocative in so many ways in part also giving you this view into why Gallerhorn was created and why someone like McGillis and even other characters we see who who we don't like as much but also maybe have some noble aspirations do have a belief that for all its modern day sins Gallerhorn has a good role to play because clearly it started from a good place of like mm-hmm. yes these things had to be stopped like basically Gallerhorn is like celestial being at its very outset right yeah. and it's like if celestial being existed for hundreds of years and got big and got corrupt and got stagnant right mm-hmm. yeah and yeah, I think all of those ideas are just very provocative. And again, it leads to, as you say, a very stylistically extreme stretch of the show. It is full-on kaiju movie at a certain point. It reminds me of scenes like some of the stuff from like the end of, end of F91. There's that scene in Narrative Gundam with the big mobile armor in the middle uh-huh. of the colony. It reminds me of that. Um, there's there's lots of like great standout Gundam scenes. But like this is very good and culminates in a Evangelion-style fight that Hideaki Anno himself would look at and go, oh, that was pretty cool, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just to, just to like gush a little bit about the mobile armor because it is I I just love the design of it to death uh, because there's so much going on here. One thing uh, is you know I talked a lot about in season one that and I don't have this is not based on an interview or anything so it's like I don't know if like this is actually like the reference but to me it feels so much like it must be that the reference for mobile suits is knights in plate armor because it's so much of like their conceptualization of how the mobile suits work and the fact that there aren't beam weapons except for with the mobile armor there are um but you know they're using like big bulky projectiles to try to punch through big this like nano laminite armor they have big blunt weapons or you know the sword which can only be used like with expert usage but primarily blunt type weapons to try to um break in the armor and make it so the armor is not effective because you're just using blunt force to crush everything underneath it so it's a lot of crush deaths or big puncture wounds which is what the dane's lace are um which are basically like giant fucking crossbows more or less like future crossbows um and so that's very much like in my mind it must be the direct reference but it is at least like very much a reference point for us as the viewers that like gives it such a unique feel and the thing i love here is that this is basically if if the gundams are knights in shining armor the fucking mobile armor is a goddamn dragon right this is like the saint george story of the knight fighting the dragon um and and also it's you know your kind of classic nietzsche to like destroy monsters you must become a monster yourself kind of thing they're doing with Mika. Um, but that's where the, the sh- this arc gets this like, 
otherworldly, almost like fantastical edge to it. And some of it comes from the design of the mobile armor itself, which is like bird-like as Mika describes it. He describes it as like beautiful, like it is a bird of prey, the bird, the birds that he saw on Earth because there aren't any birds on Mars because of course there aren't. There couldn't be unless you brought them there. Um, then they would probably all die anyways. Um, and so he sees it as this like beautiful predator, almost kind of like the way that uh, the android probably by Ian Holm describes the alien in the original alien movie is kind of what Mika reminds me of here. Uh, and then I love the idea that it has these plumes, again, the, a bird-like concept that just has these like feathers that are these independent little tiny mobile pod things that operate on their own independently. And the mobile armor also operates independently off of its own AI. And that it is this self-perpetuating fucking death machine that is just programmed to go kill humans. And then it is... Uh, able to use these plumes to both self-repair it can generate its own plumes and the plumes are able to consume and get resources like fuel and metal to bring back to the mobile armor so it can just keep on doing its job forever like it's such an awful horrible concept um, but it is also just brutally logical and perfectly logical in its design um that is so i think just like gets i think at your gut of like why this thing is so terrifying and completely inhuman and then on top of it the way it is like animated and portrayed has this viciousness to it that has a very intentional i think kaiju edge to it of where it's full-on has a kaiju like monster style scream that it makes and it shoots a giant beam it's the only beam weapon we have and we see it used that the it can't penetrate the Gundam armor because the Gundam armor is specifically designed to counteract these beams, but it is able to burn whole buildings down and slaughter like that entire plantation full of people um, when Ride tries to block the beam but ends up actually deflecting it. Uh, like every element of the design of the mobile armor, I just think is so striking and effective, both in just a like a nerdy, like I just think these things are like cool and interesting kind of way, but also in like a terrifying narrative way. They just absolutely nail the concept of this thing perfectly through every element of its design. 100%. And when, you know, when I, I've talked about, I was saying like the Evangelion influence, and I do think like Iron Blood Orphans overall is the show where I feel like you can feel the Hideaki Anno influences mm -hmm. most acutely in terms of a post Evangelion Gundam. And um, this would have, these two things would have come out around the same time, but there's one moment in this that viscerally reminded me of Shin Godzilla, which is when it first shoots the beam weapon and everyone's horrified and you're yeah. horrified. And you, as a Gundam fan, you realize, I haven't seen a beam weapon yet in this show. Uh -huh. There it is. And it comes out like Dragon's Breath, you know? It is like a fire plume coming out. And it reminds me of when, because in Shin Gojira, if you haven't seen it, he holds off on having Godzilla do the atomic breath until a very key moment midway through the movie. And it is, as a result, the most horrifying time Godzilla has ever used his atomic yeah. breath. And it very much, it kind of hits like that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It, it has this just sort of primal kind of, quality to it i think it is just sort of like unsettling on a like purely human level um and yes. and to like sort of recontextualize and rebuild these things that we've seen in in gundam like obviously we're very familiar with mobile armors even if this is not like the mobile armors in other gundam shows um and we are familiar with some like automated mobile suits and things like that like the ones in gundam wing or particularly again i think the bugs are like the clear predecessor to this in gundam f91 um, but putting it in this like very kind of mythical, almost like fantastical context that then also 
further recontextualizes the Gundam frames and especially Barbados, which already had a like slightly more fantastical look to them than a normal Gundam does and makes it even more so when Mika is now controlling the Barbados at this like inhuman level of like agility and dexterity and it's doing crazy flips um and it's animated like like in eva late in the evangelion series or like in one of the later movies where the pilots are extremely adept at piloting them now so it moves like not just more like a human and not like a machine it moves like a superhuman um and i think that that is yeah a key element here well, even some of the language we're using at this point of like these are the the fallen angel from heaven, right? Uh-huh. That we're having to battle, and you know you have Gundam Bile at some point. Like it's a lot of the same kind of words that Evangelion uses throughout its run. Yeah, all the Gundams are named after different demons from the Book of Solomon. So like Flowers, right. Barbados, Bile, um, uh, Gushian, like all those are from that. So so it is a very intentional like piece of symbolism, like within the world building itself. Characters like comment on the Gundams being demons because that is what they are designed to do there's that yes. they're demons designed to kill the angels that are these like bird-like mobile armors that were meant to presumably they were probably designed originally to as this idea of we're going to save humanity by eradicating all of our enemies but it ended up making a weapon so horrifyingly powerful and uncontrollable that it ended up nearly wiping out what they say it's like it killed like one-fourth of the human population in the solar system or whatever I gotta say, Sean, I am not usually someone who like sees something and then goes, I want to see a prequel about this. But if Sunrise wanted to make a movie with a nice big fat budget mm-hmm. about Agnika Kairu and the first like piloting of Gundam Bile to destroy the mobile weapons, I would watch the fucking shit out of that movie. Can you imagine if you like it was a movie that started yeah. like in the depths of like the mobile armor crisis and like you've got this Agnika Kairu guy who's like our main character and it culminates in like the creation of Gundam Bile and all of that. I would please make that. I, I want to watch that. That sounds yeah. good. Yes, it, I think it is. I think that like um, fans have been, I think, asking for for a while because yes, I'm with you that normally prequel type stuff I don't really care for, and I don't think it needs a prequel. Like I think the the Calamity War being this mysterious thing is a very cool thing in Iron Blood Orphans, but yes. this arc is so cool. It is so unlike anything else in the Gundam franchise, and unlike anything else in Iron Blooded Orphans. That yes, like an entire movie that is basically like this. Uh, like narrative arc and doing your big crazy kaiju style mobile armors and having like this madman build a mobile suit that can only operate by like physically destroying the mind and body of the person who operates it in order to be as effective as it needs to be like that's just a fucking kick-ass kick-ass thing does does Hideaki Anno want to make a Gundam thing because that would be what I would hire him for if he wants to come work for Sunrise for a couple years have him do that movie then just give him free reign it'd be fucking great Yes, please make yeah. the Gundam Calamity War movie. It would be sick. Yeah, Gundam Angel Hunters. There's so many good names you could give it. Yeah, be great. Um, all right, so, so and we haven't even really talked much about the whole dynamic that the Gundam frames shut down around uh-huh. the mobile armor because they want to go into the full mode, but that would kill the pilot inside. And of course, Mikazuki is the one who's willing to do that. And it leads to the sickest fight in the entire show, and also a horrifying tragedy in that from that point on, he is paralyzed. Yeah, so I think that realization of that Barbados shuts down and that it is the fail-safe that was retrofitted onto the Gundam frames in order to keep them from sending too much data to the human brain through the Elias system is what is like causing that to happen. And it is that thing of where you know inevitably Mika is going to have to fight this thing. There's obviously no other way it's going to get defeated. Like, they keep on 
trying all these strategies is not working partially because Eok is a complete idiot, right? He is this like other person who he knows technically the history, but doesn't understand the history of what he is messing with, which is very different than McGillis. McGillis is the only person here, him and, and probably um, uh, the the main villain. Uh, oh. Juliet, no, she doesn't know anything. Oh. She's just, Do you mean doing... Rustal Elian? Yes, yes, Rustal yeah. Elian. Um, he understands it, but he's not there. Um, but McGillis is very smart and deliberate. Like, McGillis isn't even trying to do the thing that they thought he was going to do. Like, he's so scared of this thing that he's like, no, we need to, like, make sure we're not bringing a mobile suit anywhere near this thing. We are going to see it to make sure this is what it is, and then we'll bury it or something. Um, but he was not going to fuck with this fucking thing, and EO keeps on fucking everything up because he's his privilege means he thinks that he's invincible and, and always right in everything that he does. Um, so you have like this sort of desperate strategy over and over again that keeps on getting ruined. You know that Mika has to get into the thing and, and Orga's fighting so hard against it to the point where Orga like goes out to try to fight it himself in the little mobile worker. Um, and that's when Mika gets in. And that whole like stretch is such a grueling piece because you see how much Orga I think like loves and cares for Mika and how desperately he does not want to use Mika as a weapon right it's like a thing that has been throughout all this and this is like the point where it's at its height where he knows probably that this is like kind of like the moment of no return for that that he doesn't want Mika just to be a sword or a gun for him he wants Mika to be a person and a friend and then that's not how it works out of course and Mika gets into the Barbados defeats it and then yes at for almost the entire second half of the show I mean, it's, I mean basically it's the entire second half of the show um mika cannot walk um he is either if he has to be in a scene that uh is not right next to the barbados he has to be picked up and taken there usually by hush um and he spends most of the rest of the show attached to the barbados um because it's the only way he has full use of all of his limbs and that is a fucking bold crazy thing for a tv show to do I mean, I thought it was bold and crazy at the end of season one to have him lose that one arm, right? Uh -huh. And so in season two, he's... Although it does... I mean, it helps in season two because then he's the guy walking around hiding his gun in his, like, sling. Because yes. that's the most badass Yakuza thing to do. Um, but then from that point on, yeah, he is, he is crippled in both legs and one arm. He has the movement of basically his head and one arm. He can still eat his plums. So frankly, he is perfectly happy that way. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, he... Yeah, he, there's a lot of scenes of him lying down. Later, he's he's I think able to like be sit like propped up more, but mostly he is just a body floating around unless he is in Barbados tied into the umbilical cord. Again, very Evangelion. Mm -hmm. Not that not that Eva has a you know a monopoly on umbilical cord imagery and mecha stuff. Gundam does it plenty too. We we met Sue Cordism a couple weeks ago. You yeah. know. Right, but it is very much in that sense of like they keep calling it a umbilical cord um, and all of that, and he is just part of Barbados. And yeah, what a fucking it's like such a bold choice that the second theme song of the season leans into it in the visuals. Uh -huh. You know, it's all there in the visual design of that theme song. It's there in that image that is in the Frisia ending where it's it's literally Orga holding him up so he can be in the picture. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's an incredible and powerful choice, and like is probably the point of no return where it becomes hard to imagine a version of Iron-Blooded Orphans where Mika lives. Even uh -huh. though, even though, having seen 40 years of Gundam, 
you still just kind of chemically don't expect this to end with the Gundam boy dying because that is the line that Gundam has never crossed. The closest being Camille, but Camille doesn't die. He is broken very fundamentally, but he is alive. Yeah, and Camille is like sort of like reconstituted over the course of Double Zeta to sort of become yes. who he was again, only a happier version of himself. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, this is the point of no return. I think there are, this is where you start getting like scenes that I'm going to keep on describing. I think, I think the saddest scene in the show, and it's always going to be like, as we're going to talk about a scene like two episodes later, that's like, but this is also the saddest scene. But amongst the saddest scenes in all of Gundam is after all this happens and Mika is back at the base um, and Atra and Kudelia go visit him. Or like, we know, we kind of infer that Atra um, has been interacting with Camille or for uh, with Mika for a while and helping him and kind of taking care of him um, because obviously he can't take care of himself in the condition he's in. And, but we kind of follow Kudelia's perspective as she's visiting him for the first time after this all has happened, um, probably a few days after it has happened. And they have this brief conversation where um, where Mika mentions that he can't, he has to give up on his dream of taking care of the farm. And he says it in this very Mika-esque way of where he doesn't, put a lot of emotion into it. it doesn't feel like he's broken up about it but you know Kudeli responds to it very like emotionally and strongly saying like well I'll do it for you like yes you don't give up on your dream and he tells her like no you have your own things you need to do so you go do them um and then the con that scene is sad enough but the conversation that Kudeli and Atra have after that in the hallway um where Atra mentions that he's just the same right like just Mika Mika is the same as he's always been and, and Kudelia's response to that is so heartbreaking of like, that is the thing that she was afraid of. Because if this is, if, if this can happen to him and he still hasn't changed, he's not like a different kind of person or like this experience doesn't seem to really have affected him in a deep way. And it only kind of annoys him slightly when he's not able to do a thing he would have liked to have done with his leg or whatever. Um, that the fact that this is, doesn't really affect him means that like nothing can, right? That, that he has no expectations of um, like a comfortable life. He has no expectations that like that is a specific future that he's aiming towards. Um, and so like nothing has actually been taken away from him because he can still pilot the Gundam and, and carry out Orga's orders. And that's the only thing he particularly cares about. Um, and I think that realization thinking sinking in for Kudelia which is a thing that we see over the course of the second half of this season with a lot of like the privileged characters like Julieta, who is relatively privileged, um, and then uh, a big one with Gaelio in his last moments with McGillis, of these characters like finally kind of understanding and realizing the perspective that people like Mika have on the world is just fundamentally different because they have no inherent expectations for the kind of future that they're meant to or expected to have or the idea that like of like luxury and like happiness as this sort of like excess thing or like a desire to get in and of itself is kind of foreign to Mika and all he cares about is living so that he can carry out Orga's orders and that's kind of it. Yeah, I mean, this season very much leans into the idea we talked about in season one that he is a psychopath. He, uh -huh. like, not in this, not in the, like, pop media that means he is evil. He's not evil. But he does not, he does not feel emotions the way you or I feel emotions or the way the other characters feel emotions. That said, 
and like they go very heavy with that but at the same time when i say that like iron-blooded orphans is not the darkest gundam show and it finds hope part of that is i think how beautifully and this also they do this with mcgillis and several other characters too how much it affirms is his humanity down the home stretch uh-huh. despite his humanity being different than a like neurotypical persons right uh-huh. like I think Mika has some of the most human material in all of Gundam down that home stretch, even though, like, things like Orga's death does not suddenly make him feel emotions, because that would be narratively false. If uh-huh. if he has felt these feelings, if he has not felt feelings for all these other things and this one thing makes him feel it, then he was never actually, like, a psychopath or whatever it is, right? But he is affected by this. You know, he does love Atra and Kudelia in a sense. It's not love the way, like, most of us would feel it, but it is very real, you know? And I think that's something they do down the home stretch that's very meaningful. Um, and and they do it with Mick Gillis, too, of this character who I think we were always on edge waiting to be the crazy villain. But in that last moment when he is, like, flying around all the ships, destroying Gallarhorn and going, I am going to show them that you can come from fucking nothing and do this to them, you stand up in your seat and go, fuck yeah, McGillis Fareed. Uh-huh. I want you to do that. You know, and I think that is a constant refrain near the end of this show that is daring and interesting and completely unexpected to me. You know, yeah, and and it is like, and I think that this is like that big turning point for the show of like, because as we're moving, you move into the second core of that, like this is when all that star stuff is like clicking into focus and like we're now in like payoff mode, right? We have like now set up all these ideas with our characters and the kind of themes that the show is interested in exploring and one of those being like the psychology of people who are like impoverished and are like the kinds of people who are used as tools in society um and we're getting more of that and like those are like like impoverished children are one like women is another and that's like a big part of the next um story arc with the turbines um but it is this ongoing element of the show of like that there is a different psychology or there's a different way of perceiving the world that if you are someone that comes from a more privileged background, which is even just like a moderately privileged background, um, is very fundamentally different. That to me, like in my experience of working with kids from like really, um, really bad, unstable homing situations or like where they are fundamentally homeless, um, probably living with people who aren't, who might not be blood relatives or more distant relatives who have come from like abusive situations or in the foster system. Like there is like a very fundamentally different kind of psychology that if you're talking to someone that comes from that background, like you need to, like if there's a, there is a moment of shock that happens where you make so many assumptions that that person is not making because they come from a life that is completely different from yours. Um, and I think that this show really captures that sense of like the future being this like unexpected thing. Like it's not built into a framework and like history in the past being an abstract that doesn't matter to them. Um, and that's very much like Mika is almost an exaggeration of it through his sort of like form of kind of like psychopathy that we see. Um, but it is a thing about the show that I think is like very on point and I find very effective. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. While we're talking about this, this arc with the mobile armor, I do think there's two characters we should bring in who become major season two characters who sort of, they're there earlier in the season. One of them is there in season one a little bit, but they're big here is Eok, Kujan, uh-huh. and then Julieta. Um, both of whom I have to say are probably, if I were to identify what I think are the weakest elements of season two, and frankly the show are these two characters, because 
I like where both of them end up, but it feels like the most reverse-engineered part of the plotting of Iron-Blooded Orphans to me is that, like, Eok Kujan exists for a certain thematic purpose, but also, like, his ending is very predetermined of this is the guy Akihiro is going to get to kill at the end in a very justified, righteous moment, and Julieta is the one who's going to nominally, not really, but nominally kill Barbatos and then um, go on from there. I just feel like, and it starts here in the Mobile Armor arc, where this is a show that outside of these two characters does not pull its punches with character deaths and with the reality of warfare, and it has to pull its punches so many times to have Kujan alive from this arc to the end of the show that it becomes comical, and I don't think it's really intended to be. Um, and it annoys me most with Eok because there is like... Honestly, when, when he first gets, like, shot by the mobile armor, I thought, oh, okay, he's dead. But then he's not dead. He comes back after being crushed in a mobile armor. And then he has another encounter with the mobile armor, and he dies, except he's not dead. And then he has multiple fights out in space where he should be dead, and he's not. And Juliet has some of the same kind of stuff where, uh, particularly, they kind of make her a foe for Mikazuki. And at no point do they ever seem to, to me, justify the idea that she could go toe-to-toe with him and keep coming out alive. Um, there's just some of that where those characters feel like they have to go in circles quite a bit in the second half of this show to get to where their narrative purpose is. And it's, it's the only notes that consistently ring false to me in this season. Yeah. I don't think I, it like, I have as much of an issue with it. Although I do agree. I think they do it basically one time too many for both characters, but I think like one, I do think actually, I think the Eok stuff is meant to effectively be comical. I think it is like intentional that he, he is like a, almost like a paradised version of like the privilege that um Gallerhorn represents right he is I mean he is like the exact polar opposite of Tekadon he's like an exaggerated version basically of what Gaelio is in season one um that we it is almost like maybe in some ways to serve as a contrast for the Gaelio in season two he is moving towards a point of like actual understanding of the people that he is interacting with and killing um on the other side uh, but with Eok, it is like he is a person who is in the position he is in and is able to survive entirely through nothing that he has ever done or ever achieved in and of himself, right? And it's the thing that Russell says um, in the home stretch of the show about he has that speech about like history and the difference between history and legends. He introduced that speech by talking to Eok and saying that like, do you know why these people follow you? Like, do you know why you have like the power that you have? It's because of history. It's because your father and his father before him built this thing up. And and that also Eok is like an idiot, but he believes very much in his own like idiocy, right? He believes in the things that he's saying. He's an earnest person, even if he is an awful person in his earnestness. Um, and that is enough to sort of carry on that family legacy and get people to follow him. Um, and so I think the like frustration of like this dude should be fucking dead. He has no right surviving any of these battles because he is a stupid, like untalented, useless piece of shit that the only reason he's even able to be in like this room is just because of who his daddy was. Like, I think that that is very intentional. Like, I do think it is they go too hard on it. Like, I think they like need to, to do like one or two fewer close calls with that character. But I think the overall function of the character I do find very effective because I think that that frustration um, and it's true with Juliet as well, that like the that she isn't a match for Mika. She's only able to delay him. She's not able to ever even get close to beating him. Um, and she realizes that very much, and she realizes that she's 
she is privileged, right? She comes from a similar background to Tekadon, but she is very privileged. And like the person that she got picked up by was not fucking Fareed who picked up McGillis. And it wasn't CGS that picked up Tekadon. Like it was this guy who is ruthless, but is principled with Rustle. Um, and that is like, if she didn't have that, she would just be Tekadon and she would have been someone who died halfway through season one by getting fucking shot by some schmuck. Um, and I think that yeah. that is like, the, that element of the characters I find very good. I, I agree with all of that. It's just with, it's particularly with Eoke where I think there's a very real law of diminishing returns where they do everything you described. And I don't think it's like one or two times. I think it's several times more than you need to get the point hammered home. Like there's definitely some stuff in, I feel like the back half of this season where there, it feels like the episode came in two minutes under. And the way you fix that is you cut to another scene of Eoke kind of being like sad about his men and like confused as to like why they're following him and what he's going to do about it and all of this. And it, it's very repetitive. And I think they do that a little bit with Julieta too, where like these are not characters I am so invested in. And I don't think they're characters who are so complex in like their presentation to the audience that they need as much explication as they get. And I think it is doubled by the fact that they just keep surviving things that everyone else on the show dies from. And that's where I get a little annoyed by it. But again, like, I think I, the, the them not dying thing doesn't bother me. Like, I think the thing of, like, them cutting to these characters too much or doing the close call, like, one or two too many times. But, like, it is very much a, like, the position they are in makes them fucking hard to get killed because they have endless backup and they've got the best armies and they've got, like, the best armor on their shit and, and they are where they are because because of like the privilege that they have not because of anything they've earned they, they which are is like I, a different scale of enemy than Tekadon ever interacted with in season I, one I get that but I also think there's like staging of certain sequences that could convey that idea better than literally like them getting crushed inside armor and bleeding out and it's the exact same visual signifiers that signify death in other scenes and then in this scene they do, the, the one where it actually kind of works for me is Juliet getting crushed by Mikazuka and, or Mikazuki and then he has she has like the pod they put her in that is like mm-hmm. yes anyone else would have died from this but she has the special pod um, it's more with Eok and it is it's comical but it's like there's only so many times you can do the it, it's very repetitive to me is all I'm saying um, and it is the one area where I think the show goes in circles a little bit it doesn't really matter they're not the most important thing in the world but that's just where i if i want to say my one thing that bothered me a little bit in season two that's where it is yeah yeah it doesn't bother me as much but i definitely see where you're coming from yeah but let's talk about where this season gets fucking real which is the next arc which is the um tragic death of Naze turbine and his wonderful wife yeah, so this is where we have all the little Yakuza stuff, because there have been a lot of little scenes in the background throughout the first half of the season where you get some of like the internal politics of the Tewas, um, and you get McMurdo Barrister, and then I don't remember what the name of the dude is, um, who's the sort of like other captain, basically, of Tewas, who um, wants to... Uh, Jazzly, that's his name. So Jazzly yes. Donamuk... Donomikos. Donomikos. Yeah. Like, I guess he's Russian or something. Um, but he is the other kind of like Yakuza dude. And in proper Yakuza story fashion, there is like an eternal struggle for who is going to his jockeying position for. At first, it's number two. Eventually, Jazzly's ambitions are to fully take over the family and replace Barrister. Um, and so that all comes to a head here where Eok 
teams up with Jazly. This is the thing I, I like about the character of like Ioka, where he is totally ignorant of the like disgustingly cheap and like petty things he does to win that he still thinks in some way are like noble or like fitting. Um, the way that like nobody in Gallarhorn ever plays by the fucking rules. And it's one of yes. the things that gets McGillis killed is that he thinks that they're going to be restrained by their own laws. And of course they're not because they're people in power. Like they use the laws to oppress people, not to oppress in or to contain and subjugate themselves in any way. Um, but Jazly makes this deal with Eok um, and then sets up the turbines to die. Um, and there is like a good running kind of subplot and dynamic here of where um, it's, it gets all fleshed out in this arc, but it's sort of built up through the occasional appearances of this character. Um, and particularly through Amida, the uh, sort of, or Amida, uh, Naze's sort of like main squeeze is sort of like primary love interest who I think we could effectively say is like really his wife and the other women are like basically just crew members um, but I like here like Jazzly's attitude towards women and Amida that we see in other scenes and is fleshed out even more in a, a really good flashback in this arc is to use them and like it is this very patriarchal idea of like superiority over women and thinking that that's like in their best interest and that's like what's good for them is like oh i mean like i would treat you right like you would be my one woman like why would you tolerate this guy with all these other women he's just using you for like his crew and all this shit um it's like and i would make you happy um and and i mean it's like you just don't get it and this is where i think the show does its best at exploring its dynamics of like unconventional romance non-like conventional heteronormative romance which is a theme throughout the whole series and becomes more prominent in the second half of like the polyamory on board the turbine ship but also like Naze's general attitude towards women where he is not domineering or patriarchal and it's like really effectively like Amida's kind of like the boss in many ways and that Naze is there to help legitimize the turbines because the only way in a patriarchal system like Tewa's for that group to be legitimized would be for the head of the group to be a man. You're not having the head of a Yakuza family be a woman. It's just not the thing that would happen because of obviously sexism in 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 the re in in all societies, including in organized crime. Um, and so that element here, I think, is really compelling. And I think I love the way the show here has all those little things that are in the background. It is definitely the subtext in season one, and it really like dives full head first in on it uh, in this story arc. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is the kind of show that, boy, you know, if this aired on American television, it would not survive the gender <laughs> essentialism of Twitter, where it would yeah. be like, you know, because there is uh, a man in the group, it would just wouldn't like it. It would just be totally rejected because we have the stupidest view of feminism on Twitter sometimes and what it means. And what you see, especially in the, the episode where Naze dies and you get like the full backstory from Amida in like this flashback about like how it all came about. And it is like the... It is really interesting because he didn't build the organization. Uh -huh. He collected all these like other organizations of women who were basically running from all the kinds of horrible things we've seen over the course of this show, right? And he like basically gives them a place. And it is not in this domineering or patriarchal way. It is in this sense of like he kind of understands what it is to be the flotsam and jetsam of this world. And he wants to create a place for that. And when he creates that place, it is not then, and he's the boss, and he does everything he wants. It is, they kind of get to do the things they were doing, right? And there's uh -huh. a lot of autonomy there. And there is, as you say, like, Amida 
really is kind of the boss and she's a, she's very much the brains of the operation we can say that right uh-huh. and what Naze is is this like person who he's a good ally I guess you would say you know yeah um, he's using his privilege to help people who yes. don't have that privilege yeah. like he's using his privilege as a man in a patriarchal society to create a yeah. space where they where these women can be safe and do the things that they want to do and live their lives and be a family together yeah, and very much the the love he does have is very earned because of that. But you also it complicates like the vision of the harem that he kind of like projects to the world in season one that we see, mm-hmm. where he even has that line during the flashback about like nominally they become my wives because this is the way to legitimize it, but like I also see them as daughters. And like you know, if you wanted to be all Freudian about it, you could do something with that. But that's not the point of that line. The point of that line is that like the number one thing he sees is like this as a family he's building and like a series of safe spaces and that these are people he wants to grow beyond him, you know? Mm-hmm. And that like the only one who he really expects there to be by his side all the time is Amida because they are partners in a very real sense of that word. Um, but other than that, like he would not be offended by, like like Laughter is worried about like, would Naze be okay with me loving it's Akihiro, right? That she's yeah. into. Uh-huh. And you very much see like, no, Naze would be fine with that. Like, in he's, fact, he's he would happy. be very happy. Like, that's yeah. what he wants. Like, he doesn't, because right. he doesn't want to and is not, I think, actually in a romantic relationship with almost any of the women on the board other than, like, Amita yeah. clearly, he's clearly, like, had a romantic relationship with some of the other women because there are children. But, like, I, th- I think, like, the strong implication is that, like, that is not a common thing. It's not most of them. Um, yeah. And that, like, what he really wants is for them to find lives that they want to live and that they have their own lives for themselves outside of the context of like him and their business yeah and, you know if someone wants to fuck there's nothing wrong with that yes which yes. is also just part of the like kind of quiet radicalness of all of that in this part of the show you know um that it does not pr- portray this polyamory as anything aberrant or deviant but as another way of like basically self-expression that is outlawed through so much of this world as in our world you know um I think it's a I think it's a beautiful character dynamic and I think everything that happens here because this is basically where we get the start of the formal downfall of Tekadon and it starts with the downfall of the turbines who are basically their, you know, protectors. Um, and it's it's just a tremendous set of episodes and it is one of the most acutely felt tragedies because Naze is and Amida are like such good people in this mm-hmm. world. Like they are honestly maybe like the the purest best people we meet in terms of like the also just the impact they've had in their little corner of the world. And it is also kind of a preview and refiguring of what is going to happen at the end of the show because Naze and Amida give their lives together to let their whole family get away and be safe. And that is what Orga and Mikazuki are going to do at the end of this sh- the, sh- the full show as well. Yeah, um, and it is a thing where, you know, they they sort of, like, signpost multiple times and sort of, like, talk about it of that, you know, the reason why Naze is so sort of, like, taken by Orga is because he sees the younger version of himself in Orga and, like, that kind of prophecy is then fulfilled, right, in that sense yeah. of that Orga comes to the, the same revelation and sort of meets the same fate ultimately as, as Naze, but accomplishes the same thing of... of saving his family even if it means he has to die and it's not that either of them want to die they're not like going out with the intention of trying to sacrifice themselves but of doing everything they can do to keep their family safe um and yeah it is it is a really brutal death right because this is where you get i think this is the most effective usage of eok as a character yes because this is where you get this sense of like he is a spineless fucking cheap 
petty worm that thinks he is like one of the kings of the fucking world um and and the whole scheme of like you know basically semi-faking like they did have the flowerist which had the Dainsleif cannon on it but that's not even the thing really that um they sort of like frame uh the turbines for smuggling this illegal Dainsleif weapon um which then Eok uses the actual Dainsleif weapons to kill the turbines and like shoots at like unarmed like basically lifeboats that are leaving the turbines uh main ship um and ends up killing you know lots of of um sort of like extras or like like the women that are on that ship like not any of the major characters don't get killed in that volley um but it is that thing of where it's just this brutal this guy has no idea what he's doing or why he's doing any of it it's and and when we know why he's doing it he's doing it for extremely petty reasons but he thinks his reasons are noble and good and like huge highly justified by his like privileged position in the world um and there is a it's such a brutal moment that is also kind of a like preview of um or an echo later down of like with shino um in when he misses the shot um on Elian. But, you know, Amida getting that one shot off, that one last desperate shot, and it hitting the window um, of Naze's, or of uh, of uh, Eok's, like, big capital ship, but it not shattering the window and him being saved by a hair. Um, which that would make sense, because you don't, a, a normal mobile suit machine gun wouldn't puncture that glass in one shot. Um, but it is this, like, this lucky little fucking piece of shit. Like and I think that is where some of my frustration, though, with Eok in the second half of the show comes in is that after that point he is such a hateful character he is such a piece of shit you want to see him die so badly that like keep like he should just honestly be off screen until the end of the show when he mm-hmm. does finally get crushed and I, I think they make a mistake in, in leaning on and letting him kind of be still kind of comic in the back of the show but it does work very effectively here because he is such a heel Gallerhorn are such a bunch of fucking useless hypocrite pieces of shit using those Dan's Leafs over and over again and basically just cheating to win every battle uh-huh. um, by their own like they set up these rules and then they just cheat because like they're not actually playing the game with you they're running the game yeah. so they're never they can't lose the which is also part loses. of the point yeah, yeah that's the, the point of the whole thing right and it's why it is so frustrating but it's very intentionally frustrating and yeah because Naze fully tries to resolve this situation peacefully you know he does not fire He's surrendering. There's no blood had to be shed, and it's just because Eok is a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, and then and then we lose Naze and Amida, and I think one of the things that's so brutal about all of this is like for Orga, right? We talked a little bit about in season one that there's this element with Orga's character that's very sad that he's so like alone and kind of yes. lonely in this show because he's at the top um, and he doesn't have um, the same kinds of friend relationships amongst the group that the other characters do and all that is like exaggerated even more in season two um which you know when we get to near the end of the show the other characters start to recognize the amount of pressure that like their blind faith in orga puts on him and how much he had like orga is kind of put into a box that is trapped him um and the death of Naze is the thing that like is so sad because i just love orga so much in seeing like Naze is like the one person that he like loved and had like this like deep relationship with other than Mika but Mika's relationship with Orga is so like thorny and complicated that the relationship that Orga had with Naze was so like pure and good it was like the one real close human connection he had um 
and then that's taken from him like it's just that's the part that like really hits me really hard with that and the one person he could go to for advice the Uh one person who was like above him on the food chain who he could talk to frankly and he does not have then in the final 10 episodes of the show because Naze dies in episode 40 and we have you know 10 more episodes past that point eight more with Orga and he does not have anyone to give him guidance although and this transitions into the next part of this story he does try to respect Naze's dying wishes because he does see the wisdom in them and he tries to do the very hard thing of not seeking revenge until then we have um, Donomiklios what's uh, what's his yeah, name Jasly yeah the, just as big a piece of shit as Eok who forces the issue by shooting uh-huh. down laughter in one of the most brutal scenes in the whole series because it is her and I remember watching that scene where she gets gunned down where she's in the shop she's getting the bear that looks like Akahiko which is a very funny little thing and that whole scene you're just it's quiet there's no you don't see like a gunman coming around the corner or anything you're just watching it and I'm going are they are they really going to do this are they just going to gun down laughter in this shop and then the like gunman like you see like the footstep and then the gun come up and it's like yeah they just do it they just fucking pull the trigger and it is in some sense it's the most brutal death in the show Uh because of how just personal and violent and horrible it is on a character who we really love and and is just such a part of the family you know yeah because this is where there is definitely we get it then when orga is killed later but this sort of like you don't get violence outside of the mobile suits almost ever in gundam or if you do it's like very brief and like fairly bloodless and it's like it's not this like um i mean it's a mob hit right it's using like the storytelling tropes of yakuza and mob movies um and it is 100 it's a scene you could see in fucking like the goodfellas or sopranos or um you know um the yakuza papers or any of that kind of battle of humanity like that kind of movie um it's but you just don't expect it in a gundam thing even though again there's like a million death flags that are setting it up. There's the whole, like, sort of, like, half romance with Akihito and her, like, abandoning it. But, like, it'd be, like, and her saying, like, goodbye, Akihito, and saying, what do you mean? Like, we'll see each other again. Um, and she's like, yeah, I guess we will. Um, and then her going shopping with Azzy. Azzy, like, leaving at this very, like, sort of ominous moment after we have just had a scene where Jazzly is talking about like oh we're gonna force this issue basically like if they're not gonna take the bait we'll make them take the bait so it's like it sets it is very diligent in setting its death flags and you still just don't expect it to actually happen especially because seeing someone just get straight up gunned down in basically the street or in a shop um like it's a mob movie it's just another thing you've never seen in Gundam before um and and particularly the way that it sort of like in this very ugly way brings into the world that kind of like dismissive manipulative patriarchal view of women as tools that Jazzly has and we've seen expressed in words repeatedly over the course of the show in his general attitude and having it now like be manifested in this awful action to as, as this like direct contrast of the way that Naze and then Tekadon is like an extension of like um Naze's sort of like general philosophy this very like gross patriarchal way of just using a woman just to get at a man right it's like it's effectively a kind of fridge death but it is one that is being used and for intentional thematic reasons of like this character is embodying and personifying that kind of attitude of using women as tools to get the thing that you want which is as much as the actual death of laughter is the reason why they do they they go after him right it is uh-huh. the it is the disrespect and the evil of that action that yeah. cannot go unanswered you know um and yeah it's uh 
it's fucking brutal. So we do then get them making the choice, and and basically they decide we have to move on Jazzy's crew, which means we're going to have to break off of Tewaz and fight them. And McGillis decides, well, then it's time for a coup. And so um, uh-huh. that's like basically they decide they're going to do these two coups basically at the same time, and this kicks off. You know, there's there's still two sort of clear divisions in the final eight episodes, but it is effectively the final big arc of this show, yeah. which is your push towards towards the end and um, the the point of no return, very much for these characters, embodied in I think a phenomenal end scene at the end of I guess it would be episode forty two, where um, or it would be episode forty one, where um, Orga comes up to Mikazuka Mikazuki and says like we're going to have to go against Tewaz. And he says, how far do you want me to go with this? And he says, all the way. Yeah. And because he's like, roger that, sir. <laughs> yeah, he basically like, he says, like, go all the way, massacre yeah. them down to the last man is more or less what he tells yes. them. Yeah, um, it is. And then the next episode is when they do that to Jasley and they fuck him up good. Yeah, and, and there's like a good dynamic there of where, you know, the the show is very diligent about it portraying the like layers of the kind of like power structure of like privilege and influence that exists in the world. And that Jazly like is higher up on the rung than Tekadon because of his position in Tewaz. But in the broader perspective, he's not much better than Tekadon, right? Like like he gets cut off um, by Gallahorn without a, really much of a second thought, right? Um, and that element is is very satisfying from a like Schadenfreude point of view of like this motherfucker gets what's coming to him is like he's trying so desperately to act like he's way better than Tekadon because they're these fucking space rat kids with the Elias system and like the weird kind of scar thing and like the big thing coming out of their neck and it's like they're these little brat orphans but of course you know Jazly presumably had an origin and like a childhood not too dissimilar from most of the kids in Tekadon um and that is probably almost in an Ein-esque way from season one why he hates them as much as he does is probably because it reminds him of a part of himself that he wants to believe that he's better than um and so him just getting cut off by Gallahorn and even though Jazly has way more forces he's got way more ships just Tekadon fucking rips him to shreds and it's not even really a fight um that is probably the because most... they're fighters they, yeah. he is a group they even say this he's a group of mercenaries he's bought a bunch of soldiers they are a lean mean fighting machine yes and it's it is like the moment where and and you get some of the characters of Tekadon comment that it's like Orga's starting to feel more like himself and then and when Orga gives the order later to like hey it's like my last order it's like you guys go survive I'm gonna go off and then obviously Orga gets killed like this is like Orga's transition to being back like the very inspirational orga we saw in season one um and this just like we're going to just cut you down to ribbons and kill you to the last man because that's what Tekadon does and it's a thing that like Tekadon has been muzzled basically the entire second season by their like girth and their sense of responsibility that is like ill-suited to the kind of people that they are um and this just like no we've got a clear purpose and we don't give a fuck what else happens we're just going to take this guy out um, even if you know in like the grand scheme of things, it's not going to change Tekadon's fate. It is very satisfying to watch this dude yes. get what's his because there's not a lot in this last stretch that it gets that kind of gratifying. It's mostly like, oh God, everything is being taken from me. But like at least Jazzly got fucked up. Militarily, it's their last victory in yes. this show. Uh-huh. Um, and even though it also it does kind of doom them. And you can't really blame Orga at this point because... 
you know, he's right there. They, they can't not fight Jazzy at this point, right? Like, there's like, what would that even look like at a, at a certain point? Yeah, I mean, know? they're backed into a corner because they wouldn't, yeah. you know, I mean, it's a classic mob movie kind of thing that even if they didn't, like, they would be completely defanged within the Taywats organization because the turbines right. are gone. And then they've sort of, like, for like allowed themselves to become submissive to Jazzy within the organization anyways. Right. So it's like so, they have no choice. But it means that at the end of that, even once they've beaten Jazzy, they are now in their worst position in the whole show uh-huh. where they are alone without allies other than McGillis Fareed. And say what you will about Mr. McGillis Fareed, but if he is your only ally, you are fucked. <laughs> You're completely fucked. Also, when yeah. McGillis just makes like enemies with the entire fucking world, basically. Yes. Uh, it's... I, that's something I love in this last batch of episodes, which I guess we're about to get into, is McGillis... Like, Tekadon thinks they understand this guy at every step, but he is always downselling to them what he's actually going to do. Uh-huh. And it always comes back like, well, we didn't realize you were going to declare war on everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's great. All right, so do you want to talk now about... I mean, this is all going to blur together, I think, from this point. But now we have the final eight. The first four being what is set up to be like the final confrontation of every other Gundam show, but it goes wrong. Yes. And then the final four. I love when they're going, it's like, it's the final battle. And then you look, it's like, there's six episodes left of this show. It ain't the final battle, boys. Yeah. <laughs> but I think they play on it so effectively yeah. because they do all the stuff to set it up like, it's the end of Gundam Wing, or it's the end of Double O, or it's the end of, like, like pick your, your Gundam show. So many of them, especially in AU Gundam, I think have this uh-huh. shape of, like, we're going to have the big space battle to end everything. Um, with like the big like and it usually often does have the big bad in the form of Rustal Alien who totally matches like mo- in most ways the like kind of figure you would be gunning for in most Gundam shows um, and yeah it is just the you're looking at the episode count how many do we have left how fucked are we you know yeah. is kind of where this is going um, and you know I think there's so much that is so cool about this and there's so much to break down but I think part of the tragedy of it is that everyone in Tekadon is also kind of slowly becoming aware of it too. They're mm-hmm. constantly going like, this is impossible, but Orca's telling us this is the final battle, and if we do win this, something really good will happen. And they're right. If they won it, something really good would happen. The problem is it's impossible. It's just literally impossible, and they're all wrong. Um, no one being more wrong than Mr. McGillis Farid, who reveals himself to be... You called him smart earlier, I guess he's smart in the sense that he is able to accomplish certain things, but he also does the stupidest thing maybe in the history of Gundam, which is believing that if he gets the special mobile suit, everyone will listen to him. And I think and I think this is one of the most brilliant things uh-huh. in Iron-Blooded Orphans, is that McGillis Farid's big plan, and he tells this to... What's the name of his, like, assistant guy? Ignis or something? Yeah, I, I always think he's just Jung Lee from Genshin Impact because that's the voice actor. Um, <laughs> yes. So Isarugi is his name. Is- Isarugi, yeah. It, he tells this to Isarugi. He tells this to Orga. He tells it to all of Tekadon that, like, he has this thing on Earth. And once he does that, it's over. There won't be any more battle. He only needs Mikazuki down there on the surface with him. Everything will be good. And what it is is this Gundam named Bile. Is a very cool-looking Gundam. No uh-huh. one's going to deny that. Bile's a good-looking Gundam. It's got Gundam. wings on it. I'm, got, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> it's got wings on it, and it's white, and it's got blue and yellow. Sean yep. likes it. Uh-huh. Um, it's very... And honestly, it does feel like a little bit of a callback to the... Um, what's the one from Gundam Wing? The Tall Geese? 
Yes. It does kind of feel like it's that mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, because it is. It's the original Gundam. Um, and so, like, so he's, he's going to get the bile, and we learn that it is, like, this very... It's very Arthurian. It's this, like, King Arthur thing. This is the sword in the stone. It only accepts certain pilots. It's got the soul of the founder of Gallarhorn in it. And if he possesses the special sword, or in this case, the special mobile suit, everyone in Gallarhorn will have to bow down and listen to him because, hey, that's the rules, Right? McGillis Freed is the biggest idiot in space. Yeah, he he he's like he be, he thinks that like that those rules are real, right? Like that's yeah. like the mistake he makes, which like is like a mistake that makes sense because they these are the rules that have trapped him his entire life. They are like the cage that he has been imprisoned by, so it's like it has to be real. Right, like, how could it possibly? How could all of it be bullshit? Because the, it, it's like it all of it has to be bullshit if the core, the foundation of it, which is the original Gundam, that is like this is the symbol of the leader of Gallarhorn. Anyone who possesses this thing, therefore, is leads Gallarhorn, and you have to do what I say. Like, if if that's not real, then none of it's real. Because of course, none of it is real, and like we can see that none of it's real. But it makes sense to me that from inside the prison of this little kid who has been like, like was orphaned, was physically abused when he lived on the street, and like had to kill or beat people to avoid from starving, and then is basically sold into sexual servitude to a man who then eventually adopts him, only to use him as like a political pawn to marry to the daughter of another political family, and he doesn't have his own son, so he adopts this boy that he is like raping and physically like beating um to do that and just using him as a tool like within that prison of this awful controlled life of abuse that mcgillis has lived it makes perfect sense that he'd be like well like it has to be real right like it has to be this is all based on a thing that people will follow and obey and believe in because if it's not real then all of this is just human greed and petty like ambitions that only people looking out for themselves and everything about Gallarhorn is just a facade of the rich and powerful which of course it is what Gallarhorn is yeah absolutely I you know and sometimes we like to bring in our modern political resonances into Gundam here Uh and I think it is impossible to think about that without also thinking of like the just let's say the modern moment we're in now of like in 2020 all these stupid people in the media and in the Democratic Party going, eh, Trump can't steal the election. It's against uh-huh. the rules. Yes. You know? Like, or Trump can't serve infinite terms if he wins again. It's against the rules. He can't fire the FBI director. He can't, you know, make infinite amounts of money on corruption in government. That's against the rules. If we censure this member of Congress who said something bad, he'll definitely shut up because we'll have told him, no, no, that's against the rules, boy. But nope. Um, none of that matters because it's all just a game of the rich and powerful. Um, and like that definitely has that kind of, I'm not exactly sure who McGillis is in that analogy, but I definitely think there is a truth about how the world works now in terms of certainly entrenched power structures where we come to believe things that are just words on paper are real and they're not. Yeah. And, and that like people will obey these rules because also that like, you know McGillis's whole thing and this is like a huge anime villain kind of trip thing obviously McGillis isn't really a villain um but like the sort of like the belief of the anime character is like his whole philosophy is about like individual strength is a like the a trope as old as anime time right like it's every villain in every shonen show 
Um, but this is by far, I think, the most elegantly expressed um, that kind of like philosophy and ideology has ever been. Because I usually like roll my eyes at it, and it's a thing that's like, okay, this is just a bad guy that like a Goku type character has to defeat. So you know, Goku type character has a bunch of friends that make him better. Um, the villain who is alone is very powerful because they pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, like Jiren and Dragon Ball Super is like very like classic example of this sort of thing and it works fine but it is not like a i think like a compelling kind of ideology and it only works in shows that are very action-based and with mcgillis it is like on the surface it's the same kind of thing he has lines of dialogue that are very reminiscent of that sort of like because i am powerful everyone will have to do what i say and like i am powerful on my own he has this solitary symbol of power that he acquires the gundam bile and iron blood orphans does work on that basic level of like Tekadon is able to survive because they are an organization and all that kind of stuff and it does that but it's also the like psychology of McGillis of why he believes that and like where that comes from to me is so much more elegantly expressed here than it has ever been of this like little kid who never got to grow up because of the conditions of the life that he led like the truly horrible life that we see um in his big flashback in this sequence that it's like, of course he would believe this. Like, he has been functionally alone his entire life. Like, he couldn't have possibly ever had, a, a like, a real friendship with Gaelia or Carta as a kid. Like, how could he have with, like, the conditions he was living under? Um, they have nothing in common and share nothing similar. Um, so that, like, element of him being so alone and finding that the only way he's been able to survive is fighting for, like, every single step he can take in his life... To me, that like hits in a way that this big anime trope has never hit in anything else I've ever seen it in. Absolutely, um, it's part of what is so compelling about that character, and it's it's they they also choose to let him kind of go out on this moment too, uh -huh. right? Of him going out in the bile alone. But I said this on Twitter, um, and I think it's very true. He is eternally a kid on the playground yeah. who thinks that if you get the biggest rock, you win. You know, mm -hmm. because that is the life he was presented, and as you say. It's at a certain point, it's not actually his fault. What else could he, could this person with this backstory possibly believe, right? Uh -huh. Other than if I get the big rock, everyone will respect me because I have the big rock and I can hit them with it, you know? And he is someone who has been hit so many times that all he can think about is the moment when he gets the big rock and then he can start doing the hitting, right? And like literally, he has no plan past getting the rock he uh -huh. which the rock here is bile once he gets once he walks into the room with that suit that's it that's the only plan he had whatsoever and he has some contingencies he makes on the fly of like okay well we are going to have to fight rustalelion but you know i have bile and i have tekadon so we can do that and then once he's dead then everyone will definitely listen to me right but and but he doesn't beat them and then they're falling back to Mars and he's still like, well, if we can just get off Mars and I can blow up his ship, then everyone will listen to me, right? And it's every point of that plan. It all just comes back to this belief that I have Excalibur, essentially, so mm -hmm. I am King Arthur, you know? And it is this like mythological world um, that that he's had to kind of construct just to make sense of this world he was born into, right? 
Yeah, because it's like the actual answer being that there is just bad people and bad systems, and that there is a rot that goes so much deeper than anything a military conflict could ever solve. Which is, I think, part of the message of Iron Blooded Orphans: um, is that whether or not this final fight is righteous, it's stupid. There's nothing that can be accomplished here, um, and the things that can be accomplished are much more along the path that Kudelia has chosen to walk. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, McGillis just can't see the world that way. He just, how could he? Yeah, he doesn't understand the way the world works for, like, in that sense, like, for those people, because he's not one of those people, right? He was ripped out of the world he was living in and placed into this world, like, he doesn't belong in, right? And just used as, like, a little kind of doll or a plaything by um, uh, Fareed, his his adoptive father. Um, and, yeah, so, like, his psychology... It, it makes perfect sense and it is like it is a thing where I just I've never seen a character with this kind of ideology in an anime expressed in this way that like I just find so compelling and believable because it's almost always something that I just think is very thrown together and it's so cool to just see it like being treated very seriously it kind of reminds me of like the way that like Kimetsu no Yaiba treats things like like the family themes in shonen shows that are usually just kind of tossed off and like because they need to be there, and Kimetsu no Yaiba is like, no, like let's look at this and take this very seriously. And that's kind of what Iron Blood Orphans is doing here. Another thing I like is like to to draw like some real world parallels, you know, not just to like King Arthur stuff, but like his like McGillis's whole thing of him thinking, oh, I just get the bile and then I win, does remind me a lot of like the long history of like depositions of kings in the European monarchies in particular where there's like a long, long history of people that in that instance, it's usually just like birthright, right? Because that's the main way one becomes a king. But of thinking that, oh, I'm a king because the rules say I'm the king, right? Like you're, I'm the son of the king. So therefore I'm the king and that's it. And anybody else is like some sort of like deposer that is trying to break the rules and they can't possibly be king. And it's like, there is a long history of dudes that got their fucking heads cut off because they thought they were fine because they were just the king by right. Um, and in fact, it's like, no, like there are a lot more complicated things that put people in positions of power rather than whatever, like the rule book says is the way it's supposed to go because people in power, again, it's like, it's a main theme in Iron Blood Orphans and it's true of the real world. Like rules are not made to subjugate people in power. Rules are made to subjugate people who do not have the power. The rules do not apply to the people who make the rules. Like that's just how as far as I can see it, every society has ever worked ever. Like there might be some good people at the top that like choose to obey the rules, but it's a choice they make. It's not a thing that they have to do. And there's not that many good people usually at the top, and most of them don't make the choice to follow the rules. They instead they use the rules as a blood like, as a cudgel to beat people with. We're you know this one just if we want to do another political allegory to today, Sean. We, uh, I just saw a report the other day, we're doing redistricting here in the United States, which if you don't live in the United States, is when we reapportion congressional districts. So like we see who's going to like it. And it, this is where you get all the gerrymandering of like mm-hmm. um, politicians basically choosing their voters. And Republicans just gerrymander the shit out of everything because they know they have the power and they can get as many seats as they want. And Democrats have chosen mostly not to gerrymander, instead do these stupid independent redistricting commissions where they let someone else do it because that's, it is objectively the right thing to do. Except when the other people aren't doing it. And I just saw a report that, like, we're losing, I think, 15 seats because of that we would have otherwise had. And it basically ensures, just through our own actions, that we're going to lose the House. Um, That's a very good example of, like, how rules do and don't actually work in the real world, you know? It doesn't really matter if the other people on the other side aren't aren't following those. And I think what's so interesting about all of that, Sean, is this is where I think you want to talk about Rustle Elliott. 
uh-huh. who is this character who is incredibly savvy about all of this, right? He is someone who does have immense privilege and immense power and probably had a dad who was famous and all of that stuff too, but he understands why and how yes. it all works. And that's why he's the guy at the top pulling all of these strings because he does have an actual holistic understanding of how power operates in this world. He's a piece of shit. I might even say he's an evil person based on some of the things he does in this show, but he's a smart person. And that does like, there's something that separates him from other Gundam big bads like a Giran Zabi or the Titans or something, or even like a Haman Karn, frankly, mm-hmm. of like his just sheer understanding of the way power works, which also means that Kudelia is able to work with him in the epilogue of the show. And because she's able to like find places where she can manipulate his self-interest as well. I think that's a really, like he is not ever at like the absolute forefront of the show, but I think he's an absolutely fascinating character. Yeah. He is, he's one of those, like he's kind of a background antagonist because he's like almost like stands in, in many ways, just for like, like the kind of abstract power forces that he like uses, right. He's very like symbolic in many ways. One thing that's interesting about Russell, and I feel like I kind of keyed in on this on this watch through because I played through like Neo 2, the video game, not that long ago, and it deals with all of this. But it occurs to me that like Russell Elliott is very much an Oda Nobunaga-esque figure, which for people who don't know, just like a brief overview is Oda Nobunaga was a general or like leader in the Warring States era of Japanese history. He's one of the main unifiers of Japan, and he is like infamous in Japanese history and like pop culture as being like incredibly ruthless and brutal, much the way that Russell is of like he will do whatever he needs to in order to further his interests in his conquests and will like lie and trick and betray and manipulate, will break the rules, will like go overboard in order to send a message with military actions in order to like subjugate people. So it's like he's that kind of like historical figure, very similar to like Cao Cao um, in uh, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms period as well for people who know that like kind of Chinese history stuff. They're very kind of similar historical figures and also how culture understands them. But the thing with Odu Nobunaga, like with Sao Sao and like with Russell Elliam, is that they also like are actually very effective and in many ways very progressive leaders when they are in power. They're ruthless to get their power and to maintain it. But Oda Nobunaga like revolutionized the Japanese infrastructure and like built like roads and bridges and stuff um, in like a country that didn't have lots of that for long stretches, um, like imported new technologies and new medicines, introduced more like ethical and like equitable um, legal policies and laws. So like the way the justice system worked was revolutionized by Oda Nobunaga in Japanese history. And it's like the dude did like a huge amount of good from like a broad social sense with like what he executed and the policies he implemented, um, which is also very much like what Russell Ellison does. When we see him actually get power, he is a person that seems fairly principled. Like his principles just aren't playing by the rules. His principles are he wants to use power for ultimately good ends. He's not petty and greedy the way we see lots of other people in power, like primarily the, the noblest guy um, who's that kind of merchant who, you know, executes basically or does the hit on Orga. But that guy is like a symbolic of power is unto its own end and just for greed's sake. Whereas like Russell, you never get that sense. So like, you get the sense like Julietta follows this guy for a reason. Like he is a good leader in an abstract sense. And if we were following this story from almost any other POV than Tekadon's, he would seem like he's kind of, he's a pretty good guy. Um, 
but because we're following Tekadon's POV and we see that like people in power don't the people in power who do big things don't do it with like clean fucking hands they're doing awful things and they're probably awful horrible people really in their hearts because I don't know how you could be anything other than an awful horrible people or an awful horrible person in order the deaths of like probably about a hundred children basically and entirely to like make a point in like further your political power base um but the thing that complicates him is that at the end of the day him being in power probably is better for more people than Tekadon or certainly McGillis if they had somehow won this conflict the world would not be a better place for oh, most I, people um, yeah. the world is a better place for most people because Russell won yeah no I 100% think that's part of the most I think it's one of the most provocative things about the ending and also one of the things that I think rings truest is that what what on earth would McGillis have done with the power uh-huh. if he had it, right? Like, I think it would have just been a lot of war and bloodshed of his, like, because all his real goal is is, like, cleansing Gallarhorn, but I don't think he has a real, like, moral, ideological sense of what that means, right? It would ultimately be cleansing Gallarhorn of people who don't fear him because that's his perception of his perception of power again is I have the biggest stick on the playground right and that is such a that is not like a durable ruling ideology and Rustal Elian like does have a durable ruling ideology he probably would be remembered in that Odu Nobunaga sense of like this guy was ruthless but man like the the whole world got better under that reign because of you know x y and z and I think the show, because they also, and I, it's one way I wish, I'm not sure where you would fit Kudelia in the story in season two more, but I would have loved to see a little bit more of her kind of moving up the political ladder, because they play uh-huh. with this in season one, that she also does learn the lesson that you have to get your hands a little dirty to get the power to do good things, right? And I don't think Kudelia would ever do the Rustal Elian order the deaths of a hundred children thing, right? But she does make very clear moral compromises to get to the points where bigger moral goods can be made, right? Uh-huh. And I think that is, and and Rustal Elian is a more extreme version of that, but there is a sense in this entire story that there is a way that power works, and I think this is very true of the real world today, and probably always, that being idealistic is not enough to be powerful, mm-hmm. and there is a certain level of ruthlessness that is required to do good in the world if that's what you want to do. Um, And, you know, I think it's a problem that we have in the United States with the people who generally tend to get power on the the liberal or progressive side is a complete failure to understand what effective power wielding actually looks like, you know? Um, And I don't know. It's something that I think is very savvy in this show, but also fairly provocative. Yeah, um... Yeah, it, it is the thing, like, all through this kind of ending section that, like, stands out to me the most. Um, because the other thing, the other, before I forget about it, the other comparison point that is the thing that made me think of Oda Nobunaga at the end of the show is the his relationship with the Julieta character, where, like, Rustel actually embodies part of the, like, ideology or the, like, like the thing that um, McGillis wants, which is this kind of level playing field where anybody from any background based on their merit, right? He wants a meritocracy to a certain extent, although he wants a meritocracy that he's at the top of because he thinks he has the most merit, of course, because it's McGill's. Um, But like that someone can work their way up whatever their background is. And because they are very smart and capable and good at whatever it is, that means that they get more influence. 
Um, and that is like maybe the most famous thing in many ways about Oda Nobunaga is that his right-hand man, Hideyoshi Toyotomi, who was the person that succeeded Nobunaga after his assassination and is the second major unifier in uh, Japanese history, the third one and the most successful, obviously, ultimately being Tokugawa. Um, but Hideyoshi Toyotomi was a dude who's basically a peasant. He came from nothing. He was not a samurai. He came from a family that had no real claim. Um, he worked his way up as a foot soldier in Nobunaga's army and through his achievements, like ended up as straight up Oda's like right-hand man and the person who ultimately like succeeded him after Oda Nobunaga's death. And it's very much like the, the position that Julieta, I think as a character is put into as a contrast to Tekadon. We see it and it's all throughout these eight episodes of Julieta's arc of her, like ultimately abandoning this path that she was on to try to be more like Tekadon because she sees that it's like she can't be like that. Like she doesn't have to be like that. She can. She doesn't have to get the fucking surgery or be turned into a mobile suit like Ayn was in season one or anything like that. And she doesn't want to anymore because she sees how scary and painful that is. Um, and she wants to be a like like you know normal person, um, and accomplish her objectives. But she comes from a like nothing background as far as we know like she it was kind of picked up because she was talented and she has worked her way up and then like you know her the last thing with that character is that it's gestured towards that she might ultimately succeed Rustle um and and that contrast of the luck that she has that she just happened to be in a position right it's like not a real meritocracy because it's like she happened to be in a position where her merit could be recognized by someone who could see it um, and that's what got her there. And like, if whatever day that Julieta got discovered by Rustle, if it had been Orga or Mikazaki or McGillis there instead of fucking CGS that saw Orga, Orga and Mika or um, Isnaru or Fareed who saw McGillis, like those characters would be in the position Julieta's in. And it's like entirely by like happenstance and fortune that even in a quote unquote like meritocratic system, she managed to get to the position she is and it would be easy and trivial for this entire situation to be flipped around for her. Yeah, no. And I think the last thing I would just say about the, the Rustle alien of it all is that one of the big things that distinguishes him from any other like final big bad is he has this disturbing, but also very compelling Lack, seeming lack of actual like animosity towards uh -huh. Tekadon or McGillis. Like he is more bemused by them than anything else. Because and at no point is he sweating. Like other yeah. than I think when McGillis is going on his final rampage in the bile, and he does get you know reasonably close. But Rustle is like, hey, if he can do it, he's earned it. Like that's very much his point of view, right? Uh -huh. When he sends out and they're like, send out all the mobile suits, and he's like, no, let's see what Guy Elio can do, right? Because you know what? If he beats him, maybe I deserve to die. Is he has this like very like grounded view in this of like and like when McGillis dies, he even has this whole speech about like this was a guy who misunderstood power, but you also realize he did understand this guy, like better than mm -hmm. the audience did at many points, you know? Um, and I think that's what makes him a compelling and different villain. And also why, even though this whole situation in these four episodes is set up to look like a final Gundam fight, a final Gundam confrontation, the X factor, if let's say you didn't know how many episodes were left, right? Uh -huh. I think one of the X factors is you would look at Rustle Elian and his lack of like panic, his lack of like, he doesn't like give any big speeches about like, we're gonna wipe these fucking kids out, you know, the way I feel like one of the Titans would, right? Uh -huh. in, in Zeta Gundam. There's none of that because he, he understands the game that is being played and McGillis and Tekadon 
do not understand the game that is being played. Yeah, they think they're in for the same kind of fight that Tekadon has won by like, you know, by luck, but also by extreme risk and talent multiple times in season one. Um, and they think they're in one of those again, right? They think they're in like the end of season one, that finale, but it's like, that was like a tiny little Gallarhorn force, right? Like that was compared to the fleet that is assembled by Russell Elliot, which is like, it's almost comically large because we've only ever seen groups of like 10 ships at most. And that also seems like, oh God, look at all these ships because Tekadon has two and McGillis has like five or something with it. Like it's like the little tiny fleet. And then the Arian Rod fleet is gotta be like 50 ships or something. It's this massive, massive fleet. It is like the spine of the Gallarhorn military force. Um, it is just like, it would be like somebody in America like winning a skirmish against like a local like police force for like a major metropolitan city. It's like, that's really impressive. Like that's a depressive display of military might. And then thinking you can fight the U S military with it. It's like, <laughs> right. It's a very different scale that you're approaching of these two kinds of conflicts. It's like, you can't beat the like bulk of the U S military on like some like gumption and a good bet, you know, like it's, you're going to get fucking gunned the fuck down. If your only possible strategy for victory is we're just going to make a run at the head of the organization and take them out, and then hopefully everyone else stands down, you're not going to win. That's, that's Sadly, yeah. that is not a... Even in video games, that's not a winning strategy usually. <laughs> yeah, because even if they had killed Rustle, they still would have lost that fight and all gotten killed and somebody else would have taken Rustle's place. Like, that's one of the things they yeah. also misunderstand is that Russell Elian is not Orga. Like, there are dozens of other people in that fleet that are chomping at the bit to be the man in charge where it's like nobody else wants to try to take Orga's place in Decadon because they know they can't um, because it's like yeah. they're a family they're not a, like a business or whatever but it's like every, there's you know you couldn't like walk down the hallway in one of those ships without bumping into like 50 other people that think that they are, should be the guy in charge in that fleet you know well and they probably have a succession plan yes. I imagine Rustle Elian does not go into battle without saying you are taking over if I die right like uh -huh. <laughs> this isn't rocket science um, but it's just it's they're, they're coming from such completely different worlds and so it's episode 45 I think where you get the big um, they make the big beeline for um Rustalelian's ship, and the whole plan is that Shino's got the Flauros, and he is going to use the one like Dainsleaf thing they do, and that's what they're going to do to kill the flagship with Rustal in it. And it is the classic Tekadon move. We have seen them do it so many times, like when they fought Naze and they, you know, flipped themselves around the asteroid. Mm -hmm. We've seen it, obviously, at the end of season one. We've seen it when uh, Eugene has done it before, where he's tagged all these ships together and then done his cool piloting thing. And there's just, there's been so many examples of that. They just haven't been fighting the biggest fleet in the cosmos. And this time they do it. And the thing is, they do everything right. They actually uh -huh. do, like, execute militarily pretty well. But it's a hard shot to make, and Shino just barely misses it. And I think one of the most impressive pieces of voice acting in the history of Gundam is Shino's just, like, guttural wails when he misses that shot. And then he is being blown up. And I love the the subtitles. Subtitle is "Dang it," yes, which I think is really funny. Yeah, my subtitles also it was like "darn" or "dang it" or something. And he's saying in Japanese, he's saying like what you'd normally translate as just shit because right. he's saying "ksoga" and "kso" means shit. I um, mean, he's like belting it out, and it's like 
if I was translating that, and obviously, you know, I, you wouldn't, Crunchyroll or Netflix or whatever wouldn't want to d- do this, but uh, you know, I would just go, fucking shit, motherfucker, is the thing right. to say, right? Like, I would just put, like, every curse word um, in the book on there, because that's, like, the, like, what he's saying in Japanese and, like, how vehemently he's expressing it is just, like, he's just cursing like a sailor, basically, yeah. um, because, well, because he knows if, it's if all he- over. Right, because if you don't know, like, the way Japanese swears are usually, like, subtitled is basically based less on the vocab being used than on, like, the intensity of the, the, like, how it's being said. And the intensity there is such that I agree. That's one of the rare times where fan subbers would have it right in how many swear words they'd be using, right? Uh Yeah. Yeah, because... Right? Like, his guttural, like, is, like, so powerful as he's being blown up. And you feel it because that's the moment. When that misses, it's over. There uh-huh. is nothing else that can be done. Yeah, that's where Tekadon loses. Um, and it is, like, that whole sequence and how it's, like, directed and animated. Because it's the kind of thing you've seen in a million anime. Like, of the, like, you're doing, you know, it's this big risk. And you're intercutting between all these other, like, members. that they're going, like, go, Shino, go, do it. It's, like, you know, fucking, um, I don't know why this is the one that comes to mind. Because there's, like, a million of these. Um, but like Final Fantasy VII Advent Children does one, which is like the only line of dialogue half the party members from Final Fantasy VII have in that movie. But it's like a very ubiquitous kind of scene in when you have a big group of protagonists and it's going to be the last big decisive blow. Um, uh, it, you have that like, you know, in Japanese you say like, Ike, like go do it, you can do it, Shino. And then he misses the shot. And it's like, and in those kinds of scenes, you never miss the shot. Like, the way it's cut and edited, like, I think this is, like, actually a very good bit of, like, subversive animation and, like, filmmaking is it's such a convincing, even though in your heart of hearts, and for me, I've seen it twice before, like, you know, it's there's no fucking way that they're going to kill Russell here. It just wouldn't make sense um, for a hundred different reasons. But they really make you feel it. Um, and it is that, like, you know, the last shot of a basketball game and it's like spinning on the rim and you think it's going to fall in and it fucking falls out. You missed the shot, right? It is that kind of just like very, yeah, you got very close, but you lost the fucking game. Um, and it is brutal. It's, it is so brutal. There is such a, like your heart sinks down into your stomach watching it because honestly, that to me is kind of the darkest moment of the whole show Uh more so than maybe even any character death. Because when, when Orga dies, it is with a smile on his face and hope in his heart because he's figured out a way to save his family, and that is so much more important to him than his life, you know? Mm-hmm. He is, fuck, take my fucking life. I've found a way to save everyone. And he has, and he does. When Mika dies, it's, it's he did, Mika won? He did what he needed to do yep. to, like, to get what, you know? But in that moment... It is just abject fucking loss in, as you say, a an anime moment as old as time. And, and not even anime, as you say. Sports movies, take your pick. You've seen this kind of thing. And it just goes so horribly awry. But, like, so horribly awry, but so simply awry. Uh-huh. I also have to say, I know we usually save the theme song talk for the end, but I just... This is the episode to me where Frisia becomes... Uh-huh the most effectively used end theme maybe in all of Gundam yeah. because of the, the the true ruiner is probably the the end theme of turn a but it's only in like five episodes at the end of turn a. Uh-huh. um but i think the way they use the song Frigia, which is brilliant on its own but iron blood orphans has this thing throughout where they frequently 
don't use the ending animation and they just have the final scene of the episode play out over the credits with the song playing. And I think for the first three endings, that is oftentimes a little clumsy in that it just feels like this is a scene that should be happening hopefully without big batches of text over it. And Mm -hmm. like it was like a time management thing of just like they had too many minutes in the episode and blah, blah, blah. But I think the way they do it with Frisia, and part of this is also that I think they set up the ending animation in such a way where it is much more natural when they cut back into it. Mm -hmm. But I think every instant, because most episodes with Frisia as the ending do not have the full ending animation. They end with that song coming in on the scene. And, and I think it is almost always ridiculously effective. But I think in this one, it starts basically the moment the shot misses and flies off. And it's playing under, you know, Shino going, you know, dang it. <laughs> but yeah. really saying darn. yelling his heart out. Yeah, darn. Actually, I'm really curious what the dub does in that moment. I'm going to have to look that up. Uh-huh. But I think, for, and I think from that point on, Frisia is just, in terms of like an ending theme being integrated into the text of the show... I think just as much as the song being brilliant, that is why that song is so beloved in the Gundam fan community. Is It is just the part, it is like, it is the underscore of so many fucking phenomenal moments in this show. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in many ways, how you actually know that Tekadon is seriously fucked in the second half of season two is that we have gone from what are generally like, can be fairly sad, but are like kind of big, slightly more upbeat or like up-tempo kind of songs. You know, even like Orphan's Tears, which is a, sad song but is this big epic sweeping emotional song like you go from that kind of thing and these sort of like sort of slower j-pop kind of thing that is more typical for an ending theme and now it's like it's the very slow sad piano kind of like song it's like very beautiful and but and sung in this like very tender heartfelt way um that as soon as that starts happening and i mean the lyrics of the song are gorgeous as well um, and, and as soon as that transition happens to the second core, you're like, oh, well, it's over for these guys. Like, they're, they're <laughs> fun. There's like, because you're not happy having like the happy ending over, over this song, you know? You're having the like, oh, it's like, it's like really bad. Like, we are really fucked because this is, this is a very like, yeah, it, it is my favorite ending in, in, in one of my favorite endings in all of Gundam and certainly my favorite in Iron Blooded Orphans. And yes, that is. Um, that and then over Orga's death are like the two like unbelievably effective uses of it. Um, yeah, it's it's incredible. It's over Orga's death, over the finale of the show, mm-hmm. over um, I think they do it over like Naze and Amida's death. It's yeah. there's just so many moments where like I, I I get the feeling that a lot of the songs for Iron Blooded Orphans were written for Iron Blooded Orphans, yes. and Frisia definitely is one where it's like. Not only was it written for it, but I think it feels like the creative team had a very clear idea of what kinds of scenes it was going to be playing over Mm -hmm. in those episodes. And it is like a level of synthesis with the show that's just honestly very rare of anime. Yeah, no, yeah. And most of the songs were written for Iron Blood Orphans. I know for sure that Phrygia was. I mean, if you look at the lyrics, like it very obviously was uh, because it is... I mean, is uh, Frisia is a type of flower. Might as well like talk about this now because it is uh, relevant. We're talking about Frisia, but I because I was curious, I looked up for a Frisia because it's a kind of flower. Um, what its hanakotaba was because in Japanese Japan, like in many cultures, flowers are symbolic, and in Japan you have a concept called hanakotaba, which means literally flower word, and it's like flowers stand for specific things. Um, and so I looked it up, and I had assumed that Frisia was going to mean hope because that's what in the song, the chorus of the song is the flower of hope kibo no hana um but it's not hope uh Frigia actually stands for a couple of different things depending on the color um so the color white Frigia 
um, stands for um, basically like childlike innocence, like a kind of childishness. Uh, the yellow Phrygia stands for also innocence, but it's the word mujaki, which kind of means like no ill intent is a very literal translation of that word. So it's like innocent and in that like you don't mean anything um, like mean or bad. Um, purple is akogare, which means like aspiring to be something. Um, but like the one that really hit me is that the uh, the flower word for a red Phrygia is purity. It's junketsu. So it means something that is pure. Um, and that is, I think, why they picked that song, that yeah. name for the song, because it is what Tekadon is, um, is that they are pure, right? They are these children that like, it doesn't mean that they are like, with, they've never done anything bad, like, because obviously they're killing a lot of people and stuff. But they're pure in the sense that they are uncorrupted by this world that we see, like the way that these systems of power corrupt and abuse and use people. And they are outside of that and they are just doing their best to live their lives. And that's what they're fighting for. Um, and so that's, I thought, was a very interesting choice when I looked that up. Yeah. Uh, the other reason why they need to do some kind of Iron-Blooded Orphans movie someday prequel or whatever is so that they can use the Hiroko Moriguchi cover of Frisia from uh -huh. her Gundam Song Covers album. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Even by the standards of Hiroko Moriguchi, which are as high as you can fucking get. That is a gorgeous cover. Yeah. Um, and it's Sean. That's the last one on her two cover albums where I had not heard the song yet. So I finally got to go back and listen to that one yeah. because I have had this weird superstition of not listening to any of the Gundam songs I haven't gotten to yet. Now I have gotten to all the IBO songs. So I was able to listen to the Freesia one. Um, I took a walk yesterday and I listened to the original version, then the Hiroko Moriguchi version, and then I think one of them again, just like in a row while I was walking around. Were, were tears just streaming down your cheeks the entire time? You're like, this is one I of was... the songs. I can't listen to this fucking song. It's like the ending theme to Anohana is the exact same, um, where I listened to, um, I think the, the song, it's not called 10 Years After at Anohana, because that's the oh, MS team song, but it's like called 10 Years Later or something. It's very similar. But it's a song, and they did very recently for that, they did a cover of it that is the actors singing the song 10 years later with a art on it because it's the 10-year anniversary of Anohana of oh, the God, characters that's... they play <laughs> aged up 10 years later. And like I like started legitimately just tearing up as soon as the song started playing. I'm like, I can't listen to this song. Like, like even if I'm watching it with the show, it doesn't hit me as hard. But when I watch the song without the show, it's true of Frisia, it's true of, of the 10 years later song, whatever its title is in Japanese. Um, it, it like, I, I cannot listen to it because it makes me too sad. I, I mean, yesterday what it was, Sean, is I finished, I, I basically had lunch and finished Mobile Suit, or I fin and finished Iron Blood Orphans, and then it was about 3.45 in the afternoon. I'm sitting there just, like, staring at the ground thinking about this fucking show I just watched, and I'm like, I need to get up and, like, shake this off. So I, I put on my, it's very cold here, and so I put on my big coat, and I'm walking outside, and it's freezing, and I was listening to the multiple versions of Frisia, and it was just like me emotionally processing, was like walking around in the cold listening to these songs, and uh, it had, you know, it's it's a good way to do it. But yeah, it is a uh, it is a tearjerker of a song. It is, and it is so deceptively simple because it uh -huh. is just, you know, basically piano and vocals, right? And mm -hmm. and it is it is a gorgeous song. Yeah, and 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 that song is like defines so much of this home stretch of the show. That's why I had to bring it up here. I just uh -huh. I wouldn't know how not to like talk about some of those moments without it. Um, but yeah, and so so episode forty six, which is sort of the last batch, I feel like of this uh, the final asterisk battle, you know, uh -huh. the final battle, but not um, is them basically making their tactical retreat and trying to get back to Mars. Uh, McGillis 
at this point, it's just fucking comical how McGillis is still like, no, we can still win. We can do X, yeah. Y, and Z, right? And this is where um, Orga's not having any of his horse shit anymore. No. Um, which he had already, like, mostly um, kind of, like, pushed himself away from, even though he was very much stuck in this kind of deal with the devil. And at this point, he's like, what the fuck? You're crazy, man. Like, he has a line that he says to the other Tekadon members of, like, I don't think he even cares about winning anymore. Um, like, I don't think yeah. he knows what that is. Um yeah. Yeah. I and I think he's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> um yeah. So, but yes, the final four. This is what I watched yesterday. I I had to it really Sean I I faced this like fork in the road where two nights ago it was a little after midnight when I finished episode 45 and I had four left and I and I had just watched like five episodes in a row or so or those last four actually because that's kind of that little arc, right? Uh-huh. And it was like do I push through and stay up till 2 a.m. and finish this? And I was already, like, so emotionally overwhelmed, I decided probably best push it to the next day, finish these last four. I'm glad I did it that Best's way. Because yeah. I don't think I would have, like, slept that night if I had done the last, like, eight in one sitting. But yes, these last four, basically the final arc back on Mars, back where we be- where we began in episode one of season one. Um, I think this last stretch is the best ending Gundam has had since turn A. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be up there in the pantheon of Gundam endings. I think is like OG Gundam, Zeta, turn A, and this. I think that's a fair, like the S tier of Gundam endings. Yeah, I agree that it's just, there's such a deliberateness and thoughtfulness of it. Because part of it is that, you know, we, we talked about um, that like the show's pacing is slower overall and it has less of like the big action stuff and all that. But it's very like methodical in setting up character elements and character ideas that pay off in big ways. And this is where you start getting all of that payoff. I mean, this is where you get, I think like one of the really huge pieces of touching character payoff that is a like thing that always whenever i think the two times now i've rewatched iron blooded orphans i'm always surprised how it's like how indirect it is because my memory is a huge part of the show but it's shino and amagi's relationship right and like amagi being in love or having this big crush on shino um which is a thing that like is all over season one but it's always kind of in the background it's never a thing that's in focus the same thing like all throughout season two whenever those characters are in a scene together it is there like it is there in the acting of like the quote-unquote acting of the character in terms of like body language and things like that and then as well obviously the, the vocal vocal acting as well um in the writing and so it is clearly like they have always from i mean literally episode one in the background of a scene in the first episode of the show amagi is asking shino if he likes girls like he says in this like like kind of searching way of like so you like girls huh and shino goes yeah of course i do and it's literally like i I don't even know if it was actually subtitled because it's like almost a background conversation this scene but it's like has always been a thing um and that is like what these this last stretch of episodes is every single episode feels like it's paying off really big ideas and like dozens of little tiny ideas at the same time like the the amagi shino relationship yeah we didn't even talk about that scene from before shino dies that is just a hell of a scene and like one of the just one of the best little depictions of like a gay crush from one character to another and like the the way it's reciprocated by shino in it's it's not entirely like I, I think the clearest thing I can see is that I think Shino just sees Amagi as like a little brother or something mm-hmm. almost right yeah. um, but like there's no animosity or anything towards it it's like he really values that um, and then the way Amagi is just crushed by his death I, it's it's beautiful it's so good well yeah because the way it's done is that you have like the scene where I think this is where if you have somehow not caught up 
caught onto like all the body language and like the implication of yeah. the dialogue up to that point. There's a scene before Sheena goes out where like I think it's like very clear um like Amagi's like affections for him. Um but Sheena doesn't brush it off but like doesn't confront that edge of it directly and so it's not entirely clear to the viewer whether or not Shino is fully aware of like the full implication of what Amagi's saying um but then after Shino is dead Amagi and Eugene have a conversation where Eugene tells Amagi and then you see it through a flashback um that Shino fully understands um and that like in that he's like the only one who understands um there's like hey like he telling eugene in the flashback like you think that amagi likes me and uh, and you just like oh of course he does what do you like have you never noticed that it's like yeah man it's really weird and then she just starts talking and you realize oh shino means like like him in a like a romantic sense um in the fact that shino is like so like accepting of it and is like happy about it um and he has this line in this flashback of him saying like man it's just such a weird feeling like i can't like, I just don't get it. I don't get, like, why someone like him would love someone like me. Um, and, like, that is the line that, like, hits so hard because Sheena's already dead. Um, but, like, the fact that that relationship, like, was real and was, like, not reciprocated in the sense that I'm with you, I don't read it as he had romantic feelings towards Amagi, but was reciprocated in the sense that he understood and accepted those feelings and was happy about them um, instead of being, like, grossed out about it or anything. Um, and it is, like amongst the best like certainly in a show that is not like specifically a kind of boys love-esque show that like is specifically about some sort of like homosexual relationship between men like it's the best depiction of a gay romance i think i've seen in a show like this um i mean it's the only it's like the second one we've had in gundam the only other one is in turn a gundam um um with the industrialist guy whose name i'm blanking on right now but his his crush on lauren um and yeah like the way that whole dynamic is played i think like the subtlety of the acting and the writing with it throughout the whole show and then the execution here of like that you know tekadon is a family right and it's like and it is this unconventional family that encompasses unconventional like in terms of non-normative forms of like love and affection and having like gayness be a part of that is a thing that like is so well executed and is like honestly surprising that it's there because you just don't expect that kind of thing certainly in a mainstream anime i mean it's so important to what the tapestry of this show is i think because there is no like monogamous heteronormative relationship in this show that is just like completely straight and without something else going on the closest is naze and amida and it's funny to say that's the closest because they are in this like giant polyamorous family with like lots of you know babies by multiple women right um but, you know, even even the end of the show is, uh, are Kudelia and Atra in a, like, what kind of relationship are they in? Well, it it's it's not exactly not romance, right? It's uh-huh. There's something there. They're raising this kid together. They had this common connection with Mikazuki, and they are still very close. And it is love in some form or fashion, you know? Um, it's very powerful, and I love that, that all of that is in there and is, is in the background of, of what this show is. Yeah, and it is... Yeah. It is I think defining of why this whole last stretch of episodes is so good is because it's like, it's got so many moments like that where it's paying off all these different elements that you can see just how like masterfully done the entire bulk of the show season one and the rest of season two has been because that's the only way you can get an ending that is this good is if you have been very thoughtful in how you build it up. Yeah, absolutely. So this final four episode stretch, you know, at the beginning of it, 
Orca is extremely desperate to figure out a way out of this, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the darkest scenes in the whole show is when he calls up McMurdo Barristan and says, like, and, and he's like, well, what, what the hell can I do for you? I can't give you money. I can't do this. And he says, I know, I know, I know. Can you, let, can you get me through to Rustle Elian, right? Mm-hmm. And that is like the, oh, shit. And then he talks to Rustle and he says, I will give you, uh, you know, uh, McGillis and we will, you know, stand down and we will not fight anymore and we will break, we'll break up. There'll be no more Tekadun, all of that kind of stuff. We'll disarm. And, and Rustle is like, you don't get it, do you? And explains basically how the power of this world works and what Gallarhorn needs to save face. And he says, well, then kill me. Take my life, please. Like, I will die. Just let them go. And he's still... And Rustle is... What's so horrible is he probably is right on the sense of, like, what he needs to maintain his power and all of that. But I don't think the audience or Orga quite realizes just how fucked they are until that scene on mm-hmm. the phone. Yeah, that there is no out. Like, they are fully yeah. backed into a corner, like, even if they surrender... Right, this is the same thing that happens to Naze, right? Like they're not going to let you to surrender because what they want to do is kill you. Like they're not killing you really for other. I mean, they're like your death is like the only way to accomplish the thing that they want, right? Like right. like Rustle needs to prove that his power is unflappable, right? And if all it is is that like Tekadon surrenders and their leader gets executed, like yeah, that is a demonstration of power, but it's not a demonstration of power like we have completely eradicated this like terrorist rebel organization right like he wants the image of julietta holding up barbados's head on the sword Uh that's what he wants yeah and And he gets it yeah you you don't get that through their enemy surrendering you get that through just massacring your enemy which to be fair is like a thing that tekadon has done to a lot of other people over the course of this show (laughs) yes so then it becomes is there any possible way out of this situation and this is where i think something i really like in terms of sean you talked about there being a lot of payoff is I love that there's payoff here for all of the relationships Tekadon has built mm-hmm. up because the the miracle way they get out of this is a couple of things. One is you have Miss Marybit and Dexter, who is like this, or Dex or whatever his name is. He's the yeah. guy who's the accountant boy, right? And um, and he's and who they have a really nice conversation earlier in the show where Marybit like she he encourages her to leave and she encourages him to leave and they realize they're both going to stay because this is a place where they feel like they're doing some good in the world for these kids, mm-hmm. but Dex figures out this way to like he had saved some of their money in this other account that couldn't be seized by the government and so they do have money to operate. Okay, so that's one thing they need. Then they are able to through Kudelia get in touch with. Um, Makanai sensei who I was waiting for the other shoe to drop on Makanai this entire show and uh-huh. learn the part where he's just a corrupt politician and he's not he's actually a really good dude he, he lived up to his word yeah it feels and, uh, like if it, Makanai was like 20 years younger he would have been like a Rustle like he probably was yeah. a Rustle decades ago but now he's just an old grandfatherly figure that like he just wants to do good because you know I mean yes. fucking Chad took a fucking bomb for that guy like if you don't yes. fucking pay that back what are you doing Right, exactly. He's staring down the grave himself. He does not want to die with that on his his shoulders. Right? So, but Makanai Sensei is going to be able to get them new identities, but they're going to have to get to Earth. Okay, so they've got the money and they've got the way out, but they need one last thing, and that is that the turbines are not an organization anymore, but Ozzy and the girls are still out there and they are still smuggling and they can get them to Earth. And, and Ozzy so has fucking Naze's like whole like yes. hat on and like that is such a good payoff for that character that she is kind of I, like taking his place. 
she is she's such a relative background character in the show because the scenes with her and laughter laughter is usually the main character there but i love ozzy i love her character design i love her cool white hair and i like of course of course she's the one who would start dressing like nausea and being badass right yeah like fucking hell yeah and i do love that tekadon's salvation here it's a it's a million to one shot but their salvation here is based on the genuine good they've done in the world right and it is it is mm-hmm. Machinai, it is the turbines and it is miss Maribit and 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 those people in the organization and that is what they're going to be able to do and from that point on that is the push for the end of this show and again so different than any other gundam there is no pretense in these final four episodes of like defeating the big bad or changing the world or ending a war or anything like that it is getting as many people from this organization out alive and to safety as possible even if it takes some deaths at the very top Mm -hmm. yeah and And, that's what happens and it's the thing of where it's it's you know a thing that is set up at the end of season one that kind of gets echoed here um is uh right at the end of season one like after you know like as the battle has reached its turning point orga gets to give the order of like just live like whatever you do no matter what just survive and yuki knows on like comments that like that is the order that orga has always wanted to give and like in that instance it is because they have already accomplished their other objective that he's spent all these lives trying to accomplish whereas here he finally gets to give that order purely right it is like this that is just it that's just the objective it's not because we've already accomplished this other thing over here it's like all we are trying to do is live and that is his order is to move forward and live and we have a plan and we've got a path forward and i'm going to open it up for you um and that is like a good moment that's kind of like in many ways the moment the character kind of gets to go out on um is that he is a speech to the tekadon back in the base and then he goes on his thing and it's like his last monologue as he's dying also so let's talk about that uh-huh they killed orga um, yes, they kill what I would say is the main, main character of the show a full two episodes before episode. it's over, which I have never seen. Like, you can sometimes get, here's the one last episode, and, like, basically the main character died. Like, I've seen that in an anime here or there. Um, but, I mean, killing off the main character, certainly when you have two main characters to kill off both of them, is very rare. Killing off a character like Orga in the anti-penultimate episode, like the episode before... The episode before the last episode is like fucking crazy. It is fucking crazy. I would kill to get in a time machine and go back and look on. I guess I could just look on the internet. What were like the Reddit threads when this episode came out? Like how the hell did people react to this? Because it's crazy. And here's the thing. For a while, my view, like my prediction of where the show was going was that I was pretty sure Mikazuki was going to eat it at the end of this show. I just could not see the ending where he lived through this thing and what that Uh would even look like. But I kind of always thought it was going to be Mikazuki dying and Orga having to live with that, you know? And instead it is the other way around and it Mm -hmm. is Orga dying and Mikazuki, briefly, but having to live with that. Um, Which is, I think, the more interesting version of that story. It is the version, like, it is the truest to what this show is about, its themes, its character dynamics. It is absolutely what this show should do for the story it is telling. But 99 times out of 100... Even sh- other shows telling this story, I do not think would have the stones to try this because it is a big fucking swing to kill your, you know, both of your two top build characters, but one of them two episodes before the end. Yeah. And it is something that I think like season two is 
like controversial is I think too strong, but like it is like, or like divisive is also too strong a word, but there are definitely a group of people that like don't like season two, but really like season one. And I think it is partially because of like, like this is a brutal thing to be confronted with in a in a story right like of losing yeah. a character like orga especially because orga is the like the very human likable one of the pair right like i like mika because he is interesting um but like orga's my boy man like and look what they did to my boy <laughs> like that's what it feels like so it's like i do understand why some people kind of get like almost like sort of revolt in a way towards the show because it's like it's such a powerful and like it's such a big gut punch and it's such a big swing and i think is why it's also very important that the show has ultimately a hopeful ending um to sort of like counterbalance that um but it is to me i remember when i first watched this show like i was completely floored by it like i just couldn't i couldn't believe that they like that they went there even though again like this is the one that is the biggest like that entire episode because he dies at the very end of the the antipenultimate episode of the show the episode titled promise which is very sad um that show is just lined top to bottom with death flags everywhere like it is a constant thing like it, it might as well be you find out that like actually orga secretly like was going to get married in a week or something like it is so <laughs> the biggest one being and i think the most touching one um, being Mika handing Orca, Orca the gun that was the gun yes. that like is the promise, like it symbolizes the promise, right? That Orca was going to take Mika to the place that they belong because Mika committed this act of violence, killed some guy for, in order for them both to survive, and Orca presumably told him to. And I like that you never get like a full version. There's not like a huge flashback that just shows that scene in its entirety. You but you feel what that scene was for them. And that that is the gun that Mika has kept with him and used this entire time. And then he gives it to Orga. And I had forgotten that that happens, but I always remembered, because I do really love how the whole sequence plays off out of Orga, pulls out that gun and shoots wildly and hits the one dude in the heart. And I, he has that line of like, oh, what the fuck? I guess I can, like, I am pretty good with this thing is basically what he says. Um, and I had forgotten that that was that gun and Mika gives it. And the stinger is when, like, it goes to the uh, uh, the bumper or whatever the for the commercial. Over that is where Mika has the line, make sure you give it back to me. Orca says, I will, right? It's yeah. like, that is the most... Over the like, word promise, because yes. the bumpers on this show are the title of the episode. Yes, or the, yeah, it, it is like, that is the most, like, you're just ramming the death flag through my heart. But it is, we've still got two whole episodes there's no way they kill off Orga. Like, it's even, like, you you could literally title the episode Orga's Death, and I wouldn't believe it. Um, and it is, like, it is still blows my mind. And watching it, it is, I think, one of the most affecting death scenes in a show I've watched. There's something about, like, the, the like, sheer, like, cojones of doing it in the first place the execution of it right it is this is where you get a lot of that like kind of mob movie flavor because it's another hit right it's not he doesn't die in a big mobile suit fight because that would be very weird for orga um and it is a kind of scene that you would see in fucking you know like sunny's death in the godfather or something like that it's that kind of sequence and how it's sort of shot and edited and put together um and and it yeah it is it's a fucking crazy scene and it is i think it's like the best done sequence in this whole show in terms of it's like editing and like storytelling in a visual sense is really good 
you know, I've, I've, I've made this joke before. I think it's very true. When you watch enough anime, particularly really good, smart, thoughtful anime like Gundam, it's so adorable to think about all the people who talked about Game of Thrones being dark and uh-huh. killing a lot yeah. of characters. Uh-huh. Like, oh yeah, Game of Thrones, your Red Wedding. Oh, they killed like the 10th build character on the call sheet who clearly was never going to go anywhere because he was a basically big, white, you know, saltine cracker. Oh, that's really sad. They killed Orga. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. it's fucking, there's nothing, there's nothing comparable in like, honestly, the only big American TV show I can think of that goes to some of the places Iron-Blooded Orphans does, certainly in the sense of sticking to its guns to the degree it does, is The Wire mm-hmm. on HBO. That's the only show I know of that like really like does this kind of stuff as like fully and like full-throated as this um and it's it is just so adorable to me when people describe american shows as dark because they're usually not in the way that they people think they are yeah i mean it would be like if like the sopranos ended where like tony soprano was killed and then there was an entire episode of the sopranos after that like it would just be like unheard of like it's 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 insane um and just that entire sequence is like so burned into my brain like the fact that the person that orga covers to it like gives his life to save is ride ride oh it's, my god yeah it's so hard um but then his whole speech that he gives about how he like finally understands right um that like the that he has been trapped in this idea of like i have to take them to this place to like our home a place where they belong is like constant stated motivation of like i want to give you to a place where you can like live your lives like peacefully without violence um and that he's been willing to take shortcuts in order to get there because he's so desperate in order to get there because he's so afraid or a million reasons of not being able to get there or failing of like if he fails it becomes a lie right where there's a very good conversation he has with Mika earlier in the show that like the only reason why this has all gone wrong and why Orga's big speech about coming the king of Mars is a lie is because Mika and the rest of them couldn't follow through on what Orga the dream that Orga was trying to give them um but that Orga has been mistaken the entire time that this whole concept of finding this home is not a thing that Tekadon can have right the only thing they have is the path forward and that there is no destination because the world doesn't let them have a destination because they aren't people that the world expects to have they're the kinds of marginalized people that the world throws away and disposes of and like uses for whatever and then they're fucking killed in some back alley and nobody ever knows that they were ever alive and it's like the kinds of people in society that Tekadon is forced to be because of the circumstances of power and capitalism and all that kind of stuff um and that like Orga's answer is we don't like that is not our path our path is the path it is walking and every step forward and we are always moving forward not to reach somewhere but so that we can take one more step and that that is like the revelation he has and his last message which is like which is like a, a like a line I actually see in like this scene is fairly famous. It got memed in the Japanese like internet community. It was one of the reasons it got famous, but it's also just like legitimately famous in a lot of like non Gundam related sort of like otaku like like a video game live stream by a Japanese person. I'll watch and stuff like that. This scene gets quoted sometimes of him of that like Tomaru Janezo, which means like don't you stop? 
um, which is like the, his last message because I'm going to be waiting for you there at the end. And then he collapses in a pool of his own blood, pointing forward and the pool of blood extending from his finger, pointing forward towards the future and the path that they need to walk. Like that is such a beautiful, eloquent, um, touching message that to me it feels very true and authentic to like the kind of, again, that kind of like psychology of of like, you, like the, that the world isn't going to let you have the kind of comfort that you want to have because like the world needs you to be disposable. Um, so you need to be able to find a way to always be able to march forward and forget about like ideas of like easy and, and cheap, like sort of like wealth and power and influence that you see um, out in the world because that's not a thing that the world is probably ever going to let you to have. And if you do get it, it's only because you got stupidly phenomenally lucky. So it's like turning the path into your objective and making that the thing that guides you, I think is such a like powerful gut punch of a moment for Orga to go out on as a character. I couldn't possibly be done better. And I think part of what makes it so powerful and tear-jerking is he is he's happy. Uh-huh. He dies happy. Like I, I and I don't think there's any ambiguity there. One, he gets to die protecting one of his men. He saves the life of Ride. He throws his body around him. And for Orga, that is and he says this, and like that's absolutely the best thing he can do with his life. That is one hundred percent what he believes gives his life meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And so he does that. And so in one level, he's saved this one kid who he loves. But also he knows in that dying breath that like they can shoot me, but it's too late. I figured out a way to save them. And if they go do this, they, they, they're going to be okay, you know? And so he dies with a smile on his face. The animation in that scene of him stumbling through the pool of blood and falling, like genuinely some of the best character animation I've ever mm-hmm. seen in anime. The fluidity, like we usually think of like the expensive scenes as being the big mobile suit battles, but like clearly a whole lot of love and care went into animating those final frames of Orga because there is just so, it's a movie level of like fluidity on his body in those final moments. Yeah, and it's just, there's like the the storyboarding and everything is so good. Like it just feels like they spent a lot of time figuring out how to like edit and sort of like put that scene together, what kind of shots you would want to have and then how to express Orga's character through every element of like obviously the vocal performance with from Hosea that is like just incredible um but then yeah. also the body language and the physical acting which is a thing that like in Gundam usually is such a low priority that we never really talk about it um but it is like the animation team and like the direction um for these for iron-blooded orphans there's such a care and attention to detail in physical bodied acting by the animated characters um, yes. that Mika and Orga and Shino and Kudelia and all the characters move and act in different ways physically um, that is so important for this because it's such a big emphasis on the show in a way for other Gundam shows it isn't um, and, and it's a thing that like you get so much of here um, in the scene with Orga so good uh, and then you know I, I think you know coming out of that oh, it's so shocking they killed one of the two main characters But then it is, it sets up one of the most interesting questions this show can ask, which is, on the macro level, like, what is Mikazuki without Orca? Uh And what is Tekadon without Orca? You know, kind of, there's two entwined questions. And what I love about the following episode, 49, titled McGillis Fareed, is that the answer is actually really simple, Uh which is that Mikazuki does not 
fall apart. He does not like suddenly discover emotions. He does not fundamentally change as a person. He clearly is affected. Yeah. He clearly does not want Orga gone, but he thinks about it. And then he goes out in the Barbados, has a big speech to everyone. Some of my favorite shots in the show, there's a shot of him framed against the sun, standing on the Barbados with everyone beneath him. And it is Mikazuki's big leader moment of the show. And it is basically just reminding them all that like, nothing actually changes. If we loved him, if we believed in this thing, then we do what he ordered us to do and and we can still do this and him not being here physically doesn't matter. And I think I would have fully, if you had told me Orga dies a few episodes before the end, I would have expected something much more dramatic from Mikazuki. Mm -hmm. But that wouldn't have felt true. And what happens here feels very, very true, including, I think, like, and Mikazuki has this speech to Atra in this episode and Kudelia when they all come to their last big scene together. Mm-hmm. And he says, like, I don't want to die. I don't know if I will, but I'm, but he's okay with that. He's made his, that's not something that scares him, especially, I think, after Orga is gone. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, his whole speech is so powerful of, of him, especially, like, it's the fact that you have all the other, like, sort of, like, major players in Tekadon, like Eugene, um, and Akito and all them in like Maribitsan, they're all talking and trying to figure out what are they going to do? How can they possibly like continue? Like what is happening? Um, and then one of the other guys comes into the room and says like, hey, Mikazuki just like has called everybody out front. Like he has something to say. And that is like such a shocking thing. Cause like Mika has never, like, you know, Mika has his little group of buddies that he goes around and talks with like Atra and all that. But he's not like, interacting broadly with Tekadon as an organization. He's very content to, you know, hang out with his friends and eat his little Martian plums and do whatever the fuck Orga tells him to do. And that's like his entire life. And so him, of his own volition, getting out there on the Barbados, um, which he is now basically just entirely one with, like he is just Barbados, um, and giving this speech about that you know even if orga is gone his words aren't right and his words still echo and resonate within him um and that like it's not over that his orders are not done and so it's like it doesn't matter to mika whether or not i mean it matters to whether or not orga's alive because as you say it's like you know clearly mika is also kind of going crazy like the look in his eye is like insane and terrifying um but also like it doesn't matter to what he does going forward whether or not Orga is physically there to say it because Orga's spirit lives on through Mika and through all of Tekadon, right? And that goes back to a scene that I don't think we talked about a lot in detail, but is one of my favorite scenes in season one. That's my favorite dialogue, which is um, when Naze is talking to Orga about like, what are you, like, are you a family kind of thing? And Orga can't really define what Tekadon is. And this is where he gets this sort of main metaphor or symbol for Tekadon, which is the iron flower. But he says, like, we can't be separated. Like, we shouldn't be allowed to be apart from each other because the blood that Tekadon has spilled in terms of, like, the blood they themselves have spilled from their own bodies and the blood they have shed from the people that they have killed has mixed into the dirt of Mars and hardened together like a blood-red iron flower that they cannot be allowed to be apart because they have mixed like their blood has mixed together. And then Naze says, your blood mixing together, that's what it is a family. Um, and yeah, that's such a good scene. Oh my God. Yeah. And that like 
symbol like lives on in the background of the show all the time and i think it's one of the reasons why like there's such a focus on like the thick goopy blood like like i mean orga bleeds so much when he gets shot appropriately because he gets completely riddled um but like that idea and that imagery of like nothing has changed like orga's body and his blood and his will is still there in the iron flower of tekadon that is in the martian soil and in all of us because we are a family and right and that's like it brings it back to that very like core theme of like this found family which is not an easy thing or like a comfortable thing but like this difficult necessity of these bonds with other people that are there whether you want them to be or not that are kind of like forced upon you but that you draw strength and purpose from and that is like mika there giving that to everybody else and and that is why it has to be orga that dies because mika is the person that has to give that speech to tekadon because he's never given a speech like that ever before and that truly is why these orphans had so much iron in their blood we, we can't we can't say that yet because we're not done. We still got a lot to talk about. With I know, episode. I know. Should we? You don't, you don't just want to cut off the podcast there? No, although okay. it would be amusing. Um, it would be amusing. No, okay. So let's get back to Mika in a second. Do you want to finish the McGillis Farid of it all? Since this penultimate episode is named after him, yes, and it is his his dying. We've already talked about most of this, I think, but I do just want to touch on really quick. I love Gylio in this whole season. Uh-huh. I don't think it's ever ambiguous for a fucking second who it is under that mask. No. I don't know who didn't predict that. But I do love him there. I think I think Gileo is really interesting because he is one of, I think, like the purest, like good people in this mm-hmm. world that we've seen. And again, his motivations for wanting to kill McGillis Fareed are very good. Uh-huh. <laughs> no one is ever going to judge him for wanting to do that. And he has worked very hard to get to the point where he can do it. Um, but he still has things to learn. And what is so powerful about McGillis's final moments and I already talked about how it is genuinely powerful to see him flying out there alone in the bile like wanting to prove more than anything else just wanting to prove the value of his own life that and someone how, could come- like free and happy he is doing yes. it right it's like he's, yeah. he's Takeda Sakurai's performance of the character is so like cold and contained right. and closed up and that's where he's just like fucking completely unleashed and it's like the only time we have ever seen him like any kind of like happy or excited in the entire 50 fucking episodes of this show which also frankly is another Shar connection I think uh-huh. because that's also I think just true of Shara's novel yeah. in the larger fiction is that he is at his happiest when he's in his red Zaku fucking shit up you know yep. and like for different reasons than, than McGillis but that's totally who he is in that moment and Gileo totally beats him. It's a hard fight, but he, like, you know, Nicholas doesn't really stand a chance because Gileo has figured this shit out, you know? Um, and he has the iron system in there, but he's also trained very hard for this moment. And then there is the final confrontation they have on board the ship where McGillis is in the elevator, he's got the shrapnel in his side, and he's just trying to live long enough to go shoot Rustle in the head. And instead he is met by... Gileo and they fire shots and Gileo is protected by the mask in a phenomenal callback to uh-huh. original Gundam in that you have the two masked characters and it's the one who's got the iron mask which is also obviously a reference to the literal story the man in the iron uh-huh. mask all of that stuff right um, um, the three musketeers stuff and so but the bullet bounces off the iron mask and and um, McGillis is, is going to die and he has his final lines where he robs Gileo of the opportunity to just hate him, 
which mm-hmm. I think is one of the most brilliant, beautiful things in this show. Well, it's just the whole thing with McGillis is that he is like a double bluff character, right? So it's like yeah. on the outside when you're on the outset when you're first introduced to him, he is nominally Galileo's friend, and he's there for noble purposes to try to reform Gallarhorn. Although I think it's like they tip their head very early on that there's obviously more going on with the character. Then at the end of season one, it is revealed that he is actually a traitor and he's been manipulating everything for reasons that are not totally explained at that point in the show. Um, that he has maybe he has never really loved Gaelio or thought of him as a friend. Although McGillis has this line, that I think at the moment when you see it in that show, you're like, I, maybe he's just saying this because he's a fucking cold, evil, manipulative monster. Where he says that to Gaelio, you are you have been my only friend, which is a really cold motherfucker thing to say to someone right before you, as far as he knows, kills him, but certainly seriously wounds him. Um, and and so and then you think it's like, oh, he's just this cold, manipulative monster. Um, and then it's slowly revealed over the course of season two that actually, like, while he is smart, he is also dumb in a big sense of, like, he doesn't really understand how the world works for then reasons that we understand through his backstory. And so then the full double bluff is that really, Gaelia was his friend, and so was Carta. Like, they were the only people that were, like, nice to him, but he didn't know what to do with people being nice to him because again like at the same time that he was that like they were like playing together or whatever as kids like he was going home and literally being like beaten and raped like it's like that was his life as he was sold into sexual servitude um and so uh, by like a very powerful politician right um and so the like notion that mcgillis would be able to understand or that that gaelia would be able to understand where what mcgillis is like and where he's coming from is absurd but like Gaelio wants to understand and that's like Gaelio's real motivation throughout this whole season is he is trying to understand why has McGillis done what he's done and there are moments where Gaelio kind of starts to get it and there's a really good scene where the one where Jung Lee from Genshin Impact gets killed um I forget I've forgotten again Isario I think is the character's name Isarugi yeah Isarugi um where he's killed where you learn that Isarugi was also from the colonies and had a similar kind of life um, that McGillis had, and that is why Isergi follows McGillis, not because he thinks that McGillis is some sort of pure, like, you know, Jesus Christ-esque, like, Messiah figure or anything. He's following him because he believes in the same dream that McGillis has about equality and all that, and that Gaelio would never be able to understand what motivates them. And Gaelio in that moment says he understands. Gaelio doesn't understand fucking at all in that moment, and he only understands when he's talking to McGillis and is saying like McGillis like what were you trying to accomplish like what were you doing and McGillis says like amongst a lot of other things but he says this line about how he wanted to make Almeria happy um that's like in a, another double bluff thing where you realize like he did actually have I think like noble intentions towards Almeria and never would want to hurt her because I think he like knows what that is um for like a child to be hurt and manipulated and abused like that and Gaila's response is, you, but that would, that's a fake happiness. And McGillis's answer is just like one of the most heartbreaking pieces of dialogue I've ever heard, where he says, like, is happiness a thing that can be fake and can be true? Like, is that a thing that happiness can have those two states? Um, and that's a beautiful line in Japanese, yeah. too, because of like just the ordering of the sentence and I think the, extra meaning of the word shiawase in yeah. Japanese like it's it's really lovely yeah, yeah it's a hard line to translate as kind of poetic as it's phrased in Japanese um and that is the moment where Gaelio 
kind of understands how much he doesn't understand, right? Of of Yala's last line to McGillis while McGillis is still alive is you don't even understand that. Like that even that's something you don't really get. It's like, of course it is. Like, because happiness in that sense is a luxury, right? And if you are fighting every single day just to be able to survive and you're suffering constant trauma and abuse, like happiness is a luxury that you are not afforded. Um, and it is that is like, again, that psychology piece that I think is very true. Um, and it's something if you're a teacher, like and you're interacting with students that come from very troubled um, or like trauma, traumatized backgrounds, you have to be very aware of is like the way that they're going to perceive the world is so different um, in many ways that like what motivates them and what they see in interactions are so different from yours. And it like triggers things like a fight or flight response can be triggered so quickly if you're someone that is dealing with like real traumas. Um, and if you're someone who isn't dealing with real traumas, like your fight or flight response is very like distant from whatever state you're currently in. Like Gaelia is like doesn't get it that McGillis is living in a constant state of anxiety over whether or not he can even be alive because his life is something that he's for his whole life has been on the edge of a knife. Um, and that happiness is not a thing that he really understands in the way that Gaelio knows it. Um, that whole interaction, the fact that then Gaelio is like, you know, telling him like, like, don't say it, like, don't say you forgive me, like, don't say this. And he's yelling at McGillis 30 seconds after McGillis has already died. Um, yeah. That whole scene is just such a gut punch for a character like McGillis that you would have never expected that this is where they would have taken this character based on the stuff in season one. It's it's the thing that makes me want to rewatch this show most uh -huh is the McGillis of it all because he just so constantly confounds every expectation I have and that is really hard uh -huh. with a show that is what number entry is this in Gundam Sean how many hundreds of Gundam episodes have I watched at this point it's really hard to take an archetype and twist him that far you know it's incredible mm -hmm. it's incredible we also didn't talk about the final scene with Almeria where um McGillis stops her from stabbing herself by putting the knife through his hand. Yeah. Which, in the moment, I was like, oh, that would probably stop him from piloting a mobile suit well, but this is a TV show, so they're not going to mention that. I've seen characters... It's a weird anime thing that characters get stabbed in the hands a lot, and it doesn't seem to affect them as much as it should, but there is that moment when yep. he's fighting Gailio where he falters because his hand is fucked up because he didn't let Almeria hurt herself. And I think that is one of those, like, this show has an attention to detail that is uh -huh. fucking crack to me. Please, yes, I love it. Yeah. Um, because, but it's also a powerful... Sorry. Yeah, because the thing that McGillis wants so much is, like, that kind of affection, but he doesn't know how to, like, accept it or have it. So it's like, it's, like, that awkwardness is where he's, like, nowhere near as, like, ruthless as a character like Rustle, which is one of the reasons why he fails in his ambitions. It's like, he's not willing to go that far um because because that's not what he actually wants he doesn't want to fucking rule the solar system actually he just doesn't want to be in pain all the time and he doesn't want to be alone it's the thing that separates him from orga and mika is that orga and mika while they like lived in abject poverty for a lot longer um than mcgillis did in their childhood like they had each other um and then tekadon yes. has each other and mcgillis never had anybody in his entire life that was his age that understood what he was going through. And so he was truly alone 
the entire time. And so that is also the thing that keeps him from understanding Orga and the main wall between those characters, that they are otherwise very similar in most ways. But the one major difference is that to Orga, Tekadon is a family. From McGillis's perspective, Tekadon are like other tools that Orga can use to be more powerful. Yeah. But I also think the Almeria stuff is so interesting because, you know, I've seen some discomfort online with like the why does she got to be a little kid, all of that stuff, and it's a little like... And it is creepy if you're thinking of it in the, the sexual sense of what marriage is. And one, I would say, this is how human society has worked. This is actually what marriage was invented for, was mm-hmm. selling off daughters to powerful men. But also, like, I think there is some meaning to Almeria being a kid for Mikulis, um, which is that I get the sense that he has been very good to her. He probably has not fucking touched her. Yeah. And and that he has tried to give her a comfortable life that I imagine she would not have had married to any other powerful man in this organization. I mean, he... I mean, again, like, McGillis knows that Almeria is at real risk of even though the privilege that she has in a broad sense, because she's a woman, she, in that society, she really has a risk of having a very similar childhood to what McGillis had. Right, of like the life that he had under his adoptive father yeah. Fareed, where he was, you know, raped and abused, um, and like that—that that is a thing that happens throughout history, right? And this thing that like yes. has happened to many women, like whether they're a child or not, um, and yeah, like it is. There's, it's a it's horrible, but I think it is a thing that like the show understands the historical context that it is referencing, and then understands like. It would. I would agree with like there being a weirdness around it if McGillis wasn't the character that McGillis was. Yeah. Well, you know, there's that scene early in season one where they're at the like ball and Almeria is feeling all you know sad. She's feeling very vulnerable about being the small person here, right? Mm-hmm. And McGillis takes her outside and gives her a, a like pep talk and then brings her back in and dances with her. And at the time when I watched that, it was hard not to watch it through the lens of like he's manipulating her. What's he? What's he playing at here? And I imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, Sean, if I went back and watched that, I would see, oh, no, that's actually McGillis at his probably most pure and human. Yeah, that he is, he's being legitimate in that scene. It's yeah. just one of the things that I could not talk about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> talking exactly. About one. Right. But that's, that's the double bluff, right? Um, that you read it as him being manipulative um, and thinking that you are able to see behind the mask because you think he's being manipulative, when in fact he is, I think, being pretty earnest in that scene because I think he does legitimately care for her and doesn't want her to suffer the same kind of fate that he suffered as a child. Yeah, exactly. All right, final episode of the series, Their Place. Just it's laying it on, uh-huh. <laughs> which I yep. love. Um Multiple deaths in this one. The big two. Be- well, we didn't actually talk about Hush in the previous episode. God. He dies. A- God. Oh, Hush God. gets fucking fucked up. He gets a full mobile suit axe to the chest. And his last interaction with Mika, where Mika realizes he's dying and then also is able to read that Hush doesn't want the emotions around it. Mm-hmm. And so he gives him what he'd always wanted, which is like, hey, you take this spot. I'm going to, you know, you hold down the fort here. And he gives him that trust. Man alive, Gintoki from Gintama, you were a valuable part of Tekadon. Yeah, that whole, it's so brutal. It's like, because he's, that's another character death that like, you feel like, oh, that character probably will survive. Because it's kind of like the point of the character a little bit is he's like the right. punky young new kid in Tekadon that like witnesses the heroism of their sacrifice or something. It's like. But it feels it feels better for that character in some ways, like for him, that like he gets to be 
one of the heroes, right? That is the thing that he always wanted to be. Um, he's his value in season two is he's the outsider who comes in and becomes a true believer. Yes, right? Because he's got his friend, like I think his name's Zach, who's like the pompadour mm-hmm. guy who's always wanting to leave, and like for good reasons. Zach is not an asshole. Yeah. I don't think he, he's just Zach should have never joined in the first place. That was the no. mistake that he made because he's not like most of the other kids in Tekadon because he has education and he has a family to go back to. There's a very good scene right. where he's like. Why are you? Why is nobody leaving? Like, why don't you just go home? And it's like, what home? It's like, well, you could go get jobs. It's like, what jobs? And then you later find out, like, the big dude who's kind of like he's you know built like a sumo wrestler kind of guy, like had killed people before, right? And it's like he's a criminal. Um, and yeah. he's a child, but still a criminal, and is why he could get hired in other places. And that like dynamic of like. Tekadon is a place for people that don't fit in in other places in society. And this one Pompadour dude thought that it was cool to join Tekadon. It's like, yo, dude, you, it's it ain't cool. You gotta go. You gotta go pay the fuck up if you're gonna join the Iron Blood Dwarfins. Yeah, I think you start the season thinking Hush is gonna be the the witness character who uh-huh. witnesses this and then lives on, but he's not. He's the like true disciple. You know, uh-huh. he's there to die, die on the cross with Mikazuki. Who dies good in this final episode? Um, I mean, that final battle—it is—it's very well animated, but it's hard to even call it an action sequence because uh-huh. it's not about like them. They do crazy badass things. They do give Mika one final big push with the big like main musical theme of Iron Blooded Orphans behind him doing his cool Mika shit, but it's not really a fight because up in orbit, Rustle's got his cheating dance leaf machines uh-huh. and fires them in and yeah but Akihiro Altland gets one one before the final battle I love that before Akihiro goes out there's the other Altland boy because we didn't talk about that that all the kids from that ship take the last name Altland uh-huh. because of Akihiro's younger brother and one of them dies early in the season it's 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 um the, the friend uh, Takaki's yeah. friend on earth mm-hmm. uh, Aston dies and Akihiro is very sad about that whole thing but then there's this other kid who lost one of his arms in battle. And I say, hey, I can still fight with one arm. And Akira says, no, I need you to go live. That is your job now. That is your order. And he and one of the Altlands lives. Yeah, and and, and then like the scene after that character loses his arm, which is in the big last battle, Akihiro gets that moment, which is one of the best little scenes in the show of him saying, of where the kid says, like, if I can't pilot a mobile suit, I might as well have died. And Akihiro crashes down and says, thank you for living. Like I'm happy oh I God. can I'm happy I can still talk to you. I'm happy that yeah. you're still here. So thank you for coming back and living. And that is like one of those pieces of payoff that Akihiro was the guy at the very beginning of the show that like some of the early story arcs were about like kind of bringing him around to being a more like earnest member of Tekadon mm-hmm. and not this cold dude who still considered himself just to be a slave um and different from everyone else instead of being the same. Um and from him going to that um, and then having his whole sort of like pseudo romance with laughter and losing his like adopted his actual brother and then one of his sort of adopted brothers and then finally being able to say to one of them like thank you for living thank you for being here so I can still talk to you that's a real amazing scene yeah it's, it's amazing and then Akihiro's death he gets to go out squeezing with his giant cool scissor things Kujan to do then whatever problems I have with Io Kujan is made up for in his perfect fucking death where he dies exactly the death he fucking deserves at Akihiro's hand and Akihiro and the performance of the actor in that scene going oh this is how I get to go out thank god I get to go tell the boys in heaven what I just did 
That is, mwah. This show, I mean, this show has to be good at character deaths because it's got a lot of them, but this show is really good at character deaths. Yeah, and the way they animate Eok's death in particular, where, <laughs> like, because I talked about in season one, there's a really good, because there are, like, these really good in that they're, like, a gruesome and very, like, powerful crushing deaths in cockpits that is so unlike any other Gundam show. It's, like, just awful but in a kind of incredible way how this show visualizes people getting killed in mobile suit fights and in season one it's the one where the camera is like situated basically like on the cockpit wall and crushes in towards the guy this time it's like a static like you know quote-unquote camera for the shot um and it's the two walls on either side of the frame crumple in and come down and close so that his it like as he's getting crushed in and so that like the last shot of his death is just a black screen because like it's like a fucking Looney Tunes death or something where like the circle comes in and closes in on him when it's like, and that's all motherfucker. Um, you are dead. And that is again, you, there's not a lot of good gratifying. Like we killed that motherfucker moments in season two. Cause it's a tragedy. Um, but you've got to hold on to the ones you do get. And that one is very satisfying. He dies, but good. Yes. he. And does. then it is. And then it is Mikazuki's turn. Um, which is, this is so. This is the first time we've seen a Gundam boy die, right? Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. this is this is a big one. This is a this is a Rubicon the show has not crossed, and yet, what made me so emotional in the moment wasn't that Mikazuki was dying; it was what humanity they were they were granting him, and he was realizing it himself in those closing moments. He has this line where he says, as he's dying, "I have purpose that Orca gave to me. I used to have nothing at all." But so many things are overflowing from my hands now. Yeah. That is one of the most beautiful lines I have ever heard in any piece of media. It, and it's over scenes of like everybody getting out of the tunnels. You have a shot of, I think it is, it's Chad and the red haired boy doing the backwards like fist bump that Orga and Mika used to do. Mm-hmm. You have then all the kids like on the roof getting out from the tunnels. You have Cookie and Cracker back at the garden, at the farm, and you have Kudelia and and Atra together um, who are safe. And Mika is thinking about in his dying moments, like, what Orga gave him. And I think that has been the question for so much of the show is like, is this thing between them dark? Is it beautiful? Is it like, what is it? And for Mika, it is beautiful because Mm -hmm. he was born with a piece missing, right? In his head. He just, he cannot feel and think the way other people feel and think he can't want really right yeah he cannot affirmatively want things and what orga gave him through these commands and through this life they built was as he said my hands are now overflowing with things i care about so much that i'm totally fine dying here you know because i saved them all yeah, it's it is an incredible uh, sequence. There's a video that I think it got t- taken down from YouTube, and I'd love to try to find it again. Where there's a New Year's show that's like an annual thing in Japan, where they take what are like some of like the best shows of the year and get a bunch of the voice actors from the show and have them live perform iconic scenes from the show. Um, and that was one where the voice actor can go who uh, voiced Mika did that scene live. I haven't. I've looked for because I saw it like it was like four years ago because it was around the time it aired. I saw it and I've looked for that scene over and over again. I have never been able to find it again. So if anyone listening to this, send me a link on you on Twitter uh, if you find that uh, thing because it is really amazing to like 
see that performed in like the subtlety of having to convey the emotion that Mika can convey in that scene and how kind of like heartbreaking it is because it isn't this because it is the kind of the most emotion he's expressed certainly the most positive emotion he's like really expressed in the show vocally but it's still muted compared to other characters so it's like such a delicate balance the vocal performance of having to retain the kind of coldness of Mikazuki while still heightening it enough that you can feel so much how much all the things that he has gained and learned um, in the the incredible life he was able to le- live that by all rights he would have just been he would have died in the alley as like a six-year-old or however old they were as like a little little kid um and and he you know he will have a son you know that outlives him and, and Mika will never get to meet his son but like he gets to have all those things because Orga gave it to him yeah that that is yeah. that is a real powerful like affirmative statement at the end of the show that is also over like this action sequence that is um or it comes at the end of this action sequence that is incredible of Mika fully unleashing Barbados and is just killing all these people here that all deserve to die because they're all pieces of shit anybody who's going there to like follow these orders about eradicating this organization of children like deserves to get ripped to pieces by fucking Mikazuki um and because I definitely read it as what kills Mika ultimately is that Barbados, his body gives yes. out, right? Yeah. Like, that's what kills him, right? Yeah, that he's on the edge anyways. Like, most of his bodily functions have been robbed by Barbados and the Elias system. That he just lets the limiter completely off. And yes, that's my reading as well. Is that he's he is fighting for some period of, like, maybe like a minute or something after he's already lost consciousness. As Julieta kind of observes, um, ultimately. Uh, but, like, one thing I really love about, like, the detail of that fight is there... Again, when Mika goes into this sort of like super mode or whatever is where the show becomes more fantastical and you see it a lot in that mobile armor scene. It's some of it's like, you know, the fucking eyes glow crazy red and you get these insane effects that obviously are not meant to be representational of a physical thing happening. Like I don't imagine that like other no other characters not literally seeing these red crazy fire streaks shooting out of Barbados' eyes it is representational for the audience of like this emotional expression visually. Um, but they also layer over actual sound effects of like wolves growling and snarling um because the barbados lupus rex which is the name of the final version of barbados which gets the tail which is a good detail of like of combining it with the mobile armor um it it has become this like single lone like wounded wolf um and julietta's realization that like or i think it's it's mcgillis um like narrated over some of the stuff of like that wolves hunt in packs, right? That that he's not that the lone wolf trope is like not actually you know zoologically accurate because wolves don't hunt alone; they live in packs. They're pack animals, um, and this is the last you know wolf giving its life so that the rest of his pack can go live and yes. and breaking down that sort of like physical literal reality. And then again, because I don't imagine the point is that Barbados is literally somehow making wolf noises but it is representational of what is happening here in this like visceral way um, that I like the big stylistic swing the show takes in that moment. And just while we're on the topic, you know, I don't, I don't think iron blood orphans is like the show with the best mobile suits overall, because mm-hmm. there's just, there's fewer of them. They're not as remarkable in their design. They're, they're all good. There's just not, it's, this isn't double O or something, yeah. right? Where you're just constantly seeing great mobile suits, but Barbados is like top five Gundams ever, oh, yeah. right? It's it is. It's, it is such a great Gundam. And because it is 
this show, like Reconquista in G, breaks the format of having the protagonist get a new Gundam halfway through. It gets upgraded. It gets the Lupus and then the Lupus Rex, but it is still Barbados. Um, you have him in Barbados from episode one to episode 50, and just, man, I fucking love the Gundam Barbados. It is one of the best. Yeah, and it's just like you couldn't do this whole last scene with anything other than that design. Like, they, yeah. they, you know, they use that design to its absolute fullest potential um, to differentiate it from other kinds of Gundam action scenes. Yeah, man, that's in a whole lot of ways, uh, which for Mercury has big shoes to fill. Yep. And one of those is like, what's the next Gundam? After you've designed the fucking Barbados, what's the next Gundam you do? That is a hard task, and I'm sure they're up to it, but um, I'm excited to see what they come up with, you know? Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't I would want to be given that job because that would be scary. No, that's a hard one, yeah. yeah. I mean, it gets harder with every passing year because Gundam tends to be very good. Mm -hmm. But yes, um... But it is, it, it's so powerful. And and it's such a beautiful moment. And again, that Iron Blood Orphans finds a way to simultaneously cross the one Rubicon Gundam has never crossed, which is kill the Gundam boy, but make it a beautiful, hopeful moment. Because uh -huh. what he and Akihiro and Orga are all dying for is something really real and meaningful. And then I think that feeds into the second half of the episode. Because Mikazuki dies at the act break. Yep. And then you, after the act break, have a long denouement. The only real comparison, I think, in Gundam would be the end of turn A. Um, this is a little longer than that. And it's not quite in the same kind of musical montage form. But you do get this long denouement with narration explaining the state of the world over a number of years. We're clearly quite a ways into the future by the end because it looks like Mikazuki Jr. is like, you know, or what is it? Akazuki is his name? A Akatsuki. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Akatsuki. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but he's like four or five or something, right? Mm -hmm. So a couple of years have passed. Um, and the world has gotten materially better. It's not fixed. It's not perfect. But, like, a lot of little things have gotten better and big things are starting to happen, like outlawing all child soldiers. And the world Tekadon fought with Kudelia to help build really is being made. And we see members of Tekadon all over the place either just living good lives or helping to push that boulder up the hill a little further, you know? And I think that is such a, again... It's because Iron-Blooded Orphans looks so unblinkingly at the darkness of this world that it can then have an ending that looks at how it could be better. Yeah, and that, like, the the fight that Tekadon fought as an organization and, like, in what they sacrificed has, like, you know, pushed everything because Kudelia is a member of Tekadon as much as anybody else, right? Like, she was formed and she was part of that family and continues to be a part of that family. She's The earrings yes. are the logo. That is mm -hmm. one of the coolest things is she is looking Rustalelian dead in the eye with Tekadon earrings on. I said last year, Kudelia is the biggest badass in this yes. show. She still fucking is. Oh, my God. And, and <laughs> Eugene is right there with her. And that's, like, one of my favorite... I'll just say that like this is amongst my favorite Gundam ending ever and then it's a thing of where like I I so like this kind of ending for a TV show I don't like inherently endings that are like something like Zeta Gundam was the one that I remember when I first watched it I really didn't like the ending that much I like it more on rewatches but I always kind of chafe at I spent 50 episodes watching these characters 
and it's like i i desperately want some kind of epilogue style ending structure i don't want it to end like a movie where it's just like ends right on the last note and conversely most movies i don't actually want an epilogue ending structure because it's only like a 90 minute two-hour thing just stop when it's <laughs> over um, right. so a lot of movies get it wrong and give me too long of an ending a lot of tv shows get it wrong and don't give me enough of a long ending um, and this is this in turn a are both the two Gundams that give me this very satisfying like meaty I want to like settle and allow me to like within the scope of the narrative of the show sort of settle my feelings and give me this sort of like denouement this sort of like passing note and I love Double O Gundam it gives you literally the entire second half of the last episode to do this and there's so many good moments and touches like the earrings with Kudelia like seeing all the progress they've made, you know, like Kudeli is there to sign the treaty with Rustle that abolishes like the human debris concept. And so basically we're ending like the sort of like new form of slavery that this future world has. Um, and I love that while they're having that conversation between Kudelia and Rustle in the edge of the frame, you can kind of see this dude with blonde hair wearing a suit and you're like, is that fucking Eugene? Is that fucking Eugene? And then he and then he says a line and he steps in as is like like you know Lady Cadelia the car has come around or something like that and he steps in and you see it's Eugene and it's like yes yes they fucking made it and that like it holds you off from getting to see a Tekadon member like one of the boys be alive and doing some good shit until that moment and it's such a good little reveal and then you get it all over the place and you get to see Takaki you get to see like like basically every character even just like little kind of moments like um chad you get little moments with you get little moments with like you see yamagi is working as an engineer at some company um all that kind of stuff and you just get to touch all the people who survived and where they are um including you get ones that are like more kind of fraught and complicated that i also think is a good thing for this ending which is ride right going and doing this hit on on noblesse who's the guy who the the corrupt merchant who benefited from the destruction of Tekadon in a greed way um ordered the death of Orga and now Ride and a couple of other members of Tekadon you know they the, that back to that Kejime concept from the Yakuza that guy gets what's fucking coming to him and good detail the two other bodyguards the sort of like social security guys that are with him or whatever um those are the two guys who were there was a group of three people who did the hit on Orga. One of them, Orga shoots. The other two are the other guys that they also get killed. Um, who Fucking are great! That bathroom, which I like. I, that. Hey, I'm, I'm happy for Ride. I think yeah. he is living his best life. I think Ride is going to be big in the Yakuza, uh, in the space Yakuza somehow. He's, uh, you know, he's got what he needs. Yeah. I, I just, I love Ride as a character overall, from where we meet him in, you know, episode one as the little kid of the group to. That feels like the right ending for him. Again, like, I would make the comparison to The Wire. That is, if you've seen The Wire, you'd know what character I'm thinking of, even. Like, that is a very The Wire-esque ending for that character. Yeah, and but I like that, like, while it is absolutely, like, yes, you fucking shoot this piece of shit in this, while he's on the toilet in a public bathroom, you fucking motherfucker. It's like, it's good he died. But it is also, it's I like that it's true to Iron Blood Orphans. It's not just a, like... Well, it was sad that all those people died, but everyone else is just like living super happy lives. That this is obviously still a world filled with violence and stuff like that. Like it, it's right, and they're not the all going to escape. Progress. They're not going to all escape the cycle of violence, yes. right? Um, yeah. yeah. But you know, but we see them everywhere, and I think that is you know the flower metaphor of this show. Flowers wither and die, but they also bloom, mm-hmm. and the Tekadon flower is blooming literally all over the world. We see. Right, and there is so much good coming out of that, 
and we end where we have to end, which is Atra did have her baby. We didn't talk about the whole baby subplot of this season, which I I love. I love how frank it is. Uh-huh. I love how unafraid they are to broach that subject. It never needs to get sexually explicit, but it is sec- like these characters have sexual lives. And it ends with them having this baby because she wants a piece of Mika- Mikazuki, you know. And, and she has it. And there is a shot near the end when, when um, Akatsuki goes up and hugs Kudelia. And they go do a close-in and you see he's got all three bracelets mm-hmm. on. That, that, that's what broke me. That's what, yeah. that's what got me at the end of this show was like the Jesus Christ. Just hit me in the fucking gut, why don't you, while Frieza is playing you motherfuckers. Yeah. So one, one of the things here is, so Mikazuki's name... Literally, it means three-day moon is what the kanji is, but it, right. it means crescent moon. Akatsuki is a word that literally means red moon, but its sort of definition is dawn. Um, so it is yeah. symbolically, it is a dawn of like a new generation in a new world. It's a very good keeping that ski part of his name, moon, uh, there, but it being symbolically about like moving towards a new world, um, which I love. And then the full proper ending of the show ends on like this just incredible note where they do probably the most effective thing I have ever seen done with an ending theme animation where over the course of you know the show we have had this ending theme animation for season two with uh, Frisia of Mika in that like sort of like white vague space like he's loading into the matrix or something and then he gets pulled up and it turns into a picture of um, all of the Tekadon together slowly zooming out with uh, Barbados in the background and then you see that it is literally a picture on a desk. It is, it's on Biscuit's death at, desk at the farm. So Biscuit is like there present symbolically in the show the whole time. Because it's like his desk, his fucking hat's on there. You see pictures of him and Cracky, Cracker and Cookie there. Um, and you can see the farm through the window. And you can see that the picture of Tekadon all together is there. And you find out that that is actually Akatsuki's room. Because when it does it for this last episode and the song is playing and it's showing the picture and all of that, it zooms out. And when it zooms out to show that it is a picture and that the desk is there, Akatsuki is sitting at the desk looking um, at it. He gets called by um, Atra. He goes running down the stairs. And then the camera, and this is like the gut punch, the camera zooms in on the core four characters in the middle of the shot, which is Mika, Orga, um, Atra and Kudelia, which is like then like symbolically that is what Akatsuki was looking at, right? That's like the visual language that is communicating. And there's something about that of like it's his two dads and his two moms, right? It's like these mm-hmm. are the people that where he comes from and who raised him. And like that's the show, that's like what the note we kind of end the show on, bringing it back around and recontextualizing this ending animation while playing Frigia over it. Um, and then it cuts to the shot of the mace from Barbados in the scarred land of Mars with like the character for the end over it. Um, it's just like, what a fucking beautiful, perfect, masterful, um, just master craft, craft level ending of an anime. Like it's just among the best last like 10 seconds or something of an anime I've ever seen. It's perfect. I would absolutely take the iron blood orphan prequel we talked about, but you fuckers do not do a sequel. Do, do not yes, touch it. Yeah. That is too perfect an ending. I do not want the version of this where Akatsuki gets in a mobile suit in 10 years. Oh, God. Please. Just let, just, it's over and it's perfect. And I don't think anyone's doing a sequel yeah. to it. I'm not worried about that. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, 
is perfect. It's a perfect ending. There's no, like, it's very few times you can say anything is perfect. There's a perfect ending. Yeah. It's, I, Iron Blood Orphans is an incredible show. Um, like, I've watched it, it three is. times now, and every time that I've watched it, I've liked it even more. And especially, like, it is building to such huge narrative swings, and I think, like, every single one is just a complete home run. So I think you and I would agree without hesitation that this and Double O are the best non-Tomino shows, right? Yes. Yeah, easily. And when we did Double O, I said, we said this is the best one so far. And then I said, is Iron Blood Orphans also in the conversation? And you, in your coy way, said yes. Um, <laughs> so yeah. if I think the real answer is they're both on the shelf together. But if you had to choose which is the better AU Gundam... I don't know. I'm not going to say right now because I feel like because okay. I was going to say Iron Blood Orphans, but I don't want to because I I finished rewatching the show last night. And so right, it's, it's like, too it's too fresh. It's, it's too like I'm too much in the emotional swing of it, and it's like I it would be unfair to Double O Gundam to just like say that. Um, I'll just say like right now in my heart of hearts because I'm feeling it so bad, and I've, you know I've got my boys Mika and Orga, and I want to do right by them. That I would say like it would be Iron Blood Orphans, but. Diamond. But then if we started talking about Double O, we'd be yes. talking about Toru Furia and yes. Metal Boy Setsuna and the death of Lock on Stratos. And we'd be like, oh, but, you know, exactly. so this is the conversation we're going to have on the anniversary episode yes, where we have to fucking decide this. Tabling that for when, you know, you know, we've got to go back to this Kajime idea. Like, we've got to do what has got to be done. I don't know what the fuck <laughs> the conclusion of that is going to be. Um, but it is those shows are going to be right next to each other in the rankings. That's for sure. Oh fuck yeah, <laughs> yeah they are they are top top shelf. I I yeah it's um what a fucking show, Sean. Another thing we're gonna have to settle off that is the opening ending theme question because we've talked about okay. Frigia, um but that's one of the four opening ending themes used in season two of Iron Blooded Orphans. Yes, Rage of Dust, the first opening in season two, is my favorite of the four openings. I. I think I think Raise Your Flag is better for Iron Blooded Orphans uh -huh. because it is yeah. it is such the Iron Blooded Orphans song. Mm -hmm. But I think I like I like Rage of Dusty. I know I like Rage of Dust even more as a song. And I it's another one where the cut for the um the TV size version, I love that it cuts straight to that main line um that is in the chorus and it starts with that. Raise Your Flag does the same thing. The full length versions of both songs, the chorus is later in the song. But um, it's a it's a great TV size cut down, and I just think that song sh shreds, and I love it. Yeah, I think I would probably agree that Rage of Dust is probably my favorite. I mean, they're all so incredibly good. I also I really like the band Kanaboon, um, and Fighter is not my favorite song they have. This, this is the the last opening of the show, but the song yeah. Fighter is also incredibly good. Um, and and because I have more I, of a relationship with that band, um, I do really like that song. I like Kanaboon. I'm not a huge fan of Fighter. It's it's not like one of the seed openings. It's definitely better than that. Um, it's just not. It's my least favorite of these four openings. It's still good. It just wasn't my... Probably my favorite use of it, honestly, is in the final episode over mm -hmm. the opening action sequence. But yeah, it's it's not... I don't like it as much as you did. It is still... I'm not going to deny it's It's still a good song, obviously. Yes, and then yeah. we also have the first opening theme, which gets overshadowed because Frigia is so fucking absurdly good. But Shonen no Hate or like Childhood's End it's is so good. Of great, it's song. great. Yeah, 
it's uh, it's another one that sounds like it could be a Full Metal Alchemist ending, mm-hmm. and I love it. And it's it's just yeah, it's yeah, Shonen no Hate should not be forgotten just because it has the bad luck to be followed by Frisia. But no, it's I love the vocals on that song. I love the quality of the singing. Um, it's just and I love the animation because that's the most elaborate ending animation they do, which is it's uh, Orga. Um, Mikazuki and Kudelia's kids and yes. I love the opening of that is Mikazuki going back and then like walking and his head is like turning left and right mm-hmm. and it's like bouncing to the music it's very cute it's very good um, it's a lovely little ending yeah and this this is just a situation where there's a lot of really good songs in the show um, <laughs> yes. and, and we're gonna have to throw all eight of the songs <laughs> not blood orphans into the rankings for best songs um, which maybe we should just make it top 100 songs in Gundam just to make it easy and do a 5,000 hour podcast. Yeah, let me see. So I have my ongoing playlist where I add the theme songs from every show we've talked about. I have it. The only thing it has on there that we haven't talked about is origin songs. But let me see how many are on the playlist now. It is, uh, if I scrolled, I have to scroll so far down. It's 157 songs. Fuck. And that playlist is 11 and a half hours. Yep. <laughs> it's that playlist, Sean, is getting to the point where my drive from here in Iowa to my family's house in Colorado is 12 hours. I could almost fill that whole drive just with Gundam theme songs. And and once you throw all the origin songs in there, because like every origin. No, those are already in there. Oh, OK. Um, yeah. But then there's but we're going to have divers. Yes. We're going to have, um, I, I actually don't know what would constitute the theme song of Thunderbolt. I have the Thunderbolt soundtracks and I listen to them all the time. Uh, and then, but eventually we're going to have Witch from Mercury, which is going to have a dozen. Yeah. You know? I'll also say that I remember the opening and ending themes for Divers. The few episodes I watched are also very good. So it's not it's like they... Gundam, of course yeah. they are. <laughs> but, you know, they didn't slouch on those. So if you think of this, like, oh, yeah. it'll be easy. At least we won't have to think about those. It's like, no, those are pretty, those are some bangers too. God damn it. Yeah. But, um... Sean, we did it. We did Iron-Blooded Orphans. We're not done, no. but boy, this this was this was where we were headed in in Orga's sense. This is the uh-huh. place where we belonged. Was all along like to me because this was the last full AU Gundam that finished before we started, and we have now done it. And um, I've I've kind of seen all the Gundam, not exactly quite, but in a certain definition, I have. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's been a long journey to get here, and and it's like I think back very fondly as I often do to that summer a couple of years ago, where like I somehow got you to watch the first couple of episodes of Bubble Sea Gundam, and it's like here we go, motherfuckers, and then some... and then you watch the monster you created. Yes, and then <laughs> and then the original idea of the format of the show of like, oh, we'll watch like five, six episodes. Like, I'll come up with like how many episodes we need to watch, and it is like, and then you're like, oh, I just watched like everything. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, over the course of like the last week or two, like I watched this, 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 that, that, and the other thing. I'm like, how the fuck? What? Oh my god, what has happened? Yeah. What is the monster I've created? Well, Sean, this actually will be the final episode of the original format where you have seen it and I have not. Yes. Because everything we have left is, like, we have Thunderbolt and Origin to clean up, but I've already seen those. And with Divers, you've seen two episodes, so I guess that'll count. But other than that, yeah. and I, I'm guessing you don't remember bit, them like, that well. <laughs> 10% of Gonna Build Divers, and the only thing I really remember is, like, the premise of the show, and that I was, like, kind of mixed on it, but I only watched a little bit, so... Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. From now here on out, it will either be stuff that we are both new to or stuff we are both coming back to. Do you want to tell the people what the next thing will be? Because it's kind of special. Yeah, so next we're, we're coming full circle in many ways. We're going back to our roots 
to the origin of Weekly Suit Gundam with the origin of Gundam. Um, so we are going to be watching the Gundam The Origin OVAs. Um, and instead of doing like, uh, I think this is how we did Unicorn, where we would just like did a giant episode throwing everything together. Um, we're going to do smaller episodes. Well, hopefully it'll be smaller recording episodes. I'm making no promises. This episode is almost at four hours long. So, uh-huh. you know, we'll see. <laughs> hopefully it won't be four hours on every single episode of, of Gun of the Origin. But we'll be doing episodes of the podcast for each individual episode of Gun of the Origin and then be able to have those episodes come out more frequently. Ideally, I would like for this show once to live up to its name and actually be a weekly suit Gundam. So, you know, hopefully we can just do, once we start it, bop one out a week um, for, for Gun of the Origin and work our way through those. Yep, so six episodes for the six parts of Gundam the Origin. I think that'll be a very special way to mark coming full circle on our project. And then also that is the OVA that comes full circle back to the beginning of Gundam. And it's just really fucking good. So I am very excited to talk about it. And uh, it's... We did it, Sean. We're here. Yep, we're here, and I'm very happy for the next time we get to talk about Gun of the Origin because we get it back. Come back to the thing that I think was the most fun for like the first half of the of our first year covering this podcast. Where I'm very excited that we're just going to be able to talk for like 20 more hours about how fucking cool Shara's novel is. <laughs>